Oh, yeah. We're back. Hotep Jesus is in the building. Got a very special guest with me today. This is a gentleman. A little bit of backstory here. We're having um, Bitcoin debates. I know some of you may remember the Bitcoin debates. We had one lined up with Mr. Steve Patterson here, and they vetoed him off of the island. We're going to talk about that in a second, you know, but I just wanted to formally apologize to him right now, live on the air. Say Thanks, my man. bad, Steve. I appreciate that. I appreciate it. You know, <laughs> I, I was kind of frustrated when it happened, but I, I got I stepped back and looked at the situation and like, dude, I knew where you're coming from. I, I, I totally understand it. It would be too much to expect you to dive into the history and the drama and all that. So no hard feelings. Yeah. You know, Steve is uh, he's operating the website right now. Self-titled uh, Steve-Patterson.com uh, slash Bitcoin. Uh, it's a good resource. He has a philosophy podcast. He's published two books on Amazon. One of them, Square One, The Foundations of Knowledge. And the other one is uh, What's the Big Deal About Bitcoin? And uh, Steve is a Bitcoin cash advocate. Um, so without further ado, here's Steve Peterson. And we're going to start this conversation. Off. I just want to you know, talk about why the people wanted to veto you off the island. Let's just dive yeah. into it from there. I think there's two explanations. One is just the tribalism in the cryptocurrency space. Like if you have a public voice, especially on social media in the crypto space, you're going to be attacked. You're going to have haters. You're going to get people trolling you all the time. So that's kind of to be expected. The other explanation I think is I've been a bit critical of some aspects of Bitcoin Cash. And uh, I think I've upset some members of the tribe within Bitcoin Cash. There are there are the tribes where you Bitcoin Cash people argue with the Bitcoin core maximalists and they argue with the BSV people. But there's actually factions inside of Bitcoin Cash too. And one of them, uh, I believe I've upset. And so they went out and tried to deplatform me successfully. Um, but I appreciate you replatforming me. I didn't so, know that was. A, I, I haven't heard that before. Replatforming, but I think this is the first. So who 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 banned you? Is it was it an individual or who you upset? Yeah. Well, I mean, not to go into the personal uh, the details of it, but I think it probably was one, maybe two individuals. So okay. I've noticed in um, development communities, there's a there's a, a, a large emphasis on dev solidarity it's like the devs have to bind together they kind of if i may speak frankly sometimes they view themselves as the priesthood it's kind of shepherding the masses into their coin into the light and i i was very critical of that in btc and i started to see some of that in um, bch as well and so when i bring it up there's one guy there's one anonymous um dev out there i don't even know if he's got a public um i don't know if he's put his personal name attached to his um public face but we had some exchanges and he, he made this social media post that was like i am going to cut out anybody that is associating with mr steve patterson here's a bad actor and then that just kind of spiraled up the chain and now there's i would say there's probably maybe five people in uh, inside of bitcoin cash that really really don't like me and because some of them are a little bit influential you know i think they they successfully got me deplatformed but so, so can they ban? They can't ban you from Bitcoin Cash. Though. Well, you'd think not. I mean, I, I like to think of uh, cryptocurrencies as being an industry. The, the idea of somebody banning you from an industry by declaration just seems t utterly absurd to me. But yeah, I think I think what has emerged over the past couple of years is there's kind of a small group 
of self-selected individuals who see themselves as the leaders of the Bitcoin Cash community. And so if they declare that you don't represent them, then they feel like they can go around and you know, excommunicate you and try to get you kicked out. Now, these are devs. What are they developing? Are they developing protocols for Bitcoin Cash? or uh, Some of them. Yeah, I would say they're, they're, um, that's one of the things that they're developing. So one of the benefits of Bitcoin Cash is that it has somewhat decentralized development. Like with Bitcoin Core, one of my criticisms of Bitcoin Core is that the development is centralized around one group with one ideology. And if you disagree with them, you're an enemy of that coin. And they tried to, they purged me and a bunch of people from that community. I see the same thing in BSV. That the rhetoric is, hey, we're going to lock down the protocol and devs aren't going to have this power. But in practice, there is one dev group that's currently working on the protocol and it's going to fundamentally change probably at least two more times. And it's like one guy at the top of that. I, I don't like that. BCH is one of those coins that has more decentralized development, which is very attractive to me just because I saw what happened with Bitcoin Core. And hopefully we can talk about that. Um, but one of the one of the factions in the decentralized development community has now decided to try to purge people and like actively recently has been getting more and more extreme and more and more hostile to the other parties. And so I'm I, I see this. I saw it happen back in 2015. I'm saying something about it. And um, I know for a fact there are many people at various levels of this industry who completely agree with me they just don't necessarily say so publicly because they know the hornets will come for them if they upset the nest so are, you're not a dev are you no i'm not a dev okay so what's your contribution to bitcoin cash yeah so it's, it's kind of a weird question this is something people were were asking me about um, when I was having some of these public exchanges, they would go, well, who is this man who dare speaketh in front of the community? What hath he done for the community? Like, I, I think that's kind of a, and, and, and they would continue. They would go, well, if you haven't contributed enough, your voice shall not be heard and then you'll be banned. Um, so I kind of, I think it's kind of a weird question, but I mean, if you're interested, I've been involved in Bitcoin publicly since 2013. I started producing educational videos for uh, a nonprofit organization called the Foundation for Economic Edu Education. And we produced uh, videos on Bitcoin. I've written a ton of articles for uh, outlets like Bitcoin Magazine, Fee.com, uh, Mises. I think I have some articles on Mises.org. I wrote that book uh, back in 2014. I've been focusing on the general public for many years and not so much on the, the kind of the insular community. And so that's what I've been doing. I mean, if you if you talk to people both in the industry and outside the industry, I've actually drawn quite a lot of people and educated them uh, to Bitcoin. And in fact, on my um, on my Amazon page, after what happened with BTC took place, I had to switch over to Bitcoin Cash. I had to make a little disclaimer because I felt kind of an obligation being more of an educator and talking to people about the ideas and the, kind of the big picture system rather than the code. Um, I had gotten a lot of people excited about uh, BTC Bitcoin. And I had to, I had to, uh, there's literally a disclaimer out, out there right now where I have to say, look, the system I'm describing in this book is not BTC Bitcoin. Even though when I wrote it, there was only BTC Bitcoin, no forks existed. I had to say, look, the system I'm describing is now Bitcoin Cash. So uh, I've been, I did that right at the beginning. And I, uh, if anybody wants to check out my um, little resource page at steve-passion.com slash Bitcoin, I had a, a ton of interviews with a bunch of prominent people in Bitcoin Cash around the time of the uh, BTC BCH split and the uh, BCH BSV split, talking about all kinds of uh, things. The, the so, kind of, so, yeah. Uh, I guess what happened was you had a particular 
uh, philosophy on Bitcoin and then the Bitcoin core community had gone one way and Bitcoin yeah. cash went the other way. So yeah. you kind of had to circle back to let your readers. Yeah. I know felt kind of an that, obligation. Yeah. Like, Hey, look, you know what I was talking about here is BCH and it's not BTC. Right? right. So you weren't exactly kicked out of the Bitcoin core community. You chose to leave or I was both. I mean, I was banned. One of my early uh, Reddit accounts was banned because I was discussing um, banned from where? Uh, oh, um, so there's two major, there was two major online forums and discussion platforms and kind of information channels. One of them was our, uh, our Bitcoin, the subreddit. Uh, the other was BitcoinTalk.org. And I wasn't too active on BitcoinTalk.org, but I was banned from the um, Bitcoin subreddit, as were a ton of people um, when the censorship started, which is a very important story I'm looking forward to sharing. Yeah, I was uh, I had a, a couple of actually, I think one post I, when I was doing the debates, they didn't want any mention of any other type of coin. It has to yeah. be just Bitcoin. Yeah. You know, just BTC. You can't mention BCH or BSV uh, on their subreddit. I find that people on Reddit, usually uh, the men wear panties. So, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, I, it didn't it used, didn't used to be the case. There's a lot of old timers who like myself and, and uh, I know just a lot of big blockers in the space who enjoyed uh, the freedom of discussion on these platforms. They weren't they weren't people wearing panties like they they were excited about talking about new ideas and disagreement. It was great. It was this great little bubble where we had a bunch of reasonable discussion and conversation and disagreement. Uh, and then the censorship happened and 2015 happened and, and uh, a, bunch, a bunch of things went awry in BTC. But that's one of them. I, now, I will say kind of to their credit, something I underestimated was the power of the censorship. At the time, I thought to myself, oh, this, this, it's so clear that the tactics of these people to shut down discussion and shut up everybody and not allow any criticism, I thought that was going to fail because it just seemed so weak to me. It's like you're not signaling that you're competent, you're insecure about something, there's a reason for that. But I didn't, I, I greatly underestimated the effectiveness of the censorship, of the propaganda, of the purges, the witch hunts. Frankly, it worked. The general public right now is extremely confused about what Bitcoin was supposed to be, largely because of their their efforts that worked. Yeah. Mm. Mm. That's crazy. All right. So you were excommunicated. Yeah. Right. So then, like, when you were excommunicated, was was there a Bitcoin cash yet? Uh, no, not, not when that banning happened. So uh, what I, did you do? Like, what, how did you feel? Like, like at what, that point, like, were you like bearish on Bitcoin? Like what, what happened? No, like, no, I was naive. I was naive. And in fact, and I should make another disclaimer in my book. There's a part that I look back on. And I think, oh, that was so naive. There's some section where I'm talking about the dynamics between the developers and the miners and the businesses and how all their interests are kind of, uh, harmonious. They all want to make Bitcoin succeed because if they make Bitcoin succeed, they all get rich. Great. I didn't, that, that was a, kind of a naive picture. I didn't see that in practice, the incentives don't necessarily line up, especially for the developer groups. And I was very slow to, I guess, accept that the, the picture that I had of what Bitcoin was um, kind of failed and was taken over successfully. So I was slow, I was very slow to act. In fact, it's just been the past few months that now that I see some similar things happening in BCH that I saw in BTC, I said, all right, 
I've seen this story before. I know what it looks like when the purges happen, when there's one developer team that says, we are the official uh, representatives of Bitcoin Cash. I know how that story plays out. And now I'm, I've just started actively working a little bit more um, in the space, a little bit more behind the scenes, trying to get this problem fixed. Because as far as I can tell is if this problem isn't fixed with maybe a developer capture or developer funding, uh, it might be a systemic issue. This is one of the reasons actually I've been demonized by some BCH people because I can see the persuasive power of BSV when they say things like, we're not going to have some group of developers control the protocol. It's going to be out of their hands. That sounds awesome. I don't know if they can do it. Like, I just don't know if technically that actually can work out. But I totally see, at least from a marketing perspective, what, how attractive that is, especially given the story of what happened with BTC. And this, and I will say, this is what a lot of the BCH people, well, I shouldn't say a lot. I don't actually think there's too many of them. This is what the handful of very loud BCH people criticize me for, is that I can publicly say, yeah, this part of the BSV philosophy, I like. I think they do that right. But do you believe it? Do I believe that, the, well, what do I believe? Do I believe that they can lock down the protocol or that it's a good idea to? That they will. Uh... I don't know. I, I don't I, I know. Think, I think, personally, I think you would fall into old naive Steve to believe so. I know. Well, I still haven't shaken it. No, I, I, I agree. I agree. And, and the thing is, the rhetoric is so compelling to me because I, I'm a hardcore big, big block Bitcoiner and like, I really think this technology can change the world in a positive direction. <laughs> I, I, maybe I'm sucked into the rhetoric. It's totally possible. I, it's a real possibility. The thing is, I don't see outside of a few technical areas. I don't see why it needs to be changed arbitrarily anymore. Like, I really don't think we need that many more fundamental hard fork upgrades to get a version of Bitcoin that scales. Something I, I recently had a, a discussion between some BSV supporters and BCH supporters. I was representing the BCH side. And I, was, I actually made a prediction. I don't know if this is going to be the case, but I wonder if it is. Um, uh, you reminded me of it when you said, do you think they're actually going to lock it down? I think we might see on BSV a type of a change to the protocol that allows Craig Wright to move some old Satoshi coins. So he can say, ah, look, I told you all along on the official Bitcoin, I am the one who owns the keys because I am Satoshi. And it'll be something like an invalid signature, an invalid transaction that no other network will recognize. But he's going to be like, look, I, this is the only legally acceptable blockchain. And so therefore, look, I'm Satoshi. I think that kind of, I wouldn't have thought that was even on the table maybe six months ago in the BSV community because nobody was talking about that. But as soon as Craig Wright's rhetoric changed a little bit, he was talking about confiscation and blah, blah, blah. I'm thinking, oh, okay. And maybe it's the case that we are going to see some fundamental protocol changes and all these people might walk behind Craig Wright right off a cliff. Yeah, I, that's what I see coming. <laughs> that's totally what i saw coming you know after a few debates it didn't take me long to, to find that out yeah i mean the, the thing is right i think the, the fact of the matter is there are good arguments in bch there are good arguments in bc uh bch what did i say bch in bch in bsv and btc all crypto communities most crypto communities have some good points and like uh, there's a there's a a couple of people in BSV that I really respect. I just 
think they get some fundamental things wrong, specifically with trusting the guy at the top of that system, which is Craig Wright. I think he has such this, this demonstrated track record of making a bunch of promises and then breaking them and being kind of unpredictable, a little bit crazy, that I, I can't get, I'm not nearly as enthusiastic about BSV as I could be just because I see Craig Wright as this gigantic liability, much less the moral thing. I don't think he's a particularly good person either, but that's a secondary question. Uh, BSV is a lemmings. Is a what? Well, they're lemmings. What do you mean by that? The uh, the little animal you play the flute and it follows you wherever you go. Uh, oh, okay, yeah, 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 kind <laughs> of. It's so funny too, right? Because when you listen to the rhetoric, they say the opposite of that. Like uh, the protocol shall never change. I remember when the BSV split happened. That one of these individuals who I really recommend, his name's Ryan Charles. He's he's really an excellent mind. But he was saying, okay, there is not going to be another hard fork. This is it. We're done wrong <laughs> like that, that there is going to be another hard fork it's coming in february and there's going to be another one after that so wait on what chain on bsv they're gonna they're gonna hard who's gonna do that hard fork yeah it's it's in chain they're right now they're they have a, an upgrade that's called the uh the genesis upgrade where they're making a bunch of uh hard oh, yeah. fork upgrades yeah Oh, yeah, yeah, the genesis of the yeah, and and it's like I I don't know if there's if it's gonna break the system or not. There's a bunch of unknowns there, but at, at the very least, we should be able to admit that those promises that we were done hard forking were wrong. That's mm. that is an important thing to state when everybody is so enthusiastic saying the same thing, and then they turn out to be wrong. Yeah, I you know uh, just as somebody who does a little bit in apps. I don't see a protocol being able to be locked down for in, per in perpetuity. It doesn't make sense to me, right? Well, well, also, when you think about the dynamics of the Bitcoin system, how do you intend to enforce the locking down of a protocol? If the miners, if a sufficient percentage of the miners decide that they're going to change the protocol in a particular way, it's going to change. Your little node is not going to be able to prevent that. That in proof of work systems, this is something the BTC community gets wrong. In proof of work systems, at the end of the day, the miners are the ones actually enforcing and defining the protocol, taking all on all the risks um, uh, if their if their changes fail, which is a good thing. But I don't even see a mechanism for enforcing a real uh, protocol lock. I don't know how it even theoretically be possible in yeah. proof of work systems. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That's a good point. Wow. So, okay. So let's walk through that thought, yeah, right? Yeah. So Genesis is out, mm -hmm. right? But the miners don't exactly have to update to that, right? They can sure. continue along what they've been doing, right? Well, sure. And say they do. And, and, and say for two years, there's no changes and everybody's real happy. And then some tech comes along and they go, oh, hey, this is actually going to improve things a thousandfold. We're going to make a bunch more profit if we do it this way. And then 70% of the miners agree. And then what happens? How do you lock down the protocol? <laughs> yeah. And, and that's why I say, like, I, you know, I really don't see them being able to lock down anything. I think technology always needs consistent and frequent improvements. Yeah. It's going to require human, kind of human interaction. This is also something I was not naive, Steve, of 2014. I didn't quite get how essential humans are to the functioning of the system. And it's a, it's a flaw. It's not like I'm particularly excited about the human dynamic because it's corruptible. People are foolish. They're arrogant. They make all kinds of bad decisions. And that has been demonstrated in the cryptocurrency community over the past decade. Um, but you can't get rid of them. The code mm -hmm. actually does not somehow 
is out there in the ether by itself immune from people fiddling with it. That's just not the way the world works. Yeah, I mean, in a perfect world, you'd want you'd want some stability, right? Yeah. You'd want something to be static to where the human can't come in and destroy it with his ego, right? So I get I get the purpose, I get the want, I get the need. Yeah. Uh, the how is just exactly. sidestepping me. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> it's just All right, so we totally get what's going on with that. Um we spoke on the phone what was it like a month ago, right? Something like that, yeah. And um that was when you were ready to cuss me out. <laughs> <laughs> But we had a really good conversation on the phone. You did a brain dump on me, right? Yeah. So um, I want you to, you know, do that brain dump here publicly and then allow me to just hop in at certain points yeah. uh, of of what you want to talk about, because I think you have a lot to say and expose about what's happening in BCH. So go ahead and lay that on me again. Sure. Uh, what what do you think was happening in BCH or what's happening in BTC or both? Let's go BTC first. BTC, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so it's kind of a story. I mean, I think the, the best way to explain this is to try to get the biggest picture context, not historical context, for seeing the story of Bitcoin and exactly what happened. Because a, a lot of times, especially people that are newcomers, it's hard to find high-quality information. Something that happened that I'll talk a little bit more about is around 2015, when all this censorship we were discussing happened, they also went to like the Wikipedia pages. They changed around the Wikipedia pages to change the narrative. So you think you're just getting passive, you know, impartial information on YouTube and Wikipedia. It's not the case. And even mm -hmm. people, even people that have come kind of late to Bitcoin who think of themselves as really educated might just be repeating things that were changed in the Wikipedia article, so things like that. So it's really hard to get high quality information um, when you're starting uh, uh, late. It's just, it's just hard. You have to go through archive.org and all this stuff. So I'm going to yeah. try to paint a picture for the story that you'll hear from a lot of Bitcoin Cash supporters and big block Bitcoiners about exactly what happened to Bitcoin and when things went awry. Okay. Yeah. And uh, at any point, you know, interrupt me, ask questions. I, I wrote a lot of this out when I was prepping for the the, the Paul debate. I have a bunch of information, so uh, I can't see you anymore. So, so speak up if uh, I say something you want me to unpack more. Okay. So, um, yeah, I, I think, think that uh, Paul debate was pretty good. I'm glad we have Vin on there. Paul got his ass whooped, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so there was, I, uh, I, I, I don't have too much respect in general for a lot of the names in BTC. I think a lot of the public faces in BTC mm -hmm. aren't that good anymore. Paul is great. I've just been a fan of his work for a long time. I've read a bunch of his stuff. So there's a, there's a few things. There's actually one point. Um, I, I'm sure he's not watching, but if if he were, I would want him to hear it because. Uh, uh, there's a there's a particular idea about you know oh maybe Satoshi was convinced that we should have small blocks that's totally wrong it's in his writing and I really uh, I really want to clear it up I will say um, I, I watched the Vin debate and there was one screw up that I thought was so bad but it was so funny and ironic I just want to bring it up that they were talking about. Um, Bitcoin cash at scale. And Paul was trying to say, okay, well, what is, what's the long-term vision? If, when Bitcoin cash is at scale, are we going to have like one gigabyte blocks? And Vin said something like, 
Now, oh, well, no, I don't think, I don't think blockchains can scale on the blockchain. We're going to need things like side chains and only those BSV crazies are saying we can put everything on the blockchain. That's totally wrong. Of all of the errors to make that one, I just, that one really got under my skin because that's not even a belief you're going to hear from practically anybody from the Bitcoin cash community. I can, I can give you a bunch of facts about that, but it's, there, there are two main development teams right now in Bitcoin Cash, both of whom project going to gigabyte blocks and beyond and actually scaling on chain. So anybody that okay. listened to that, that was confused by that point should know that is an extreme minority position. And it's, everybody is very explicit that we think we can scale on chain with Bitcoin Cash. Got you. Uh, so just to clarify my earlier point where I yeah. said, uh, Vin destroyed Paul. I think, uh, Vin is a better speaker. Yeah. He knows how to convey his points better. For sure. Yeah. Uh, especially on camera. Paul seems like a very intelligent dude. I yeah. Think, yeah. I think uh, I'm not I'm not Bitcoin intelligent enough to know who won the technical debate. Mm. I just know who won the debate. Yeah. Yeah. As far as conversation was concerned. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I thought. Oh, I agree with you. And this is this is why. So I, I'm not I'm not a big public personality in Bitcoin. But when I saw you put the call out, like anybody want to debate Paul, I was like, oh, that's the guy I want to debate because I, I tend to be more on the you know the you know, the, the cerebral end and like not as likable necessarily. So I thought that's my guy. Like I can we can have a real conversation. Yeah, it would have been. Some, yeah. It, yeah, that would have been a, actually you and Paul would have been a better debate because it just looked like Ben was just slapping them around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I wanted to debate some of the technical stuff, but, but yeah, no, I know I hear you. And I might try and set that up. Yeah, well, uh, that would be awesome. Um, but I, I remember when people were trying to deplatform me, somebody suggested a list of people to, to replace me and Vin was on on it. And I think I messaged you. I was like, actually, that's a pretty good list. I think everybody yeah. would do a, a, a pretty good job representing the position, maybe with one exception. So yeah, yeah, you yeah. did help me finalize that position. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so so here's the story. We, we got a the biggest picture. We have to go back kind of to the beginning. Um, and I think anybody who is going to do serious research and try to get at the bottom of these ideas will find out that Satoshi, the creator of the Bitcoin system, designed it in such a way that it was supposed to scale with block size increases. Now, I'm not saying, therefore, that's the best way to scale or that's the only way to scale, but it's important because there's a lot of misinformation in Bitcoin when people say, oh, actually, Satoshi maybe was convinced. Otherwise, no, it's very clear that the system was actually revolutionary as, as a breakthrough technology and it was designed to scale with block size increases. So there, there are two right off the bat. I want to kind of clear up two uh, points of misinformation from the BTC maximalist community. They say, oh, well, we don't have to worry about that because the lightning network and payment channels are going to solve scaling. Um, okay. That's not the case. I'll talk a little bit more detail about the problems with the lightning network. But when they talk, they, they sometimes they bring up and say, oh, Satoshi mentioned payment channels. So like maybe he was envisioning we were going to have the Lightning Network to solve scaling issues. That's completely wrong. The context in which payment channels, which is the, what the Lightning Network is built on, the context in which that came up in those early discussions was for micropayments, for payments like less than a penny, which Bitcoin isn't really well suited for. So they were discussing payment channels for those types of things uh, and not scaling. Satoshi designed the system to scale with block size increases. Um, okay, so 
the, the other point that they make that Paul makes that I wanted to clear up right now is he's got in one of his articles, he, he speculates and he's like, well, I, so you had a few people working on this Bitcoin project. Uh, one of them was Satoshi. This other, there was this other guy, Hal Finney. And Hal Finney had some worries about the block size limit and he persuaded Satoshi to put in the block size limit. And then the story goes, since Satoshi never took out the block size limit, maybe the block was always supposed to be capped at one megabyte. Okay, eh, wrong. Definitely not the case. Here's a quote that refutes that. Uh, there was a there was another developer um, in the early days whose name was Ray Dillinger, and he did a lot of the code review um, for the some of the Bitcoin stuff. I'll just read I'll just read you a quote, and it's. We'll okay. refute that point. Okay, so he goes, uh, I'm, uh, this is Ray speaking. I'm the guy who went over the blockchain stuff in Satoshi's first cut of the Bitcoin code. Satoshi didn't have a one megabyte limit in it. The limit was originally Hal Finney's idea. Both Satoshi and I objected that it wouldn't scale at one megabyte. Hal was concerned about a potential denial of service attack though, and after discussion, Satoshi agreed. The one megabyte limit was there by the time Bitcoin launched. Sounds good. And then he says, but all three of us agreed that one megabyte had to be temporary because it would never scale. So, so what's this the block size right now on B, uh, BTC Core? Well, so they've changed it from block size to block weight. Um, okay. It is, you could say, practically speaking, it's still stuck at one megabyte. They have fiddled the numbers. So it's like, let's say it's one and a half megabytes, two megabytes. It's still a, a fraction of a fraction of what it should be. And it, it's not even within the ballpark of making sense for a system that could scale globally, even with the Lightning Network, which is something I can talk about later. But that's an interesting quote because not only does he say Satoshi agreed and he agreed, he says Hal Finney himself agreed. Hal Finney is the small blocker that, uh, that the BTC community puts up and says, oh, look, the, Hal Finney, of all people, believed in small blocks and persuaded Satoshi. Therefore, you know, uh, we weren't supposed to have block size increases. This guy who actually worked on the code is saying, no, no, even Hal Finney himself thought that it had to be temporary. So cr critical point. I'll read you one more quote and I, and I no more quotes. Mm -hmm. um, where this is Satoshi, I'm sure you've heard this one. BSV people like to talk about this one a lot, but it's excellent. Um, this is a, a direct quote from Satoshi where he's talking about the network at scale. He says, the current system where every user is a network node is not the intended configuration for large scale. That would be like every Usenet user running their own NNTP server. The more burden it is to run a node, the fewer nodes there will be. Those few nodes will be big server farms. It's crystal clear. So it's fine not to like that idea and to think, oh, we could, we could do better a different way, but the system as it was designed by the guy who made it with this breakthrough technology that might be this you know, world-changing monetary fintech invention, the, the dude designed it to scale with black size increases, okay? Okay. Okay, so what happened? Why, why then, if it's so simple, uh, what happened? Okay, the, the, the nutshell explanation is that the development, the software development was taken over by people who had a radically different philosophy. And I waffle sometimes between the conspiratorial explanation that like, oh, if governments were gonna try to derail this project, this is the way they do it. I, I waffle between that and thinking it's just incompetence. It's just 100% a group of software engineers that have no connection to reality or the real world made a bunch of horrible decisions that wound up uh, radically changing BTC in a way that for me, doesn't resemble the product, the project that I got excited about back in the day. <clears throat> so I, I really don't know if it's conspiracy or or not. Um, but just for for reference, it used to be the case that way back in the day, 
uh, transactions, transaction costs of five cents were considered outrageously high. You can, you can go into YouTube and find a video of Italic Buterin, the, um, the Ethereum developer. He's talking about I don't know, smart contracts or whatever. He's talking about um, the cost of experimenting with some things in using BTC, uh, a BTC transaction. And he's like, it's preposterous that we should pay five cents for a transaction when this is supposed to be the internet of money. Five cents. So like, what the hell happened? We got for five cents, a thousand times more expensive. Some people were paying $50 for a transaction back in 2017. That demands some kind of explanation. So here's what happened. Here's at least the story I will tell. So in 2017 or so, um, Satoshi left the project for whatever reason. And he uh, handed the development keys over to a guy named Gavin Andreessen. Uh, Gavin was actually... Excellent. I still remain a huge fan of Gavin. He was a he was a unique mind in that he had the ability to kind of zoom in, like a good developer, like a or mathematician can zoom in on, on something. But he also had the ability to zoom out and see the big picture and see how everything interrelated. So he's got a bunch of good blog posts back in the day, explaining that sometimes the developer mindset can be too, way too zoomed in and and not zoom out, which is very valuable. But Gavin didn't want to be the the leader of the bitcoin project so he had these keys for the development for like the source code and he shortly after receiving uh the keys from satoshi he gave them uh, or he made copies or whatever distributed the the development power to a small group of developers that had to be work that happened to be working on the project but that small group of developers had a pretty radically different philosophy than satoshi or gavin and over time uh i think Maybe the critical error, uh, looking back, was Gavin just uh, giving development power um, to this group of individuals. So now, this group of individuals yeah. were they centralized at that time, or they? Well, it depends on what you mean by centralized. I mean, they weren't um, organized into anything formal. They weren't like a Bitcoin organization right. or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was, it was a, right. It was just a kind of a, a, a ragtag group of people that were interested in a hobby project. You know, and we're talking 2011, so the price was practically nothing. So, but I mean, when I say, did he hand select each individual to hand these keys over to? Or Gavin? did he just hand them over to a group? Mm. I think what it was is there were a, a, there's a small group of people who were actively contributing to the development of the code. And I, I don't know his exact thought process, but it was like, hey, look, all these people are active. They're involved in the project. I don't want to be the person ultimately responsible. So I'm just going to give them that, that, that type of access. Two I drops on the group. Okay. Exactly. So but I, I don't know what his specific um, reasoning process was. Right. Okay. So, so about this time, this was, I don't know, the 2013, something like that. Um, anybody that was involved in Bitcoin um, at the time businesses or uh, I would say any entrepreneur that was involved at the time who wanted to actually use this technology to make the world a better place, like use it in commerce, we all had the expectation that there was going to be block size increases. And, and in fact, it, it, first, there's some period of time scaling was synonymous with increasing the block size. There wasn't even an idea that we would have some fixed one megabyte limit indefinitely. It was just Oh, in fact, um, I have this saved somewhere. I should have brought it up. If you go to the old Wikipedia page prior to it being uh, taken over, there's some interesting discussion 
early on where they say like it, it's just in trivially obvious terms that oh well yeah back of the envelope calculation is you know we can scale with block size increases and it's going to increase centralization a bit but it's not going to be a big deal and and in fact right now even with um 32 meg block limit on bitcoin cash you can run that on your home computer no big deal I mean, it's just that it's 32 meg blocks aren't good. That's like visa level of a few years ago. That's not going to be destroying uh, anything. In fact, it's funny. It's funny because when you think of what kind of volume increase we get just going where we've gotten since going to 32 meg blocks, it almost seems like it's a, it's kind of a flaw or a weakness or a demonstration that the the network still isn't that big. Because you can run the damn software on your home computer. Like if you think about Bitcoin as trying to replace the financial industry or build a new global financial industry on top of it, the idea that some hobbyist can download a history of every transaction is bizarre. That, that doesn't, it's not something that's essential to how you think about Bitcoin. It's just kind of weird that we can even get this large scale and you can, you, we're still at the point where you can run it no problem on your home laptop. <clears throat> right. Okay. So, so we've got the expectation of block uh, block size increases. You have people um, like Mike Hearn and Gavin Andreessen warning that if we ever get to full blocks, then we're going to have problems. This transaction fees are going to spike up. People are going to have a bad user experience. There's going to be a backlog, and your transaction is not going to be confirmed. And they said, "Look, it's urgent. It's, the sky isn't going to fall if we just." increase the block size right now, we're going to buy ourselves a lot more time to maybe come up with second layer scaling solutions. But it's not, it won't be a good circumstance when blocks become full. Um, and that was, uh, that was prescient because what happened in 2017 is for the first time we had anti-adoption of Bitcoin. Because when the blocks became full and the transaction fees went crazy and suddenly it took a week to get a uh, confirmation on your transaction because the transaction fee was too low. We had companies like Steam and others that decided to drop Bitcoin integration because the user experience was terrible. They were getting angry emails from customers like, hey, I tried to buy this game and you know, it's a week later, you know, can I get my money back? And then when they when they get refunded their money back, it's minus $10 because of the transaction fees. <laughs> like who the hell is going to support that kind of game? You're buying a $5 game and you end up you know losing losing money, getting a refund because it was just this nightmare experience. Now, at the time when this was taking place, the real businesses like BitPay and Coinbase, the relevant businesses were, were sounding the alarm saying, guys, this is, this is a big problem. Like we need to scale right now or we're going to have all of these problems that, that, um, that happen. So, well, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the expectation, I think it's, it's fair to say that up until maybe 2014 or 2015, the expectation really was, well, of course, we're going to have block size increases because that's how the system is supposed to scale. Okay, so while this is going on, there's an interesting question. How is it that developers of open source software get paid? It's, it's, you think, okay, the miners get paid for securing the network. That makes sense. Users have an incentive to use the network because it's, it's cheap. It's a superior payment system. Okay. Where's the money for the developers? And Good it's probably, yeah, well, sure. And, it, and it's uh, it's one that doesn't have necessarily a clear answer. We still haven't really fully answered I this know question. The clear answer. Yeah, somebody is is uh, massaging those pockets. Well, in practice, you're right. In practice, you're right. In theory, what's the ideal solution? I'm I'm not quite sure. But 
in practice, what happened is some of these developers who had a, their own unique philosophy formed a company. They went to venture capital and formed the company Blockstream, which is, it wasn't all of the developers, but it was a large part of the, the main core developers formed their own company, raised, I don't know, $100 million, maybe more than $100 million, um, a, a lot from institutional players like the big banks. If you want to go down the conspiracy route, th there's an interesting conspiracy theory about exactly who was funding Blockstream. Okay, so you get you get $100 million, right? Um, so when you are turning around now and talking to your investors, how do you say, hey, look, that $100 million investment is going to pay off because we're going to make a profit by doing X, Y, and Z. If it's open source, where is the business model for getting your money back if you invested $100 million into a company? There's two answers. One answer is if it were possible where the blockchain couldn't scale, then maybe you could offer some kind of a service that allowed people access to the blockchain if you take a little cut. It's like if you artificially restrict the block size, hypothetically, you could say, hey, look, I know it's $50 for a transaction on BTC or $1,000 at scale, whatever they imagine. But look, I have access to the blockchain. And if you pay me, I'll, I'll eventually get your, your transaction put into the blockchain at the right time, so, just for a small fee. So it's basically like saying, hey, look, we're going to make drugs illegal. But <laughs> if you go to school and put it in pill form, we'll allow you to sell it at a much higher price. There you go. Exactly. So, so to my understanding, the company Blockstream currently offers like one product. It's called Liquid. It, it just offers excess liquidity, essentially. It's like access, special access to the blockchain where you pay them a little cut. Okay. Now, I don't think that's a coincidence that the company that wound up gaining a lot of funding from institutional players happens to be the most vocal supporters of restricting the block size that ends up putting money in their pocket. Call me a conspiracy theorist, but that it seems like maybe there's a conflict of interest there. They they don't want to increase the block size because then they won't be able to sell their second layer product. It, precisely. Now, there's another explanation, which I, I really don't know if this is true or not, which is to say, okay, let's say it's $100 million and some of this money came from big banks. Maybe, the, maybe you can make back that $100 million just by ruining the project. Like if you make Bitcoin so useless and expensive and slow, the people don't use it. They get a bad taste in their mouth because they, they have bad user experience and they end up losing money on there. Maybe we can derail alternative competition so much and uh, ruin the competition so much that on net, people will keep using our traditional banking services and we'll make up $100 million uh, kind of behind the scenes. I don't know. That's also possible. Well, another one is just governments. You know, if you want to go the conspiracy theory route, it's like, okay, Bitcoin is actually a political thing. At the highest level, it's got political economic implications. Wouldn't it be great if there was some way we could uh, destroy the community, fracture it into a thousand pieces, and make the, the technology unusable? Well, if you were some kind of nefarious government, I think you would be you would have been very smart to choose a route like financing the developers and then paying them to essentially not increase the block size. <laughs> yeah, I you know, I guess for the for the VC, I mean, at the end of the day, their money loss is, is tax deductible, right? So right. <laughs> they, really, they really don't lose any money. They have to give it out to somebody. But you know, 
the business model designed for them to get a return as a VC, right? So you look at this thing, Bitcoin, and you go, all right, there's no place, no way to get a return. So why would I invest in this business? Which means you're only investing in this business to control the business, to control an industry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and so it used to be the case that Bitcoin was seen as a way to completely get around banks. It's like a way to have your own Swiss bank in your pocket. That was a pitch we used to say. It's like a Swiss bank account in your pocket. So that is real serious competition if the technology checks out. So of course, right. established players, governments, and established banks and businesses have an incentive to either destroy the technology, slow it down, fund it at the very least to kind of get your tentacles involved in this new emerging technology. At least put your players inside. Exactly, exactly. <clears throat> okay. Mm. So uh, as, a, as a personal story too, well, I guess not a personal story, as a real life story, um, I've heard that when the Blockstream people were going around raising funds, their pitch was, we control Bitcoin. And when I heard this, at the time, I thought, those arrogant sons of bitches, they don't control Bitcoin. Nobody controls Bitcoin. But now I look back at it and go, actually, <laughs> they kind of did. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, that's okay. what I see. I see with Bitcoin. I see three cults vying for power. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's more than three, but I agree with you. What? Where's the where's the fourth? Uh, ABC and um, and uh, what's the other one? Bitcoin Unlimited? Oh, unlimited, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it depends on how broad you want to define the Bitcoin community as. I mean, I would say even in something like BSV, you've got the people, like, you've got the hardcore Craig followers, who are just who are definitely in some kind of a cult supporting Craig. You've got people who are who aren't, and I don't think everybody in BSV is in a cult. I think most of them might be, but I don't think everybody is. There are some people who just want a stable protocol to build on. They're kind of their own little faction. I mean, I think there's lots of lots of little factions um, in yeah. Bitcoin. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think the macro view, I see three big cults: BTC, BSV, and BCH. Yeah, which uh, BSV probably having the most downside and probably won't be around in a few years. Um, and a lot of people pissed off and wandering around this space when looking for a home. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, this is why I want to, I want to pitch this message because, you know, don't take anything that I'm saying as true. Do, do really deep research. And I think people will find if they keep digging, eventually the story I'm telling might actually be pretty damn accurate. And I'm telling it from the perspective more of somebody connected to the entrepreneur, the business end the business end <laughs> uh, then then maybe the, the libertarian perspective though i am myself kind of a radical libertarian um, i'm not telling it from the developer end i'm trying to say it from the people actually trying to use this damn technology this is i think what happened and 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 people in a lot of these established businesses might not say things publicly because if you do you'll be attacked by the the online mob and the trolls oh but, yeah I'm, I'm telling you, if you talk to people that have been around, especially when the scaling thing was happening, this is probably very close to the story that, that they're going to tell you. So anybody that's wandering around, you know, definitely look in, into this. Okay. Okay. So so that this is actually this is not the whole, the whole story, right? Right. So this is just one part of it. All right. So about this time, as all of this was taken, this is generally the time frame, let's say 2014 or 2015 to maybe 2017 or so. Um, this is not necessarily just an order, but um, so you've got miners who are 
uh, also very upset at the Bitcoin core developers for not doing the obvious thing and raising the block size. And they, because the power dynamics in Bitcoin are such that at the end of the day, the miners are the ones calling the shots, and that's the way it should be. They were uh, trying to find a way to increase the block size. People like Gavin Andreessen and Mike Hearn, two early uh, competent developers, were also trying to find a way to increase the block size. So what did they do? Well, uh, originally, Gavin created this alternative software <coughs> implementation called Bitcoin XT. And Bitcoin XT was just Bitcoin except with big blocks. And uh, it was gaining a lot of support, a lot of traction, obviously, because this is a reasonable thing to do. And then you wake up one day, I don't, ex I don't exactly remember when it was, but I remember, I remember reading this and on all of the main discussion platforms, this was the Reddit, this was the BitcoinTalk.org, this was, I think it was, might've been the mailing list too, like all the main information channels for people. There was an announcement. Is that anybody discussing Bitcoin XT will be banned. Bitcoin XT is an altcoin. <clears throat> and so immediately they started banning people, shutting them down, um, censoring them, even, even people like Gavin Andreessen, who was the guy that Satoshi gave the keys to originally, he was now purged from the community. And again, at the time, I just- uh, to, Wait, this is bitcointalk.org? Uh, Bitcoin.talk.org, yeah, this was, right. was yeah. Uh, oh, and it turned out after the fact that it was this, there was one guy in control of both of them. We don't exactly know who it is, as he went by the name Thamos online. But it turned out he was the guy that owned, the, essentially owned or had the, the keys to the, uh, the online Reddit, Bitcoin Reddit, and to the Bitcoin talk thing. This is one dude. <laughs> yeah, no, no, nothing suspicious there. Yeah, that's, that's true. So we see the censorship happen, see a, a whole bunch of propaganda that happened. The Wikipedia pages um, changed. Now people are saying, oh, Bitcoin isn't made for payments. Blockchains can't scale. Bitcoin isn't really for poor people. It's like complete opposite of everything, of all the momentum and all the philosophy of the a lot of these relevant players in the industry. Now they were censored and the general public, in my opinion, was propagandized. Okay, it doesn't end there. So Still, uh, miners and businesses were um, did not want the blocks to become full, and therefore we have this gigantic spike in transaction fees. We have anti-adoption. We don't want the community to fracture into a thousand pieces. They still tried to hold it together. So they came up with, uh, at one point, the New York agreement and the Hong Kong agreement. They got together and said, okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to increase the block size to two megabytes. And we're going to have this technology, this uh, segregated witness, witness technology. It's going to be, a, we're going to try to compromise between the Bitcoin core people and the big blocker people. Okay, that was the industry at one point. Um, the, almost all of the relevant businesses were supporting in Segwit 2x, even if they weren't super enthusiastic about it, nobody really was. They, we agreed, okay, this is, this is the upgrade that's going to happen. Miners at, uh, had a way to signal their support for Segwit 2x. And it was something like, I think they peaked 90 or 95% of the miners at one point were signaling support for increasing the block size, which is crazy wow. to think about. Um, so what happened? Well, why, why, why didn't it take place? Well, there were, around the time of Segwit2x, there was more gigantic uh, propaganda social media uh, campaign to attack the businesses and the individuals that were involved in Segwit2x. So they put out 
the true story, they had a they put out a lit they put out a list of the enemies of Bitcoin. Enemies of Bitcoin list, and all it all it was was a list of practically all the relevant businesses uh, in the industry who had said they support Segwit 2x, and and the kings of Bitcoin declared, oh, they are heretics. <laughs> and so my brother was actually on this list. He was uh, he was at a, a, a related. And what's uh, your brother's name? A Sam Patterson. Okay. Yeah, he's a, he's a founder, uh, a co-founder of a company that's developing Open Bazaar, which is a really cool crypto project everybody should check out. Uh, but it was just hysterical to think, like, my brother is this super calm, totally likable, agreeable guy, smart guy. You're not, you're not going to walk away from a conversation with him and be like, oh, that man is an enemy. But sure enough, he wound up on the enemies of Bitcoin list. And so this is also why when I see what's happening, what happened with me, I just... It's so funny because I'm imagining there's some list out there. There's some word doc somewhere that, that one of these BCH trolls is maintaining the new enemies of Bitcoin cash list, like the exact same uh, tactics being used. So anyway, um, they do just a, a taste of some of the stuff that they would do is if you were a company um, who supported Segwit2x, you would get waves of one-star reviews on your app. You go to the Google App Store or anything that you that you're uh, developing online, and there would be suddenly a bunch of one-star reviews. This is horrible. This person, I lost fun and money. This is a scam. If you were supporting it, it was like, oh, it's they're not supporting Bitcoin anymore. What happened to my wallet? It's not supporting Bitcoin anymore. So there, this was massive on a massive scale. All the uh, the industry players felt it. There was th there was things like um, email bombing, where they would find your company email. And then they would put you on a list where you got, you know, 10,000 spam emails every day. They just tried to make your life hell. And it was the social media trolling was insane. Um, they tried to make your life hell and sufficiently scared enough people to get them to back down. There was also some, some technical things that happened that shouldn't have happened. But I think in a large degree of the success of the anti-Segwit2x uh, 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 a campaign was driven just by bullying and intimidation, which at the time was new. Like now, if you're in Bitcoin, the idea of there being a bunch of trolls out there, like, okay, that's, that's part of the game. That wasn't the case back in the day. This was brand new. You're like, who are all these people? I didn't realize there were so many people that had a passionate opinion on Twitter about uh, segregated witness and block size increases. And it just so happens that like 90% of those people have fake profile pictures it's like you know the picture of the egg and that just so happens they were registered 30 days ago that type of thing yeah yeah um anyway so so that's what happened we had segwit2x fail uh, a reasonable question that somebody might ask is okay if things are so clear why wouldn't the core developers support a two megabyte block size increase if you could keep the community together and it's a reasonable question here's the answer this the segwit2x software was written by a guy named Jeff Garzik, who was not part of the core community. He's a guy who worked on like Android stuff. And if the community had changed to the Segwit2x software, now Jeff Garzik would be the man in control of the keys of Bitcoin development. It's that simple. Exactly. So even if they thought to themselves, well, two megabyte is trivial, they can't support the two actual two megabyte proposal because suddenly they lose their keys to the GitHub development. And now you've got VC that's giving you $100 million saying, what the hell, you guys, exactly. Like you, you control Bitcoin, what happened? Yeah. Right? So that's the explanation. Mm. All right, so so I, I I can keep going. Well, so let's take a let's take a break from that. No, I gotta take I gotta take at least a drink and All then right. I'll finish the story. You know? All right, take a drink.
we're gonna hop into this uh super chat. Shout out to Spartan Prairie. Thank you for the super chat. He says, Can you talk about FVNI, David R. Allen, um, Philippa Insinger, aka Philip 68, are sabotaging ABC and capturing Telegram discussion forums? Mm. Yeah, I had to say a couple words on it. So FVNI is a organization that funds Bitcoin Cash, uh, various Bitcoin Cash projects. Like a lot of things in Bitcoin in general, kind of mysterious, let's say. A lot of conspiracy theories. Who are these people? Where does the money come from? Um, I don't have any strong, uh, particularly strong opinion about FVN. I haven't looked into it too much. I just know that they are connected to um, funding. I don't think there's been a capture of Bitcoin ABC. Um, I have an alternative explanation of some of the stuff that's happening in ABC now. Maybe we can talk about that later. But um, yeah, I have not met David Allen, but I know he's somebody that has a large amount of influence. Maybe not too many people talk about him. He's kind of stayed behind the scenes, but it seems like he's becoming more more public lately and people are worried about him. But I can't say it much with confidence. Mm. I hope that answers your question, Spartan Prairie. Um, cleared things up for you. I don't think it did. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, uh Mr. Patterson answered that. <laughs> but um, so yeah, let's uh you want to keep going? Or? Yeah, yeah. I I got a little bit more, a little bit more of the story. All right. All right. So Segwit 2X failed. And uh, uh I would say almost nobody in the community wanted to change to an altcoin. Nobody wanted to have to have to use Bitcoin Cash and rebuild the whole all the momentum and the all the network e effects that we had in BTC but if you believe this story that I'm saying it's pretty obvious you had to do something development seemed to be captured we had this catastrophe when uh, fees became extremely high we had no evidence that anything was going to change and so Bitcoin cash was actually created as kind of a backup plan before the whole segwit 2x thing was supposed to execute um, one of the mining companies uh, created Bitcoin Cash as a fork to say, hey, look, just in case Segwit2x doesn't happen, um, this will be our backup plan. Now, strategically, part of the reason that Segwit2x failed is because for some stupid reason, they, they agreed to the following, that there was going to be the Segwit upgrade and then like, like two or three months after there was a SegWit upgrade, then they were going to, to have the block size increase. So there were several people who said, look, why don't we do this both at the same time? I mean, what happens in that scenario in which we get SegWit, but the core devs don't code in the two megabyte block, uh, uh, block size increase? And that was a good, that was a, a good worry because that's exactly what happened. We got the, the, the SegWit uh, uh, change. And then they didn't code in the two megabyte block size increase. So a, a Bitcoin Cash was a kind of a backup, just in case everything went south. And th this is where we are. This is why Bitcoin Cash was created. And this is why, actually, very shortly after um, the failure of Segwit2x, a bunch of old school people who had been in the industry came out publicly and said, look, Bitcoin Cash is the thing that I was working on. There's a there's a quote from Gavin Andreessen where he says something like, Bitcoin Cash is the project that I was working on. It's a, it's a store of value and a medium of exchange. It's supposed to be both. 
Um, and a lot, of, a lot of people I know, like Roger Veer, uh, they became a bigger supporter of Bitcoin Cash, you know, uh, uh, one of the OG entrepreneurs in the space. Um, but they just decided, okay, well, this is, this is the way it's got to be because this is the only um, way that we're going to get bigger blocks and we can actually keep using the system without these incredibly high transaction fees. So something else that happened is BTC had this huge change in the philosophy and the big picture of what the system is supposed to look like, but they inherited the ticker symbol BTC, which was huge, turned out to be you know, gigantic. I, I don't think that the reason BTC is so, so much more expensive than BCH has anything to do with technical details. I think it's entirely that they, they kept the ticker symbol. And so when new, new money and new people are coming into the industry, they think, Oh, Bitcoin. Yeah. Okay. I'll just, I'll just go to Coinbase and buy Bitcoin because that's the thing I read about. And that's what everybody's excited about. Not knowing that they're buying BTC, which is this other project. And BCH is, was the thing at the time that was trying to scale the way that uh, the software was designed to scale. Now, one way, one thing that happened at this time is people like myself were saying, look, Bitcoin Cash is Bitcoin. Like there was this phrase, Bitcoin Cash is the real Bitcoin. People didn't like that. Like, oh, you can't say Bitcoin Cash is, is Bitcoin. Actually, there's a good reason when you think about things in this context, Bitcoin Cash kind of is Bitcoin the idea. If you, if you see Bitcoin as a system, which it is, rather than just one piece of code, Bitcoin Cash is the system previously known as Bitcoin. So I can understand why people didn't like that rhetoric, where we, we would say Bitcoin Cash is Bitcoin. Um, but I, you know, I don't. I think we've moved past that. I don't think people are doing that as much. But I just kind of wanted to say that's that's pretty reasonable. There's a there's a quick. Okay, I got one more one more quote. Said I wasn't going to read you another quote, but here's more. So I saved this. This was a. I have no idea who this is. Somebody online had a, an excellent thought experiment that I thought captured the story pretty well. He says, okay, reverse the situation between BTC and BCH or between big blockers and small blockers. He says, imagine that the dominant Bitcoin had 32 meg blocks with a fleshed out scaling plan, including successful testing of gigabyte blocks. It was supported by every major crypto business project and service, and it guaranteed subsent fees and a more the merrier growth strategy for real global adoption. Now imagine some upstart group of devs forked off, reduced the block size down to one megabyte, heavily restricting transaction capacity, and created intentionally a fluctuating fee market that deliberately intended to produce long-term fees in excess of $100, intentionally driving users to a second layer system of fee-taking in government-regulated financial intermediaries they call hubs. Would would this new high fee coin see any traction whatsoever? I think it's an excellent thought experiment. It's a, just think about it. If, if the story was reversed, who is going to choose intentionally the brand new technology of the small block high fee coin that you connect to a secondary hub to access when you already have the successful alternative of the big block Bitcoin that you can act you personally can access the blockchain for a penny? I just love I, I love that. I think that's that's uh, a good thought experiment. I think that was you. Oh, <laughs> that quote is definitely in my head. Yeah. Maybe from the debates or maybe from when we spoke. Oh, yeah. No, no. I I, I told you that on the phone. On the phone, right? Okay. Yeah. Was, yeah. yeah. I thought you mm -hmm. meant that was me as and I was the person who wrote the quote, but it wasn't. No, 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 no. You yeah, told yeah. Me it was, 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so okay. One, uh, a couple more points then. Imagine you're viewing this from a project management perspective and you've got a functioning system that is Bitcoin and the blocks have yet to be full and everybody's pleased and excited. Everybody is to so much momentum around it and it's got a scaling plan that actually works. And then the, the leaders of the project decide, you know what, uh, I'm not so sure that I like this scaling plan. I think maybe we could do better by completely changing the entire dynamic of how the network operates, where we're going to have high fees and all of this stuff. And they're so confident in that system working with their yet-to-be-developed technology that is the Lightning Network that they, they explicitly stop all growth. They stop all the momentum and fracture the community into a thousand pieces just so that maybe in the future their prettier version of Bitcoin might work better with technology that doesn't exist. <laughs> like from a project management perspective, you're gonna look at that and you're gonna go, what the hell are you guys smoking? That's totally ridiculous. If you wanna make an altcoin and try that out, great. But why in the world would we take this project that has so much momentum and completely derail it to something else? Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. So that that's kind of the end, I think, of the of this historical story. I do want to just make a couple of points, and then we'll have more of a dialogue about um, the Lightning Network and uh, this idea of, of decentralization and non-mining nodes. Okay, so just just a bullet list of problems with the Lightning Network. This technology has been so oversold; it is preposterous. And the idea that that scaling was stopped so that we might eventually have this technology working function uh, functionally is just utterly ridiculous. Okay. Fun fact about the Lightning Network right now. You have to be online in order to use it. You personally have to be running a node in order to accept transactions on the Lightning Network. Or the other option is, of course, you can pay somebody else to be online for you. <clears throat> okay. So, people, so think about user, user experience. Well, the way that you know, on-chain Bitcoin works is you have an address, you just make it public, and you, and you don't have to be online in order to accept payments. Lightning Network, you or somebody you designate have to be online. Okay. Um, fun fact number two. Uh, in order to open a payment channel on the Lightning Network, you have to have an on-chain transaction in the first place. In order to even use the Lightning Network, you have to make an on-chain transaction. Well, what if it's the case that the on-chain on -chain transaction costs $50 or $100 or $1,000? Every payment channel you open and close has to access the underlying blockchain. So if you have a system in which it's deliberately designed to have high fees, there is no proposed solution to deal with the high fees to even access the Lightning Network because you have to make an on-chain transaction, which brings me to point number three. The creator of the Lightning Network, or the, the white paper, I should say, his name is Joseph Poon. And if you, if you pull up his paper and you put in, I think it's 144, you'll, you, you search for that, you'll see that the, the author of the Lightning Network white paper says that we have to get to blocks 144 megabytes in size in order to reach global adoption. That's even with people using the Lightning Network as a scaling solution. 144 meg blocks by the guy who authored that white paper. Which white paper? 
This is the Lightning Network white paper. Okay, Lightning Network white paper. Yeah, if you just Google Lightning Network white paper. It's basically advocating for bigger blocks. Yeah, 144 times bigger blocks, not just some trivial thing. So even in this like best case scenario, where somehow this, this non-existent presently technology works and everybody's using it, even at scale, this guy who wrote the white paper is saying, yeah, you would still need blocks 144 megabytes. And yet these core devs decided we couldn't go to two megabytes. Now, it's like what that the, what is the average size of the uh, of a web page? Like four megs, <laughs> Some, something like three meg. So you're talking a one megabyte block every ten minutes. It's it's not this is this is why when people were dealing with these small blockers, they'd say you guys aren't even within two orders of magnitude of being reasonable. Like you can you can agree with the small block philosophy, and there are some good properties of the small block philosophy. But a good small blocker philosophy, in order to be reasonable and global, you got to have at least a hundred meg blocks, right? Like if you're talking real global usage, I mean, maybe there could be new technology that compresses things. I'm not sure, yeah. but it's just not within the ballpark. Maybe you say, okay, hundred meg blocks we can do, but we're not going to do gig blocks. All right, you can have that philosophy. But one meg, one and a half megs with the block weight, give me a break. It's not close to reasonable. Are there, are there any security risks with the bigger blocks? Oh, with the, with the bigger blocks. Uh, it depends on what you mean by security risks. So it is definitely the case that with bigger blocks, you have a smaller amount of people that can run non-mining nodes. And this is what Satoshi in that quote was saying, that as the costs of running a node increase, the amount of people running a node will decrease. Right. And that's okay, though. So, so the other brilliant part of the Bitcoin system is called SPV. It's a right. way to scale Bitcoin such that you can validate your own transactions, but you don't have to validate everybody else's transactions by running a node. Right. A lot of BTC people don't get this. They go, oh, well, you have to run your own node so you can validate your transactions. Well, no, you can validate your own personal transactions with SPV. That's how the damn system works. That's why it was created. You just can't validate random strangers' transactions, and why would you want to? You have no incentive to do so. So, mm -hmm. But it is fair to say that there's going to be more centralization with blocks uh, that are very large. And you could see that as a security risk. This is one of the things, actually, I, I'll pay compliment to some of the BTC philosophy, is they seem to be more aware of potential potential geopolitical influence than a lot of the big blockers. Because imagine that we had, as a thought experiment, 80% of the hash rate in one country. Let's say it's communist China. It's not so clear to me, even with big blocks, that that's going to be a more secure system if you have 80% of the hash rate in one country. So I think that's a valid criticism of some of the big block arguments. The thing in response to that, I would say, um, Competent businessmen and entrepreneurs are aware of that threat, and which is why we saw uh, Bitmain, which is one of the biggest uh, Bitcoin companies, um, say that they're opening up the largest facility for Bitcoin mining in the world in Texas. This is a Chinese company. Bitmain is Chinese. They have a huge amount of the hash rate, but they are aware of these concerns. And so they're voluntarily saying, okay, look, we're going to open up a, a, a big project down there in Texas. Something similar happened uh, many years ago. One of the mining pools got majority hash rate. It was like, it was over across the 50% threshold. And they voluntarily essentially disbanded into other pools because they said, this is, this is a bad signal to have one group um, have so much hash rate. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
a couple other things just about the Lightning Network. One, Lightning Network can work perfectly fine if it works at all on Bitcoin Cash. It works better with larger blocks because you're not going to have the high transaction fees um, for making that initial on-chain transaction. So how would you, you need Lightning Network on Bitcoin Cash with Bitcoin Cash? Mm -hmm. the, the same reason that you would ever need payment channels, which is micropayments. I mean, maybe there are other reasons. Sorry? Micro, like what kind of business needs micropayments? Uh, so, for example, um, imagine that there was a new business model for content consumption where you paid uh, per second for every uh, for the videos that you're watching. So you only so, pay for the amount of time. Exactly. So right. you, you could have that denominated. So, so what if it's a really cheap video and it's like, look, I'm watching 10 seconds worth of a really cheap video. It costs me cost me half a penny. Right. So that's not that's a, the I, the the future of micropayments could be really awesome for solving problems on the Internet because we don't have, you know, the, the ad based model is not too great for content creators. If you could say, look, for every for every one of my philosophy articles that you read, it'll cost you a penny, it'll cost you a nickel. So that's that would be awesome for, in terms of monetization, because if you get a lot of traffic, uh, you can make a lot of money and you don't have to pollute crap with ads. Um, and that makes more sense with payment channel technology. So that would be, I, I'm actually well, unaware of other things other than micropayments that payment channels really make a lot of sense for. There might be some, I'm just not aware of what they are. Right. So let's say we're dealing with uh, <clears throat> content consumption. Yeah. And uh, it's a half a penny for 10 mm -hmm. seconds, right? So I guess the plus side of having some sort of lightning network solution is the fact that uh, you would connect this, I guess, lightning network uh, to said distribution channel of this content. That way you uh, aren't pulling transactions every single time you're watching content. Exactly. Yeah. Because exactly. imagine the, the transactions cost you a penny. Let's say that's what the default on-chain transaction is. Watch ten videos. You're gonna have to pay transaction fees on all those ten videos. Exactly. So yeah. if, in, instead of making one or no on-chain transactions, if you're talking real small amounts, that you're gonna be saving at the margins, and it actually opens up a whole, a whole new industry. I think can be rethought by people trying to uh, make money uh, with kind of volume. Uh, I guess you could say volume sales for their content. Because if you're, it really is different when you think of how fundamental ads and ad-based um, uh, um, revenue generation is on the internet. It's really not ideal when you think about. It. If we could get to pure uh, consumer produces and then, I'm sorry, um, producer produces, consumer pays the producer directly for exactly what they've consumed. That's just a better business model. You cut out the middleman altogether if you don't have to deal with sloppy ads everywhere. Can we can we uh, segue into a little bit of argument on this? Yeah, because I sure. hate the idea of paying for content. But I you do pay for content, though. What you do pay pay for content? You have pay with your time. What? Well, I'm talking about. I don't pay with money. Right? Yeah. So so imagine that your um, internet subscription worked differently where you're paid or you pay for exactly the data that you consume. It's not 60 bucks a month for but a certain amount no of data. Cap on it. And I could end up paying more than what I'm paying my ISP now. Well, you could, but I'm not, I'm not too opposed to that. I mean, if it's the case that I you're am. consuming, well, I mean, of course you are, but if it's I the case, know, I want to know exactly what I'm paying each month. 
Yeah, well, you can. I mean, it's not going to necessarily crowd out all use cases. I'm just saying I, I could see many circumstances in which somebody would prefer to pay, pay based on their consumption. Uh, there's a sense in which... Um, let's, let's back up a little bit then. Yeah, go ahead. If the incentive for the content creator, what's the incentive for the content consumer? Well, one, it could be cheaper. Two, you might get access to higher quality information. Like if I go to YouTube, I can access anything for free. I don't, I don't pay for shit, right? But if I go to you know one of these other networks that are on the blockchain, I got to pay. I don't consume any network on any blockchain, uh, you know, uh, app that you have to pay. I, I don't pay for content. I refuse to pay for content. If I pay for content, yeah. I'm gonna pay the a hundred thousand dollars of whatever yeah. course I'm purchasing yeah. because I know I'm gonna get an ROI on this. I'm not going to pay. Something where I don't know my ROI, where it's questionable. I think the reason that you like that philosophy, correct me if I'm wrong, is because there's so much shit quality information out there. You don't want to pay for something that's garbage. Right. Yeah. Well, so, but this is a way to, to maybe deal with that. And what if there was a way where you had better pricing? Where you could, where you wouldn't feel that there would be so much value creation on the content that you're consuming that you don't mind paying, having money spent, uh, you know, behind the scenes. You're not the one manually shipping your three dollar payment to read an article. It's just all behind the scenes, and then you're charged based on whatever you consume. And if you don't consume very much because the garbage is the the content is crap, then you're not charged very much. But if you're consuming a bunch, then maybe the, maybe the fee is a bit higher. Right, but you know, I always look at it like uh, you know the Patreon model, where I'd rather just pay a monthly fee of five bucks and I get whatever content you give me unlimited, right? Where I know how much I'm paying, and yeah, I but it's not mutually exclusive. So, I mean, I totally get that preference. But there's so think about this. Think about this from the perspective of subsidies. So right now, I I'm a pretty heavy internet user, and I pay I don't know, I think it's something like sixty dollars a month for my internet. There are, uh, I'm in a place right now where there's a bunch of old people around me and I bet they don't consume nearly as much data as I do. But right. they, let's say they'd also pay $60 a month. Right. Well, I think that's an example of, of an inefficient market pricing. It should actually be the case that I may be paying a little bit more than they're paying. They're subsidizing me. Everybody that pays the $60 a month but doesn't consume as much as I do, they're kind of subsidizing me, right? And, and which is great for me, they're subsidizing you? They're subsidizing me in the sense that the price that's set by the uh, internet company is charging that price based, uh, partially based on what the cost is to them for providing that service. Right. So but, it costs them more to provide the service to me yeah. than it does to provide the service to the old lady down the street. Right. I totally so, get that. So when we're paying the same amount, she's effectively subsidizing me because she's paying... The, the rate that she's paying no, is... I, I totally yeah. get that thought process, but yeah. that's her fault that she just wants to go online and look at cat videos, right? When she could be doing a lot more for the internet, right? Sure. So, you know, I don't think that we should change the the business model just because some people aren't using all the well, bandwidth, you know what I mean? Well, what about just having the option for the old lady to say, hey, I'm going to pay for what I consume? Yeah, then they're going to jack up the prices on guys like you and me. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe. I guess I, 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 I like to dodge my internet. <laughs> well, it's hard for me to make that argument. Uh, I, I see where you're coming from. I guess, I, I guess, I, I do see where you're coming from. I just, I'm looking at it from like a, from a systemic economic perspective, and it's more efficient for to have a system that's paid by 
based on the content that you consume rather than one flat fee. It, uh, I would say it is creating value for the society in which that uh, that is being practiced because uh, it's more efficient for the providers of the service and you get more accurate prices. Like if I go down to the store, yeah. well, well, so, so okay, new, new example. So I go down to the store and I really want some water because I'm thirsty. And I look and there's like two bottles of water there and they're $50 a piece. And I'm like, that sucks. I want that to be cheaper. And I ask the person, why are they $50 a piece? And he says, oh, well, we had somebody come in uh, a couple of days ago and they bought up all the water. Like they were, they were, they were filling their pool with bottled water. I'm going to be like, well, that son of a bitch, that's a bad use. I would prefer that he didn't do that. So I want the I want I want better from a systemic standpoint. I want there to be accurate prices for people that consume a lot pay a little bit more. People that consume less pay a little bit less. Though I recognize it's not necessarily in my direct self interest every time. Yeah, no, I get that. I so here's where I come from. I come up from a place where you know a lot of people complain. They said, "Oh, you know, we don't get paid for our tweets. We don't get paid for our Instagram content." And I'm like, yeah. "Well, don't put out shit you don't want to be free." Right. Yeah. But what if you had an option though? What if you could say, Hey, it's five cents to see this awesome tweet. Um, I wouldn't want to do that. Right. I would like, like so you got to think about a guy like me. Like I sell a marketing book for 165 bucks, right? Yeah. $167. I'm going to make my bank regardless because of who I am and because I have such a unique experience on marketing that is so non-traditional. Right. Yeah. So, if I wanted to charge you five cents for that tweet, a guy like me wouldn't do that. A guy like me would take that thought that is five cents, extrapolate it into larger form and then charge you a thousand bucks for it and use that free tweet to sell that thousand dollar product. Right. Like, yeah. I don't feel like we need to be micro transacting people on well, every single thought. It goes but, back to what Kanye says. It seems like we got to sell everything out here. Like when ideas should be just passed out for free. And if you want to sell something, buy the product, right? Well, but you are an exceptional individual with a particular business model. So let's take the comedian. You got Joe Schmo, who's got a bunch of ton of funny jokes, but let's say he's bad on stage and he's a bad writer. So he can't sell him. He can't sell a joke book. Right. I love the idea of the funny Twitter guy making five cents a, a tweet. For making a fine, I want him to have that option. I think he should be unemployed. I think he should be broke. <laughs> Why, if he's creating value for people, though, it's sink or swim. You know, I don't, I don't like this whole, you know, participation trophy type society. It's where- not participation. He only gets the money if he creates enough value for people that they pay him the five cents. Right. Yeah. It's lowering the bar. It's it's allowing him to survive when in in in, <laughs> in the old society you die. You'd have to get better. Either you either sink, yeah, or sink, right. Okay, and that's what makes men stronger. That makes the society stronger. I mean, I like that. I like, but can't we take that to the extreme too, where it's like, okay, I don't think you should have the opportunity to sell your expensive book. What? Because you, yeah, you know why? Because if you had to do it another way, you'd be stronger. You got to come up with another way. I'm, I'm being, I'm, I'm kidding, but I'm, right. I'm. I'm saying it like no sense. 
Well, yeah, but 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 I'm applying that logic. Because you have the option, right? You have the option to purchase. You don't have to purchase. You have the option to purchase. So it's the same with the with the funny guy on Twitter. You don't have to buy his tweets. Right. It's just he has that option available to him. And I like that. I like the idea of that business model. Like I, I guess I'm. I, you're you're kind of you go ahead. I think it it destroys what social media is about, right? Like. Social yeah, media. I mean, I'm not, I'm kind of okay with that. I'm not a huge personally a fan of social media I, because I've been deplatformed by the damn thing, you know? I love social media. I've always loved social media. I, you know, I'm just a guy that loves chaos. So it works. <laughs> well, uh, look, we, we have the solution, which is if the technology for micropayments exists, we'll have both options. And I don't think it's like ads are going to go completely go away. I don't think free content's going away. It's just another cool technology. To have to open up these new potential use pay cases. Five, pay five cents to read this tweet. Yeah, why not? That just seems so like trash to me. Like, like well, I okay. I so so imagine it's like ten dollars. So imagine this: we're talking Tony Robbins, and he's got all his genius ideas all the time, and he's like, "Yo, you can read my tweet, but it'll cost you ten bucks." Fuck your tweet. <laughs> He's got to have the option though, right? What about all those people that are like, damn, my life was changed by the $10 Tony Robbins tweet? Yeah, I get it. I just hate the idea of just pay gating everything now. Like everything has a pay gate. I think that people need to be savvy enough to know this is free content and this is paid content, but... I have to be savvy enough to pull you into my funnel and convert you into a buyer, not just, you know, pay five cents to read this tweet. It yeah, just I mean, there's like, there's oh. definitely something to that. I can see I I can see the truth in what you're saying. That yeah. kind of the 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 easier things are, the crappier humans we're gonna get. Something yeah. like that. I, I get yeah, that. Yeah, I get yeah, that. yeah. You know, yeah. I, I kind of want um I want the week to die out. You know? <laughs> well, that is a philosophy. Yeah. I mean, there's something to that, right? I, I definitely am persuaded by the idea that when times are really easy, you get there, there's a higher percentage of losers in the world. And sometimes that percentage of losers can become so great where it becomes like a systemic problem. I'm, I'm totally with you. Yeah. Cause I mean, your idea exists right now, right? The, yeah. the, all the hosts use uh, OnlyFans, right? Mm-hmm. And they upload content there and, and dudes pay a monthly fee to consume that content. So the business model already exists. Um, so I totally get it. Um, I just, uh, I feel like, uh, I mean, it's great for a guy like me, right? Like if everybody's running around selling shit for five cents and I'm selling shit for a hundred dollars, y'all gonna look stupid compared to me. So, <laughs> so like, go ahead and sell your shit for five cents because I'm going to undercut you. I'm going to sell better shit for free just to get people to buy my premium content. And nobody's yeah. going to want you know, so it works for guys like me. You know, I just I'm just afraid of, you know, what type of culture that starts. creating. Yeah, I mean, I, I like that approach. I definitely uh, the past several years, I've been thinking a lot more about some of the bigger picture cultural implications of economic structures. Like for a long time, I was way more focused on efficiency. I guess you could say just the pure economics of it. But um, I agree. There's definitely a different dimension here where um, economic inefficiency might not ultimately be a bad thing in some circumstances yeah yeah i just wanted to be a hard ass real quick with you <laughs> yeah so we, we didn't have we didn't get a chance to get you to debate on here yet so you debated me for about five minutes yeah right? no that's good <laughs> well so uh so i just want to say one more point then and okay. then uh, 
this is about the the whole concept of of non-mining nodes. Actually, you'll appreciate this because this is related to what we were talking about um, regarding money and uh, being a loser. So, in there's a part of the BTC philosophy is that we got to have every regular Joe running his own node and verifying the integrity of everybody else's transactions. That doesn't make any sense. And and there is no economic incentive built into Bitcoin for that to be rewarded. That this, in my opinion, and I, well, not just my opinion, I think a lot of people's opinion, the idea that nodes are this, non-mining nodes are this really important feature is a way for people who aren't actually creating very much to feel like they're more involved in the system than they actually are. Right. They, they can, the, the non-mining nodes can actually be a liability on the, the efficiency of the system functioning. If, they, if you're connected um, as a non-mining node and you have really bad hardware, you could be slowing down the network. Right. So people, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an idea that I think comes from people who aren't miners. They aren't putting the skin in the game. They, they aren't actually creating that much for the network and they want to pretend like they are. Like, oh, <laughs> like, like, like you're, you're on the vanguard, you're a knight. You there running your node on your Raspberry Pi, are, are, you're, you're a knight. I, I just, I don't find that persuasive so, and I don't think that scales. I don't I think, think that is a very capitalist system in my opinion. I think the argument is, we're talking about validating transactions, right? And the node really is only going to validate your own transactions and it's going to download the entirety of the blockchain ledger, right? So I think what they're trying to say is that you can validate your transaction, but which ledger are you validating that transaction upon if you're going SPV, right? So you could validate this transaction, yeah. but it could be validating the transaction on the wrong chain. Yeah, yeah but but why think- they want to have the entire chain to verify this is my transaction in this chain. But that's such a good point because I think it illustrates the absurdity of some of these ideas. Okay. Because that assumes that you're running SPV software that that you have no control over. That that that's that you're worried that you're going to download a wallet from a company like, you know, uh, Bitcoin.com or BitPay. These people that have every incentive in the world to provide you with high quality service, and you might wake up one day and they're going to go, you know, what? I'm just going to steal all your money. It's like, oh yeah, we're we're Coinbase. We're the well, people holding on to exactly a. To, they don't exactly have to steal it. They could have a rogue employee. I they don't could, think they, they could have a. Yeah. yeah. So so th- so this is we can go down this line of reasoning. So it is definitely possible we can create scenarios in which SPV is technically unsafe. And and in fact, a lot of BTC people say, oh well, it's got to be a trustless system. Reality check. It's not trustless. Yeah. No system is trustless. I'll give you an example. You can have you you can have the purest Bitcoin Core code, and you can be running it. You say you run that full node yourself. But how do you know that your computer chip was not uh, hacked by the government? How do you know Intel or AMD has not put a backdoor in your CPU? You have to trust that the CPU manufacturers are not corrupted by government or the, or the laptop, the people that assembled your laptop. It's like there is no way to get outside 
some level of trust in the integrity of the system. The, the, the trust is in the incentive model. You, you don't think that when you go to the store, the, the butcher is going to poison you with rotten meat, maybe not because he's a nice guy, but because he wants to make a profit. You don't think that the software you download is going to suddenly steal your money because they have every incentive in the world to make sure that does that isn't the case. Well, I can I can kind of destroy your analogy, but that's yeah. fair. Don't do analogies break down after a while. Okay, but you know, so yes, Intel could drop a back door, but uh, because that chip is local and in my home, I can actually monitor the processes of that chip. Right? Okay, I can't monitor the processes of the SPV. How, how do you monitor it though? Oh. Do you monitor it with software? What's that? How do you how do you monitor the CPU processes? Yeah, with software. Did you write the software? Maybe I did. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but that's that's my point. So, so to to code uh, something that's going to monitor an, a chip, yeah, isn't that difficult, right? Like, I'm sure a high school kid could pull that off, right? It's it's not that hard. It's just zeros and ones, right? So, I think we could we could we could demonstrate. I could commission a friend to, to write me a piece of software that's going to tell me everything my computer's doing. But then you're then you're trusting your friend. Right. Yeah, so so I think at, at some point, you have to accept that there's going to be some assumption that you're just trusting is safe, whether it's the CPU manufacturer, or maybe it's your USB drive, or maybe it's the person who assembled it, or maybe it's your internet connection. There's all kinds the of these. The yeah. difference is... Uh, I've I've had a chance to vet my friend. Like I've known this guy my whole life or blah blah blah. Yeah. blah. And you know, maybe um I had one friend and another friend develop two different pieces of software to monitor my my laptop because people actually do this to make sure their yeah. computer's not bugged, right? So I have two different friends do it, right? So I'm not trusting these friends. I could have five programmers do it and match up all these pieces of software to say, okay, yes, my chip is in fact clean. Whereas with the SPV, mm. I can't do that because the information's remote. Yeah, so I, I definitely have to trust. But even in the circumstance, well, it depends. It depends on what you mean. You definitely have to trust. So even with SPV, uh, what are you what are you concerned that is going to be the case? Like, what do you think is going to happen with SPV potentially? Um, like, you lose your funds. Yeah. How would you lose your funds? So let's say you're on a different. Say what? During the transaction. So if you're, let's say with SPV, you're on a different chain and you didn't realize that there was some fork and something happened. It just so happened that you're on a different chain. Well, that would mean your transaction would be moving coins on a different chain. Right. Which is different. You wouldn't be losing money on your own chain because you wouldn't be connected to that chain. Okay. I see your point. Yeah. So I, so even, uh, even in the scenarios in which SPV is somewhat weak and maybe compromised, I think it's a pretty damn good system. And when we so this is this this is the phenomenon we're zooming in right now and getting into technical details. When you zoom back out and you talk about okay, in the real world how people actually act, of course you're going to have some trust. Nobody's going to be coding their own CPU monitoring software, you know. And, and so so this is why when I look at SPV, I think oh that's an excellent scaling mechanism, even if it's not theoretically perfect. I think as we move into this future, you're going to have a lack of trust, and you're going to have people that are going to be monitoring what their cpu is doing for example um uh TikTok, the app uh has been um criticized as being a spy app for china mm -hmm. right so 
Uh, and then um, the United States is worried about uh, which chip manufacturers is it? I forget which chip manufacturer it is, but they're worried about. I remember um, that. Which one is it? I don't remember which one it was. I remember this happening, though, in the news. There was a big article about some little grain of rice that they saw. Is that what you're talking about? Uh, no, nah, that's not what I'm talking about. But oh, okay. I, mean, I know what you're talking about, too. Oh, yeah. Okay. But yeah, because of this stuff is coming over from China, it's so easy just for them to, you know, whatever, whatever. And then when we talk about the United States government and the lack of trust that we have with them and their agencies, I think that as we move into the future, everyone's going to become a lot more technologically advanced. The individual is is no longer, I mean, black people weren't coders, but if we were on MySpace, black people were coding on MySpace, right? You wouldn't expect black people to be coding, but that's exactly where we and we're doing a damn good job of it. But I think as as needs arise, people get better at this tech. So yeah. more people are going to be coding their software, asking their AI system to code and um, create software for various reasons. And they are going to, like, I'm, I'm, I'm searching up yesterday I was looking for spy software to see if there's bugs in my house, right? Like we're moving into that space where there's less and less trust. Now, when you say we though, how at scale, we're talking 30 years in the future. Do you think this is going to be the majority of humans have some coding ability or are you still talking about coding won't even be a thing, right? 30 years in the future, AI is going to be doing the coding, right? So, what I'm saying is that people are going to be paying attention to the tech, mm. not because they want to, but because it's going to be so, so much a part of our life where it's like, uh, like owning a, a, an iPhone right now is much different than owning an iPhone when it first came out. When it first came out, you were more of a bespoke type individual. Nowadays, having an iPhone, you know, every kid's got one, right? The same thing's going to happen in the future where certain technology that we're using now where, you know, only tech geeks have them in the future, everybody's going to have them, you yeah. know, it's going to be ubiquitous. I think there's still going to be that element of trust, even if we have AGI doing the programming, because how are you going to know the code that the AGI comes up with checks out? At the end, which is a spooky thought. I mean, we're talking about the where tech is going and and the monitoring that governments are doing in places like China, and oh man, it's creepy as shit, you know. And I I don't think that we're going to be sitting around verifying uh, artificial intelligence code. I think it's going to be a whole lot of trust going on and probably misplaced too, because I'm sure at the highest level those systems are going to be compromised in some way. You ever watch uh, Altered Carbon? Uh. -uh. Oh, you gotta watch Altered Carbon, man. What is that? Is that like a YouTube channel? It's not. It's a it's a Netflix series. Oh, um, straight up futuristic. You got bionic human parts and nice. It's distant future. You know, probably like twenty one hundred. Yeah, um, yeah. I know a lot of people are are into like the transhumanism thing, and we're we're gonna merge with with machines and that type of thing. I mean, it's already happening. To a, to a degree, yeah. The, the thing I'm interested in from the philosophical perspective is the questions of consciousness. Like, what what, I, are, what are our minds going to be like? What are they going to be doing? Are these machines going to have some you know, self-awareness? That's the kind of stuff I, I really don't have a good answer to, but it's interesting. Yeah, that's something I'm still tossing around in my mind, too, because I don't believe the, hum um, the, the machine will have consciousness. Um, yeah. It'll have awareness, but not consciousness. I think those are two different things, right? Oh, well, what do you think the difference is? This is, I have to ask. Uh, well, awareness is basically being able to observe your environment, right? Mm. Uh, consciousness is more or less, 
uh, observing yourself in that environment mm. um, and then attaching the idea of spirit to it and intuition. Mm. So it's like self, self-awareness, something like that? Yeah, self-awareness, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so like the computer will be self-aware, but what does that mean, right? Mm. Whereas a, a human is self-aware. Yeah, but what does that mean? That's the one I'm confused about too, human self-aware. Right, yeah. right. like exactly. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. You know, the, 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 the strength and weakness of human is emotion and the computer is not going to have emotion, right? So all these things are going to affect our consciousness, right? So when the computer is trying to learn what consciousness is through us, I believe the computer is going to be just mimicking consciousness Mm. and not actually being conscious. Well, so let me ask you, what do you think the difference is then between the brain and silicon? Like, why would it be that we have this extra thing? Nothing. Nothing. Do you think that in principle you could get artificial creatures that are like us that have the, the whole internal experience the same way? They'll have a brain, but they won't have a subconscious. What is the subconscious? Well, the subconscious is the thing that controls our heartbeat, controls all of our uh, functions that we don't control. Like and you don't we, think that's in the brain? Oh, no. I mean, technically, scientifically, it it lies inside the brain, right? But the thing that powers it is very much ethereal. Interesting. Oh man. So this is irresistible, right? Cause this is when now we're talking philosophy and like, so, so, you're, so you're talking about, um, you're, you're referencing something like a universal spirit, some kind of a, yes. Yeah. No, I, I feel you. Like I'm going down, going down this line of reasoning myself. I'm starting. So I don't know. Um, cause I grew up a uh, Christian evangelical in this household okay. and uh, I kind of fell away from it. And I don't think I ever became like a strict atheist or anything. I was something like a deist, but anyway, recently I've been, really persuaded by the idea that God is another way of referencing the universe as an, as like one thing as an entirety. And so I'm going through a lot of the like religious material and religious ideas and thinking, Oh, that actually makes a bunch of sense. If you just interpret God as being the universe, like for example, God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. It's like, that's kind of hard to understand if God is a person, but if God is the universe, yeah, definitely. The universe is everywhere. So anyway, I'm, I'm playing with these ideas and they're, they're crossing over into what you're talking about, that maybe there is some universal animating spirit out there. It's a cool idea. Yeah. Well, it's not something that can be explained. It's something that has to be experienced. Hmm. For example, I do this experiment and it works every single time. And I taught my kids how to use their intuition with this experiment. Right. So people watching, and I want you to do this too. You ever go to a restaurant and you know you're like oh when's my food coming right yeah okay just the other day just the other day right did the food come out directly after you say that what do you mean directly no not not directly directly okay so usually what happens is you know so my girl that that's what she does right she's 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 a pretty chick so she know naturally she's a complainer (laughs) right so whenever she says oh when's our food coming I usually look down at my watch. I said it should be here soon since you mentioned it, right? That's her intuition talking Mm. to her. She doesn't know it. Mm. So I taught it to my kids. I said, next time you ask yourself, where's the food? Don't say, you know, where's the food? Say the food is on its way. So my son, we're sitting at P.F. Chang's and my son goes, where's the food? So I just take my knife and my fork. I grab my, my napkin. I put it on my lap. And I said to my son, I said, you just did it again. The food will be here shortly. And no less than two minutes later, the lady walks out with our food. 
Now, a computer's not going to be able to do that, but a human can because we have we're connected to the universal consciousness via our subconscious mind, via the the the, the ternary of the uh, pituitary gland, the pineal gland, and the um, or the pituitary gland does most of the work, um, and the hypothalamus. So you know, I deal in mysticism, so that's a whole nother topic for the day. Yeah, but um, the, the the Gnostics back in the day never separated science and spirit they worked in tandem mm. and and i feel that the human race has gone away from that where we separate the two we yeah. separate science and we separate spirit whereas they work together science explains spirit it's the manifestation of spirit and that's one thing the machine will never able be able to possess so they'll always be able to beat us on a scientific level but when it comes down to it if we know how to access our instinct We'll beat the machine. Yeah, I, I, this is an area where I'm, I'm, I'm still exploring so much. I don't feel like I could say anything particularly great insight, but it, this is all very interesting to me. Something along this line about the the universal spirit. I was thinking about like the first cause. <clears throat> so even when I didn't have more, I guess, spiritual beliefs or whatever, I thought, okay, well, there's not an infinite regress. There's like a beginning of time. There's a first cause, there's a prime mover, maybe the Aristotelian conception of God. But the more I think about it, the more I'm thinking how bizarre it is to think that every single moment is an output of the Big Bang or the first cause. Like that first cause is still very much acting in the world. Like you could talk about the first cause as being some some mover, some being, some actor. And the, and the story is still playing out of that one thing acting over time. That's kind of trippy to think about is like, oh man, what is animating my own motion? Is it ultimately like the first cause? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> you know, yeah. these are some of the mysteries, but when I think about machines, I just, and we think about consciousness, I don't think about consciousness as uh, some people would call aware or, or self-aware, you know, or any of these other terms. Um, hold on. <laughs> what up, y'all? My bad. He's my playing Fortnite. That's funny. Um, but uh, I, I think it is stuff as uh, something that the machine just can't possess. You know, that consciousness is it's like the birds know how to fly down south because they're connected to the magnetism of the earth, which is something that humans has lo have lost. And I feel like the more we drift into technology, the further we drift away from nature. And then as machines take over, we're going to reverse back to nature, and then that's when we're going to be able to even a playing ground. Interesting. Yeah, I, the way that I, I, there's something there that I'm also stumbling into, which is something like technology separates you from reality in a way that's very maybe detrimental. I, I look at it from a philosophical standpoint. I'm trying to get the most accurate worldview and conceiving of how the world works. Yeah. And when I think about how removed the human creature is, from the rest of nature, it's it's sad. It's bizarre. It's like we live here. These we are flesh bags. Like we, we have all this meat, and we go around. You know, we're like carrying water and blood everywhere, and like rubbing our bodies against people. It's a very weird thing. And yet, that's the how the rest of the animal world operates. And yet, we're isolated in these wonderful structures, totally out of the elements. We, we will look at a screen all the time, gain information about the world by looking at a shiny screen. It's very weird. Actually, my wife is doing a bunch of health research right now. Yeah. And she had a great line 
or she's getting into nutrition and it seems like humans are very confused about nutrition. And she said something like, I don't think humans even know what food is anymore. <laughs> and if you think about it, just from a, like a, like an animalistic perspective, what animal doesn't know what food is? What have you guys done where you don't even know what food is anymore? Yeah. 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 You know, that's like uh, the people who tell me, oh, you know, there's nothing wrong with eating meat. We should be eating meat. And I go, well, we were hunter gatherers, right? It's like, yeah. So what do you think we did first, hunted or gathered? <laughs> so I don't do know. Well, if, well th think it through right now. If we if we, we plop down on this planet, right? And your yeah. stomach is growling, right? Are you going to hunt or are you going to gather first? Knowing you know nothing. You don't know how to create tools. You don't know I about don't, fire I, I don't know. I think it depends on where you are. right? So if you're in a place, yeah, like the, if you're in a place where there's Amazon. Well, I've never been to the Amazon store. I probably might eat a little frog. I don't know. See something hopping around. You chew on it. I don't know. You would chew on the frog. Right? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. It's a hard thought experiment. <laughs> I think, I think, I think uh, design denotes function. When a, when a fruit ripens, it falls off the tree. That means it's ready to eat. I think that, yeah. uh, you know, if we were to take the uh, amount of animals that we eat that are on the menu today, right, you'd have basically three, right, fish, steak, and chicken. But if we were to think about all the edible fruits that are available in the world, just the fruits, you know, you could fill up a, you know, a thousand page menu just on names alone, not even descriptions. Mm. Um, I, I believe that the, the earth is just so abundant in life uh, or, or foods that sustain life that hunting would have to come second. Mm. Right. And hunting would come as a result of luxury. So what do you think at times of like winter or really bad weather when you don't have the available access to fruit? Well, I, I don't know. Uh, well, when you have fruit, what do you do? You put it in the refrigerator, right? Yeah. All right. So, right. So if I gathered my fruit. I don't have I, a refrigerator, though. You said it's cold. Yeah, but you'd, I mean, you don't get... In the fall, when the apples ripen, there's not snow on the ground. You can't bury your. If I climb apple. the mountain, is there snow on top of the mountain? Well, maybe. What if you're when okay, you're so in the I desert? Catch my shit in in the mountain. Well, maybe there's not a mountain though. What if you're the so I'm in Arizona right now, and there's places where it's just flat prairie. It's beautiful, right. but you can't see mountains for a long, long time. Well, we're talking about uh, the Caucasus Mountains, where the Neanderthal grew. Okay, fair enough. Very much in the mountain range, right? So in the fall, you would come down and perhaps you would. Right. But you could also uh, let's say Colorado. Colorado would be hot. But in the mountains, there's snow up there. Right. So technically, I could trek back up there and put stuff in the snow. Right. Mm. And there's this also this uh, in Africa. They actually have uh, not refrigerators, but they're able to keep food underneath the ground cold. Yeah. You know about that, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't take any type of crazy technology. That's just something that they understood by ba understanding basic physics. Mm. So when you say we can't stash it because, you know, it didn't have refrigeration, it's like, well, the African tribes figure it out. I'm sure you can figure it out in the cold climate. Yeah, but don't, didn't a lot of African tribes have very high meat and blood content in their no. diets? No. no. No, I mean, you today you might have the Maasai. Maasai drink uh, cow milk and they drink uh, lion blood and mm. they'll have their share of uh, meats. But uh, uh, having meat in your diet was very much uh, 
seasonal, more for like festivities, mm. things of that nature. Mm. The animals are more so used to till the land, to mm. take the grass, right? Yeah, that's this is one area of nutrition I think is really interesting is the whole season of the, the, the seasonability of foods. Because uh, I was just talking about my, this with my wife, like we're going to the grocery store and at any point of the year, we're like, hey, could we should get some strawberries. Let's go get some berries. And then it's like, well, that's very unusual to think that at all times of the year you have access to the same very seasonal fruit. And yeah. maybe it's the case there are some like unintended consequences by eating things out of season. I don't know. You know, I don't have enough knowledge to say, but it's definitely an interesting line of thought. Yeah, it's definitely something there. There's definitely yeah. something there with that. Um, I don't want to get too off topic because we're yeah. <laughs> too late. <laughs> to like ancient civilizations, yeah, right. consciousness, yeah. uh, fruits and stuff like that. But I think the 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 point of that discussion is is the fact that uh, we're natural and machines are in very much way uh, unnatural and extensions mm -hmm. of ourselves. Um, and uh, like I saw one guy in the chat, he said he doesn't believe in the uh, the whole uh, omnipresent thing. Shout out to Black Mountain Hotep. Um, but uh, I think it's it's our disconnect from nature that that destroys us. Yeah, but, something that's been helping me on this is really just whenever you encounter a religious claim, if you just interpret God as the universe, it things really do make a lot of sense. The, uh, like um, the other attribute is uh, omniscience. God knows everything. It's like, well, maybe, the, maybe there's a person that it, the, the cosmic person knows everything. Okay. Or maybe it's the case that's a way of saying that you can't hide information from the universe. Like every right. state of the universe is itself a state of the universe. It's not like there's something that the universe doesn't know. Just think that's a cool way of interpreting religious claims. So wh whoever said that just... Maybe maybe explore that line of reasoning and see if you find it persuasive. Yeah, I mean that that's that's uh, kind of similar to the Akashic Records theory, where we're all connected to this larger, uh, I don't know, I guess you could call it a cloud computing network or Wi-Fi network, where we're all sharing data, and we don't know it, right? It's oh, interesting. I haven't heard this. Yeah, you ever heard of Akashic Records? Mm -mm. Well, every single thought in every person's mind that ever existed is available. So you can like grab onto it. And um, we all, nice. we're all sharing one common mind. Interesting. Um, you know, you, it's kind of like when you're, you're about to say something, your friend says, and he's like, I was going to say the same as that. Yeah. 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 It's because you're in pl cro uh, close proximity and you're, you're actually sharing thoughts. Interesting. Um, or if you think about smile and they call you, you know, mm -hmm. um, Again, we're venturing into mysticism. Yeah. Well, I so saw one more thing on that. I remember hearing a story. This was um, some philosopher. I wonder if it was Bertrand Russell, who was like a big time philosopher in the 20th century, who's some very prominent a atheist uh, philosopher. He tells a story that he, he just accepted he had no explanation for where um, there was, he was, I think he was with his grandmother and he was playing outside and his grandmother came out and said, you have to come inside now, you know, your, your grandfather has died. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that the grandfather had died, but the grandfather was like 500 miles away in a different country. And she had no way of, of having access to that knowledge, but she was correct in that, in, in stating that. And he was like, I don't have any explanation for how that's possible, but that happened. You know? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's exactly what it is, man. Like, uh, 
And that kind of goes back to my theory where women are a little bit more connected to the universal mind, the universal soul yeah. than men are. Um, mostly because I think women came first and then men later, you know, chicken for the egg type thing. Mm. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, you know, uh, there is something there. It's just that when we have these conversations in front of a very scientific crowd, mm. They, they'll write you off as a kook and like, oh, what is yeah. this guy talking about? Yeah, yeah. And I'm sympathetic to a lot of that. I really am. I've just heard so many stories. I mean, I, I, I know this is not the topic, but I've just heard so many stories that people I have no reason to distrust telling me these things. It's like, okay, well, maybe there's some, there's some functioning of the universe that we don't right now have access to in a scientific way. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's definitely not that hard to imagine that maybe the universe operates in a way that we don't presently understand in the year 2019. I mean, we're not really that old creatures on a cosmic scale. Give us a billion years, and I think our understanding of the universe is probably going to be a little more sophisticated in big ways. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so, so it kind of derailed us. Any other stuff you want to talk about uh, yeah, Bitcoin, so Bitcoin Cash? Yeah, I, so we went through a history of BTC. You know, let's spend the last few moments here and take me through the history of BCH and and the story of Roger Ver. Sure. Um, I mean, I can't necessarily do his story justice, but I, I have some awareness of what happened. So Roger has been uh, was an early entrepreneur and an adopter of Bitcoin. Saw because he's a economic. He's got a lot of background in economics. He saw the great promise of Bitcoin as money. You could even say big block Bitcoin because that's the one that seems to be keeping the, the fees low. And um, I think he supported Segwit2x as did almost all of the other entrepreneurs in the space. Um, and when the uh, when that failed and we had to go with a backup solution of Bitcoin Cash, I think it was just the decision that, look, we have demonstrated failure of leadership in BTC. It's not going to change. The Lightning Network does not exist. Maybe it will exist in the future. It doesn't exist in a useful way right now, in a practical way that regular people can use. So if you are an entrepreneur wanting to work in Bitcoin and you need a functional blockchain, and at the time, that's not BTC. And I, right now, I still think it's not BTC because those fundamental problems haven't been fixed at all. So that the natural jump then is to say, all right, well, we're going to go with B, uh, with BCH. And we're going to have to try to rebuild all of that network effect and all of that good will and good reputation that BTC had uh, developed over, I don't know, six years of its existence we have to now throw that out and start fresh with uh, BCH. And I'm still not sure the best approach in terms of separating Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. Like part of me, because I've been involved in this space for a while, part of me still wants to sit down and say, Bitcoin Cash is the real Bitcoin because it is kind of the real Bitcoin. But I'm not sure, practically speaking, how effective that is. So I don't know. I don't know in the, going in the future if the branding is going to go more, hey, we're actually the Bitcoin that works, or if it's going to be, hey, we're this, let's just treat us as this separate project that has solved a bunch of problems in BTC. I think the latter is probably the, the better bet. I, I would say so, probably, practically speaking. It's, that's a hard one for me to accept, though, just because I feel like it, the, the brand was stolen. You know, if I came into it late, I'd be yeah. like, oh, of course, you got to be your own project. But because I didn't come into it late, I'm like, no, those bastards took 
the stuff that we helped build. Like my, my wife worked at BitPay for a long time, which was um, the most important Bitcoin company. It was the biggest payment processor. And those people were out there building the industry from scratch. Yeah. And they were making a particular case to people on what Bitcoin is and got people very excited about it. And then the whole damn thing changed. So it's just, it's not easy for me personally yeah. to, uh, to give well, it up and be like, oh, it's some totally different project. Well, if we look at this thing as a unique value proposition, and when we're crafting unique value propositions for startups, we always follow this one rule where we don't use the competition to, uh, create our unique value prop right right um it's going to work against your interests so if you come out the gate and say hey you know we're the real bitcoin the only thing you do is uh, <laughs> open up more questions for the new consumer to go okay well what's the other bitcoin right so now they have to go and do more research and decide well do i want your bitcoin do i want the fake bitcoin because the fake bitcoin might be better than your so-called real bitcoin yeah so uh, from unique value proposition it's more about hey here's what we can do for your life right and here's how we're going to make your life better and this is your life after bitcoin cash do you think from a branding perspective that having the name bitcoin cash already puts us in the camp of being like another version of bitcoin do you think it'd be better if there was some other name well, for who for the ignorant consumer or for, for the brand yeah just for practically speaking for for the brand uh, i don't think it matters to the average consumer okay. Okay. You, you think there's enough differentiation in the brands between Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash that it it's, that doesn't matter? The average consumer doesn't know that. Doesn't know that there's three Bitcoins. Right. They don't know. They don't know that. They, so I'm saying when you're when I so I, if I'm if I'm preaching to somebody and I'm trying to recruit them for Bitcoin Cash and tell them how much value it can create for them, you you think that it's really not a big deal that it's called Bitcoin Cash? Doesn't really matter. Because I, I could, right. yeah. Because I don't know. Well, well, what could the drawbacks be? Well, the drawback would be you're already setting yourself up as being mini Bitcoin. It's like you're already giving, like you were saying, you don't want to, you don't want to say your value proposition is you're like some other product, but a little bit better, you know? So I feel like yeah, I, I don't know. Giving it a whole new name. Yeah. Brand X. Right? I'm not saying this will ever happen. I just wonder right. what your thoughts are on the, on the topic. That's interesting. Um, I come from the school of thought where the name of a product, the name of the brand means absolutely nothing. You know, mm -hmm. we all walk around drinking this thing called Pepsi. Like, what the fuck does Pepsi mean? Like, <laughs> right. you know, we we wear Nike on our feet. What the fuck does Nike mean? You know, what if it was like there was a there's a product and it's it's, you know, Pepsi smooth, but it's not Pepsi at all. Like, wouldn't that be confusing? Kind of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But OK, so that would be because Pepsi is established. So let's yeah, say right, right. The ignorant person thinks that you know Bitcoin is established, so then they look at you as Pepsi smooth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that does have some implications there. That's, that's damn. Yeah, they would look at you as like, "What are you doing, bro?" <laughs> right? It's a hard situation to be in because part of the part of the idea was we're going to call ourselves Bitcoin Cash because in the long run it's just going to be Bitcoin. The, the big block Bitcoin is going to outcompete small block Bitcoin just for basic economic reasons and it's a better system. And so I think the idea was well eventually we'll just drop the cash part. We'll just be Bitcoin again because that's what we were all along. But that has not panned out right now. <laughs> wait, wait, what was supposed to happen? It was supposed to be that we outcompete Bitcoin Core so much so that Bitcoin Core is seen as kind of irrelevant 
that doesn't, why would you choose a coin that's pretty much inferior in all ways? Would you could have something like Bitcoin Cash? Yeah. I think the idea is in the long run, when people are talking about Bitcoin, they're just going to be talking about Bitcoin Cash. Like, because the, the old Bitcoin is going to be some legacy system we don't have to worry about. I think that was part of the idea, but it didn't work out that way so uh, far. Uh, uh. So, damn, you got my wheels turning. I'm still thinking about um turn it's really hard to turn my brain off and and refocus because I got now I got like 20 different things going on in my head. Um all right, let me just discard the whole Bitcoin cash thing because the name thing, because that's just okay. Oh actually, let me just answer what what I believe should happen. Okay. I think you should just kind of like ignore that, right? And just keep going down the road with it as Bitcoin Cash and kind of put that in the back of your mind. But it is sort of a valid concern um what i'm more concerned with is the fact that uh, bitcoin core has a higher market value yeah and um how do you how do you explain that to somebody and then how do you convince somebody that you know, bitcoin cash uh can one day rival that and then also you have this other argument where people are saying oh bitcoin core is a ponzi scheme people just want to pump and dump and you know, so it's just like, all right, does market value matter or does it not? Because you can't tell me that it doesn't matter, but then you're charting BT BCH <laughs> you know, yeah. and trying to do this TA on it. <laughs> you know? No, I agree. I mean, the whole market cap thing is fascinating to see um, in the big picture. For somebody, because I, I'm telling you the truth from my perspective. This is the story as I believe it. And so it's amazing that part of that story is currently in 2019, the high fee coin that was taken over is 25 times more valuable than B BCH. That's, yeah. that's interesting to me. I think, oops, I think there's a few explanations for that. Um, one of them is the, the power of the propaganda. I did not realize that information channels are so vital to their being, let's say, a rational analysis of market prices or underlying fundamentals. I guess an analogy, this is just an analogy that popped in my head, something like what happened in the financial crisis is we saw the ratings agencies rated things poorly. So if you have a ratings agency that you trust, and they give some bond a double A. It's like, oh, okay, well, that's not really a big risk. I don't have to worry about it. Well, what happens if your ratings agency is totally corrupted? Then suddenly everybody that's making those decisions is going to be making the wrong decision. They got, they got fed bad quality information. So I think that's kind of the circumstance that we're in right now is people have been fed really bad quality information. And the fundamentals of BTC, in my opinion, don't check out. <laughs> I think if we were living in a bubble, and there was one cryptocurrency, BTC. That was it. I think it's so good, it can justify $100 transaction fees. Mm. That's not the world we live in. We live mm. in a world in which you get all of the 99% of the benefits of BTC and uh, uh, for a fraction of a percent of the cost. Yeah. So in my mind, when I'm trying to predict where the future prices are going to go, I think the prices will return to their fundamental value proposition. And when I'm looking at BTC versus BCH, I got to say, it seems like BCH is way more valuable 
in in a cryptocurrency space where there is competition. But but right now, I mean, I, I don't know. I might be wrong. I mean, maybe it's the case that BTC has just got that narrative and it's like, hey, you buy this coin and you sit on it and you can't ever use it in commerce, but the price is going to go up and you're going to make a lot of money. I mean, hell, it's worked so far. What's to say it's not going to work in the future? I just, I just have a hard time accepting that. Might be my own bias. Yeah. Well, you're not... You're not betting on the technology. You're betting on the on the hundred million dollar VC backing it, kind of in practice. <laughs> and, and the devs. This is the other thing: is it, it's it's romantic to talk about the technology separate from the humans and separate from the devs. The fact of the matter is that these devs do have a huge amount of influence. This is one of the things that I criticize publicly BCH right now. You have this wonderful decentralized development system, and yet we're seeing the same playbook play out. With Bitcoin ABC, which is one of the the main development implementations, you have the purging, the mocking, the person saying, "Well, I am the most technically competent, therefore I have I'm a good project manager and understand politics and economics," which is preposterous. I mean, that that is a problem of sufficient severity that it might it might break any version of Bitcoin. Like either, the way I envision, so if you read here, I've got. I should have done this before. Look at the pitch for my book. You read what's the big deal about Bitcoin. There, it's a you get a picture. You get a beautiful, clear picture of what Bitcoin could be, and it's kind of simple. And I think it's still possible, but it might be that that version of Bitcoin, that's the simple one in which people are are recognized. They all have mutual interests and are working to better the technology. That might completely fail and never come into existence. 100% because of something like human ego isn't taken into account. Some, yeah. some developer group says, no, no, now, now my psychological structure is built on me pretending like I'm really smart and I am smarter than everybody else. And they might run the damn project into the ground just because they, they have, you know, they're kind of protecting their egos. That's not something I really took into account when I wrote the book, but I do see that's a real systemic problem that doesn't go away when you just overlook it. Right. So then what we're dealing with is a, a war. Right. And. Uh, so, so example, right. Tell me what you think about the other day I saw BCH was trying to figure out, should they have a green or orange logo? Yeah. What's that about? Yeah. Okay. Well, look, so I'm going to get, you're going to ask me to kick the beehive and get the people trying to sting me again. <laughs> I, I'll speak freely. Um, it's preposterous nonsense and a gigantic waste of time. What I think it is, is there's this one developer who wants to insist that he is genius of geniuses. And he's right now he's having, he's happens to be one of the lead developers. He's having trouble raising funds for various reasons. And so part of what he's trying to do is convince people of his great wisdom. And he, back in the day when they were trying to come up with a logo for Bitcoin cash, he thought the logo should be orange. This was years ago. Oh, okay. And so now when he's trying, when he's, when he's attacking all these people for their stupid decisions and he knew better all along, he's going back and trying to pitch the orange logo. This is a software developer who thinks himself knowledgeable enough to even bring up his beef with the color of the logo. Uh. So I look at that, right? I look at that and, and as somebody who's not a maximalist, I think, well, that's a problem. 
Like that your lead dev is doing what? And, and, and the, like, even if the, he has these opinions, that's fine. But the idea that he's going in these development communities, these, these, these forums, the telegram channels, and he's talking to other developers and making it an issue and actually spending mental resources of his, of his own and others on mm. is madness to me. It's absolutely Is that a good point for me to say shut up and code? <laughs> you could say it. I can't say it. <laughs> well, think about how silly this is. It, it, cryptocurrency is the only industry I'm aware of in which software developers are assumed to be masters of many domains, yeah. including economic theory, political theory, strategy, business yeah. management, human relations. Yeah. Why would what, you're a computer developer? There are some people that are that that multifaceted. That's great, but the idea that just because you're good at code means you even understand the world that doesn't even follow. Yeah. I, in, in my opinion, BTC. Bitcoin Core is the greatest example of this because you had this exchange. I kid you not. This actually took place on the mailing list. Um, when uh, fees hit something like $50, there's an email from Greg Maxwell, who's a, a dev, a competent technical dev, saying, hey, let's break out the champagne because transaction fees hit this level. In his mind, he thought to himself, oh, well, that, this is a better security model. If we have super high transaction fees, that means miners will be able to make enough money so they don't have to worry about their funding. So we should celebrate that the thing trying to be a currency has $50 transaction fees and let's break out the champagne. Mm -hmm. In my mind, that is, you can't get more absurd than that. It's like, what the hell are you talking about? You're trying to create a cryptocurrency and anybody that is transacting with it has to spend $50 and you think this is something to celebrate with your friends? Like how out of touch can that particular group be? <sighs> uh, I mean, well, that's been the debate, <laughs> you know, for all the debates, you know, hours of debates I sat through definitely over nine hours, probably going on 12. Yeah. Um, and that, that, you know, that's something that, I personally is just like, yeah, that kind of sounds crazy, right? That yep. I'm, you know, and then. So the fact of these communities though, so this is something, okay. So part of my interest is in the philosophy of mathematics. I swear I won't talk about the philosophy of mathematics. I have friends that are like Steve every time, every time you give an interview, you're talking about the philosophy of math. I won't talk about it, but I'll just give you an analogy. So in mathematics and the philosophy of mathematics, there's a particular mindset and that mindset Ha comes with great qualities. Like I said, the ability to zoom in, to hyper, hyper, hyper focus on one thing. And it's a skill and it's, you could, that you could, you could explain this way. There's a certain set of assumptions that are believed. And then the mathematician, the mathematical mind is excellent at taking those assumptions and running with them and seeing what follows from those assumptions. They're excellent. That's, it takes great degree of focus and tunnel vision. Okay. They tend to be horrible at analyzing whether or not those assumptions are correct. They're great at following what, what follows from these assumptions, but not, hey, what are the, are the starting assumptions I'm working with reasonable or are they not? Does my math apply to the world or is it something that doesn't actually apply to the world? Okay, it happens in the philosophy of math. I would love to talk about it if you're interested, but you see the same mindset in a lot of these software development communities. They are truly good at creating logical systems that are built out of code, that are kind of built out of math. So a lot of correlation between math and software development. Right. Okay. They tend to be 
just embarrassingly bad at zooming out and seeing whether their big picture assumptions are correct. In fact, they're so bad, some of these individuals don't even recognize that it's possible to zoom out. They, th they think to themselves, okay, I understand this esoteric thing in coding. That must mean I'm a smart person. And if I'm a smart person, I must understand how the world works. <laughs> it's like that simplistic of a way of thinking. But but here's, here's, here's what I'm trying to say is I truly believe these people believe it themselves. They really do think they are brilliant. The Greg Maxwells who's popping champagne when transaction fees hit $50, I don't actually think that's necessarily malicious. I think that's just a kind of a pure example of somebody that is technically competent and totally clueless about anything outside of his one domain of expertise. Yeah, I saw that a lot with startups where, um, you know, so I specialize in sales, copywriting and branding and marketing. And I would uh, say one thing and then, you know, the dev guy would be like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Because <laughs> such, 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 such. And, it, and, you know, so he's got like, you know, he just thinks the world of himself because, yeah. you know, he's a genius in math, right? Yeah. And I'm like, all right, so you want to race me? How about you do this your way? You craft the email your way. I'll craft it my way. And we see who performs better. Yeah. You know, you know that I still won't get anybody that'll take me up on that competition. <laughs> <laughs> so I usually, I'm usually able to end disagreements with people by saying, well, let's roll through the experiment and I will yeah. show you how you're wrong. You think right. you understand it. Right. The problem is you're judging the world based upon yourself. And how exactly. you would react to the world, but you're not actually judging the world based upon your experience and how other people interact with the world. And here's why that mindset you've just articulated is so valuable, because you know that he could kick your ass in code. Right. And you're not going to sit there and be like, oh, no, I am the genius software. I understand everything. It's like, no, this is you're an expert in the domain. Why in the world would I pretend like that's not valuable or that you can't beat me in that in that? The difference is he doesn't, a lot of these people don't recognize that you have a unique skill set, that you can see the world and do things that he can't do. And you see things he doesn't see. You under, you have an understanding of the world that he doesn't have. And this is also part of the reason in the philosophy of math, I, I, I spent a lot of time writing about it because there's something unique about this mathematical mind, the computer, de the stereotypical computer dev mind, in which unlike almost any other area of expertise, they seem to not even recognize the validity and insight of other ways of thinking. Yes, yes, yeah. And my way of thinking is, is so bizarre, but my way of thinking is based upon real life experience. For example, um, I've worked with over nine restaurants in the front of the house, and that requires dealing with people, you know, and um, you know, everywhere from, you know, a rinky dink restaurant like Applebee's up to like, you know, mid range cheesecake factory. Right. So you get a different clientele. Yeah. And I was in sales, like I sold mortgages and I was a mortgage broker. So, you know, I've done cold calling next to stockbrokers and um, I've managed people. Um, that that type of experience alone, as well as getting suspended from high school for messing with people. Right. Because in high school, I spent a lot of time doing psychological analysis on people, like pushing mm -hmm. buttons to see, like, you know, like how far can I yeah. put you until you snap, right? Yeah. 
So I would say things to people over and over again to see, okay, where is your snap level, right? Yeah. And if I found your snap level, I could reverse engineer it and find your happy levels, right? And find out what makes you happy or what type of person you are. So I've experimented with so many people over the course of my life. And then now we got social media, which has given me access to experiment with people Mm -hmm. on a large scale. So when I come back to somebody that says, yo, this is how we're going to talk about this product. And this is how we're going to present it to people. And people go, well, you've done no market research. And you haven't looked at this. <laughs> right. like, bro, I didn't do market research my yeah. whole life. I know yeah. exactly how to promote this product. And yeah. it's, it's kind of weird because sometimes I can walk into a company and tell them exactly what they need to do. But I can't tell them then because they'll think it's not well researched. Right. So what I do is I just sit on my hands for two weeks and, yep. come and say, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's funny because you have enough experience to know that's what works. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a very clever way of, of getting your ideas out there. So I, I love to tell this story. I'm very critical of the modern academy. I'm interested in a lot of academic ideas. I just think like academia is garbage right now. I think we're in something like a dark age. I would love to talk and bring it back to the philosophy of math, but I, I, I won't. Um, but th- that is where you find a lot of the cancer actually emanates from the philosophy of math. But anyway. Okay. I love to tell this analogy of academia. Oh, you know, philosophy math that closes out, right? Yeah, dude, it, it, we'll never close out if that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I like to give the analogy with the martial arts. So I've also been involved in the martial Believe it or not, I mean, I know like I, I'm a real buff guy, but uh, I have been involved in the martial arts for a long time. And a black belt, so I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and well, you, you said you have a black belt? Yeah. And what? Ta- taekwondo. Nice. nice. This is- 1996 though so don't ask me to do nothing now. that's okay yeah. <laughs> uh, so this, this is just the most beautiful analogy and i see it everywhere i i apply it to academia but you can apply it to a, a bunch of other areas so something remarkable happened in the world of the martial arts and in, in like the 1940s 50s and 60s that had never happened before there was a a brazilian uh, a weak brazilian guy named elio gracie who learned some jujitsu techniques um, his brother actually learned them and he was too weak to do a lot of them. So he modified these techniques and created what's now known as Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. It comes from this Alia Gracie guy and techniques were spectacular. And what he did is he blasted out to the world. He said, look, I, and we will fight anybody, no holds barred, come to Brazil and let's put your ideas to the test. You think you're a, an expert in Taekwondo and karate come here, let's fight and let's see what works. And uh, the the summarized version is he destroyed a, a bunch of people. They, um, this is where we get the UFC actually was partly created from the Gracie family because of right. this, the thing that they had created. So here, here's, here's the circumstance and the analogy I like to give to the academia and to business and to other things. Prior to the Gracies and prior to what Elio Gracie did, you had these towers of knowledge built up and and their own disciplines, but the knowledge, they never talked to one another. The karate master who had been practicing for 40 years never really fought with the judo practitioner who never really fought with the Muay Thai guy. So uh, so they thought very highly of themselves and wow, man, they, they they definitely know how fighting works because they're an eighth degree black belt and they've been practicing for 45 years. And then they get in the, the real world ring with Elio Gracie, who's actually putting his ideas to the test and he crushes them. He's this weak dude and he crushes them. 
Yeah. So I see the same thing in academia all the time. There's no cross-discipline talk. You have people that consider themselves experts, and yet they have no connection to the real world. They have no connection to reality. And if they ever did touch reality, their ideas would fail. So like yeah. when you're telling the story about the you know the business people, they they are very confident that the way you come up with a marketing plan is you think about it for two weeks, and, and then I'll know you really know what you're talking about. It's like, yeah. yeah, whatever. You have no idea what you're talking about. Of course, you can intuitively figure out. You know, if the house is on fire, you you put out the house that's that's on fire. You don't have to wait two weeks to think about it. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all kind of examples like that. But I love talking about that one in the martial yeah, arts. I was I'm in my first startup. This was 2011. And um, I was surrounded by a group of women. It was Harvard, Princeton graduates. And they put us uh, on this project for social media. And they were like, all right, so I'm going to come down with my Twitter strategy. So I'm like, ah, this is right up my lane. Like, yeah. I know Twitter, right? So I start, you know, telling them like, all right, let's do this, let's do that. And they're like, no, that doesn't make any sense. You can't say that. And I'm just <laughs> like, wait, what? So one of the things was every tweet had to be uh, approved. It had to go through an approval process. So you mm -hmm. craft the tweet, put it in a spreadsheet, then somebody approves it uh, and then it can go out. Yeah. Peer the review. Problem, huh? Peer review. Peer right? review, yeah. The yeah. problem was... That's not how Twitter works. Twitter right. is very much real time. Like you got five minutes to get on this topic and tomorrow nobody cares about it. <laughs> right. So I would craft these tweets by the time it went through the review process. Then they'd say, well, how come we aren't getting an engagement? I'm like, well, technically the tweets aren't relevant by the time it goes through the approval process. Well, if they are relevant, then they should be relevant forever. And I'm just like, that's nope. Not how Twitter works. So I got in trouble one time because we were in a meeting and I said, what's your Twitter? And the girl goes, I don't have one. I said, what's your Twitter? I said, I don't have one. I said, what's your Twitter? She goes, I don't have one. I said, what's my Twitter? And they said, like, well, we found you on Twitter. Said, oh. Do I, have? I said, so who do you think the authority here? And they all got their panties in a bunch. And I'm yep. like, Yo, come the fuck on. Just listen to me, man. Yep. But this is the type of bureaucracy that, that I can see happens in Bitcoin. Absolutely. But people oh, are in that lane. It's happening right now in Bitcoin Cash. <clears throat> One of the things that I like about Bitcoin Cash is that decentralized development process. But man, there, especially this Bitcoin ABC group right now, if you are proposing some kind of upgrade and you haven't submitted it to the committee, to the group, to get group uh, affirmation and that peer review, man, they are very upset, very, very angry, very hostile, which is, of course, somebody who's outside the system and looking in, I go, well, that's a big problem. Clearly, that is not a functioning kind of uh, bureaucratic setup. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, so who is Bitcoin Cash? <laughs> who? Uh, nobody. <laughs> It's Don't just somebody is somebody. That's the most literal uh, answer I can give you. Bitcoin no, Cash is nobody. that's not an valid answer. So uh, I, if you're asking who the real relevant players are in the long run, I don't necessarily think it's those who speak as highly of themselves, and it might be, it might not be those individuals who desperately insist that they are the center of everything and everything should go through them. That's well, what I'm saying. ABC. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to name names? Is <laughs> we got ABC, and then we got Unlimited. So it might be the case that in the next year or so, we see some systemic improvements 
that help the software development process remain more decentralized. And I'm, I'm one of the reasons I'm optimistic in Bitcoin Cash is because I think it might happen in Bitcoin Cash versus other chains. So if such an upgrade were to happen, then I think, uh, I think it would be a lot healthier ecosystem. And I think people, well, I don't want to go into too much detail, but there's various reasons why people might overestimate their relevance to the health of the network. And we might be able to solve some of those problems. So I don't know if that's a cryptic enough answer for you. Where's Roger? Roger is, uh, is ABC. Uh, I wouldn't say Roger's ABC. I think he's not interested in taking sides. Roger is a, the, the entrepreneur who's trying to get a bunch of business adoption. And I know he doesn't like drama. I mean, who does as somebody who's taken a more entrepreneurial perspective. So, uh, I don't, I think what he would prefer is the drama to stop. And we focus on, uh, uh, reaching the broader world rather than internal BCH fights. He just raised a ton, a ton of money the other day. Yeah, yeah. He he, he announced a two hundred million dollar fund to help uh, the Bitcoin Cash ecosystem, and that's one of those things too. Like I, I had this, in, I had this conversation about BCH and BSV, and one of the things I was saying is, frankly, there's there's a f there's a few amount of people who have disproportionate impact and importance on any project. But especially in cryptocurrencies, like I don't care if you if you give me a thousand hardcore libertarian BCH devs, I'm going to say Roger Veer can out could positively outweigh them by like a factor of a thousand. The dude has just announced he's bringing two hundred million dollars to the BCH ecosystem. So you tell me who's who's fundamentally more relevant to an industry, is it the bring in almost a quarter billion dollars or is it the people insisting on Twitter and Telegram that they are like the smartest guy in the room and everybody should do what they say? Who, Yo, who by Roger. the way, can't even secure their own funding in some circumstances. Yo, Roger, call Hotep Jesus, man. I need some of that 200 million. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, you, you, if, you, you, if you wanna contribute to the Bitcoin Cash community, I bet there'd probably be something there, maybe a, a kind of a sponsorship. The dude's yeah. open. Yeah. I, you know, my intuition tells me to rock with Roger. Yeah. Um, my research and logical thinking tells me to rock with Roger. I don't I don't rock with technology. You know, uh, I'm not going to say, oh, this protocol is better than this and this one's better than that, because honestly, like. We're not even arguing over technology, arguing over philosophy. And then mm -hmm. at that point, when we're arguing over philosophy, it's about, well, who do we trust? to keep this philosophy intact and not compromise it. Right, exactly. Right, and it seems like Roger's the guy that probably has the most trustworthiness. So I'll tell you what, Roger, in my opinion, so this, there's some interesting story about Roger. He used to be called Bitcoin Jesus by everybody right. in the uh, Bitcoin community because he's like really soft-spoken, he's a hardcore evangelist, He's about as extreme, uh, like a good-hearted libertarian as you can get. He really desperately wants to make the world a better place. Well, it was interesting to see Bitcoin Jesus get thrown under the bus when all this censorship happened, where now they call him, oh, he's Bitcoin Judas. He's, he's trying to take over Bitcoin. It's like, no, dude, Roger has not changed at all. If there is any criticism that I have of Roger, it would be that he's too damn nice. The guy is incredibly idealistic and, and maybe too much so. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and that's a, that's just a practical, maybe a practical criticism would be if you're like I know a lot of people like this actually, 
who are so nice and may maybe a little bit too trusting in some sense that they're so blinded by this desire to make the world a better place that that they're oh, yeah like too nice something like that too nice yeah. so that that would actually be my my, my criticism i see some of that where um, i think roger might have been taken advantage of just because he's such a damn nice guy which is That's so funny because the dude is demonized as if he's some evil dude it's like bro talk to him see if you, see if you think he's an evil guy yeah, nah, from what I've seen, he seems like a nice guy, and I have just feel really bad for him, you know, from the stories I heard and just the surveying I've been doing. Um, he just seems like a really nice guy that got taken advantage of, and like you said, uh, you know, his idealism ends up turning into naivety yep. and getting taken advantage of. What's unique, though, and really exciting, in my opinion, is it's not – He's not just some idealistic libertarian that was taken advantage of. He's also a dude that just raised $200 million. He was already a millionaire before he got into Bitcoin. He tells this story where you know everybody wants to sell their Bitcoin to buy a Lamborghini. He tells the true story, selling his Lamborghini to buy Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, it was like yeah. a dollar. So, yeah. so it's not like he's, a, he's not just an irrelevant player. Clearly, he's demonstrated his competence as a real-world businessman, which is also one of the reasons I'm attracted to a lot of what he's doing because it's, it's, it's not just the nice-sounding words. It's like, no, in practice, the dude knows how to create value for people and raise a hell of a lot of money in a, in a, in a bear market too, nonetheless. Right. All right, so last question. Yeah, yeah. What do you think Roger is going to do with the $200 million and or should do if you were Roger Ver with the 200 million. Oh gosh, I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> I really have no idea. Uh, I think that I, th I, I, I don't, I'm not the right guy to ask. I think we're going to see lots of new projects and businesses spring up around Bitcoin cash. I think we're going to see a lot more merchant acceptance of Bitcoin cash, which I think is actually a pretty important metric. Um, I I'd say this too. <clears throat> It's obviously not the case that there is a funding issue in crypto. Right now, you hear it from a lot of the, well, I shouldn't say a lot, some of the BCH people that have failed to secure their own funding. They go, oh, there's just no money. There's no money for us to get paid. It's like, clearly that's wrong. That's not even close to being right. It's maybe you're not being paid because you're doing something wrong. Your signaling is bad. There's all kinds of reasons why you might not be getting paid, but a complete lack of funding in the cryptocurrency community is not one of them, right? So I, I, I don't know how much of that money is going to go towards development. I mean, I have no idea, but I would imagine that when you're dealing with that amount of money, there's going to be money for people to develop the Bitcoin Cash uh, protocol. This is also something where I think this is demonstrably superior to BSV, which is the other big block Bitcoin. Show me the $200 million fundraise that's being put into the BSV ecosystem. I don't see it. That's a very strong signal, in my opinion, for BCH. Yeah. So here's what Roger does with the money. You ready? Yeah. <laughs> Go for it. He's got a dedicated small portion to media. And uh, I, I think maybe half of the fund should go towards uh, supporting established media that's going to show BCH. And another half should be towards developing media and developing a BCH media company mm. to where we are creating media, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you need to be uh, creating movies. You need to be creating commercials. You need to be creating people. You need to be creating models, right? Then you take another portion and you run it like a presidential campaign, right? Except the president is BCH and you get a mascot for BCH 
or several mascots for BCH. And you spend the next four or five, four or five years just throwing parties. That's it. Yacht parties, like free, like fly in the craziest people like Joe Rogan, right? Like fly in Rogan and and just throw a party with Wiz Khalifa, just have weed everywhere. You know what I'm saying? And 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 turn this because really what we're dealing with is a popularity contest. Yeah, yeah, you're and right. The devs don't know how to be cool at B BTC Core. They don't know how to be cool. Nope. And 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 Calvin and um and Fig Toshi uh are so far up their own ass yeah. that they don't know how to be cool. They, they I think they do know how to be cool. It's just they've so polluted it that they're so they're so unnecessarily um uh antagonistic and burning their bridges that I don't think they pull it off as well. I mean, if you look at Calvin Ayer's Twitter feed, the dude is pretty much doing a lot of the stuff that you're describing. He's going around flying around. He's on yachts with all kinds of crap. It's going not on cool that. though. Well, it's, it's, a little more, it's more creepy than cool. I would say in his case, it's definitely creepy. Yeah. And it's deceptive. They, they don't know how to be cool. They know how to deceive. They know how right. to yeah. coerce. Right. I don't know if they I call it coercion, but I think the deception that you I think you're you're spot on there. Persuasive. They're very persuasive. Mm. They they're not afraid to lie. Right. Mm. That's different from what's the coolest event that Calvin's done this year? What's the coolest event that Craig Toshi, that fake Toshi uh did this year? I don't know. Exactly. Yeah. That's my point. Now, if I was with Roger, I could show him how to throw the party of the decade that everybody's gonna be talking about, right? <laughs> The thing is, when you think Bitcoin, you think nerds. Yeah. When you think Bitcoin, you need to think titties and Ferraris. Yeah. And and that's not what people are really thinking about, you know? Yeah. We're not um, even close to They're thinking now. Ferraris, but they're not thinking about titties. Yeah. The Bitcoin community needs more titties in it. <laughs> <laughs> this, is the, yeah. this is how the world works. Yeah. yeah. You can't show me a single brand that hasn't used titties to get where it's gotten. Yeah. I am not disagreeing with you. I mean, I, this is definitely not my area of expertise in marketing <laughs> stuff, but I, I I believe that you're correct. I mean, yeah, I, I I think it's a compelling case that you make, and I'm hopeful that we'll see something like that. I, yeah, I think, especially the media stuff, I think is already kind of in the process of happening. Where if if anything was demonstrated by the whole BTC fiasco, it's that information channels are everything. And so something smart that BSV did is they have their own front newspaper, CoinGeek, where right. it's, like, it's it's propaganda. It's like reading North Korea stuff because none of it's true, but it's very smart. We right. don't have anything like that quite in uh, in BCH yet. Right. I would I would literally take. Uh, half of the budget and dedicated to media and marketing and branding branding first like there needs to be a serious think tank about what's the branding going to be because we're talking about propaganda propaganda needs a single focus and nobody in any bitcoin community have really has a single focus um uh i think the maybe bsv has a single focus um because all they do is say big block big block big block yeah <laughs> yeah so they understand the value of propaganda. Um, I think uh, BCH community needs to understand the value of propaganda. And how, how do you do it, though? What do you I mean? So it's, it's so hard for I think a lot of the people who are in Bitcoin to think that creatively It'd be like, OK, that sounds good. But what do you what do we focus on? We're talking about money here. Well, about that's why you, that's why you hire Hotep Jesus and I uh, solve the problems for you. I hear you. Hey, you, uh, you no argument for me. 
I, I mean, honestly, what you need is people that are outside the space. You yeah. need outside opinions. So I would really like pull together. I would I would pull together a group of people that know very little about Bitcoin, but know a lot about people or I should just say America, because um, you get America on board, you get the world on board. Mm. Um, and I just pull them in a room and just turn into a, like a think tank session, you know, and 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 also an educational section, you know, because you have to educate them in order to get real opinions. Right. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, I would yeah, I mean, it, and like over the course of our conversation, I've dumped a ton, a ton of information at you. I, I don't know. I'm sure you've got some creative genius over there and how you would pull something like this off. But I'm, how, it seems so complex to me and so nuanced. It's like, how the hell do you get past all of the details that I've just thrown at you in this, you know, two and a half hour long conversation? How, how, how do you, how do you get to that other thing, which is just the pure marketing or do you not talk about this? history yeah and yeah i would say fuck all that shit you was talking about yeah. all that shit is irrelevant you know yeah. it's like it's behind us it's it's actually baggage yeah you know you you gotta sit down figure out what is your branding strategy what are you going to brand around once you know your branding strategy we can go crazy with that you know um a lot of people say oh hotel jesus got to where he is because of marketing it's like no i got to where i'm because i branded myself like you know what i'm known for you know so that's the problem with BCH is like, you know, what are you known for? Complaining. <laughs> Our brand was stolen. That's something we're known for. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it's, it's turning that ship around and, and heading towards a direction where you know exactly what you want to be. You're not even thinking about the competitors. You know, when I when I speak to a lot of startups, they always say, oh, we have to do, um, you know, we have to check out competitors. And I say, yo, there's no such thing as competitors. What you have are co-workers or cohorts or teammates. Your competitors are helping you. Every time Bitcoin Core makes a dollar, you have another potential customer. Every yeah. time they convert a customer into crypto, that's somebody you could steal. Right. Yeah, so I, you, I agree. That's that's one of the things I feel like the on road for BTC, even though I look at it as kind of a tragedy, I can see that it's going to be a hell of a lot of easier for people who already have BTC to switch it over for BCH rather than recruiting from scratch. Yeah, absolutely. So everybody's doing their work for you. You just got to take advantage of of the of the space, of the industry, of the market, mm -hmm. and and be the convincing face in front of those people. Who's got Rogan? Who's got Rogan? Nobody's got Rogan. Why is that? How do, you... how, how do we get Rogan? All right. I know how to get Rogan. I, I, I'd left. I'd love to see it. I, I have to believe you, and uh, I'd love to hear the hear with, details afterwards. With two hundred million, I could kill BSV and BTC in, in, in two years. Yeah. I don't think you can have two hundred million though. But I, I would like to seriously talk I'm to you about like Roger Ver's got it. Yeah, well, I know. <laughs> right? If I sat next to Roger Ver, I could show him how to. Matter of fact, I wouldn't even kill BTC. I'd keep him around just to keep BCH more customers. Look, I mean, you talk a big game. I, I'm a fellow businessman. I want to see that happen. Like, let's let's end this call and let's let's start talking, man. <laughs> let's get it done. Tell the people where they can find you, bro. So uh, you can see my work, Steve-Patterson.com. I got a whole mixture of Bitcoin content, to the philosophy of mine, and religious stuff. I'm all over the place. 
I got a YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash Steve Patterson. And uh, those are the main places I publish right now. Dope. Make sure y'all clue on with this guy. Really knowledgeable dude. Steve, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Not only for uh, coming on today, but being the patient guy you are when I X'd you out the debate, like, <laughs> it was very mature of you how you handled that, you know? Well, thanks. Likewise. Like I said, I've never heard of a replatforming. But that's one of the things I was like, I was consuming a lot of your content because I see you're getting into the crypto stuff. I'm like, oh, th this dude is seriously trying to figure shit out. And so when I got deplatformed, I was like, no, this is not, I was not expecting this. So I'm, I'm glad to see that I feel like it's all been corrected. Yeah, well, you know, the debate is very much so entertainment value yeah it's, yeah it's very much so how many eyes are going to be watching yeah. and vin had that strong following when i saw yeah. his following and i saw his yeah, attitude yeah. and his persona i was like yeah i gotta have this dude vin on what's well, so car. funny too I, I it's so funny because some of these people crapping on me like oh steve is an intention whore he's just looking for attention i'm like dude yeah me and my 2000 twitter followers i'm really <laughs> going hard at it you know give me a break yeah, so I, I don't blame you at all, man. I, I I totally see why you made that decision. No hard feelings, and hey, maybe we're going to be working together. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, um, they say the same thing about me. I'm an attention whore. I'm only doing this for attention. And I'm like, at least you got a hundred thousand Twitter followers, though. I'm sitting over here with two thousand people. You know, consume my content about what numbers are. I'm like, right. well, like, I mean, the thing is, like, if I was an attention whore, I'd be cut. I'd be having BSV people on. Like somebody earlier, yeah. they they literally tweeted under my tweet. They said, nobody's watching your stream because it's not BSV. If you want engagement, you'll put yeah. BSV back on. Yeah. And here's the thing. I'm going to fuck about the engagement. BSV will never be back on my platform. Yeah. Well, so I'm interested about this. I know. I know we keep, keep extending the conversation, but I'm interested in, that's a strong claim. Why do you say that? Because fuck Calvin and fuck um, Raj, um, um and uh, Fake Toshi. Fuck them. Literally, fuck them. That's personal, you know. When so when that, I, when is that because of experiences you had, or is that because personal experiences? You got to remember, uh, I spoke to Fake Toshi. Yeah, yeah. We had a conversation that disappeared into the ether after the people of BSV told me that BSV is eternal; it lives forever. So you lied to me, first of all. Yeah. Then Fake Toshi ran from me, second of all. Then Calvin trash talked me, blocked me, then trash talked me behind my back. Yeah, well, so this is interesting because I haven't, I mean, I was blocked a long time ago, but I didn't have any like public conversation with him like you had. Um, but I say, I look at this, this also came up in that conversation I had about BCH versus BSV. In the real world, fact of the matter is these personal connections matter. Yes. So the, that you had this horrible experience, you're not alone. This is right. probably the biggest obstacle for bsv is you got two people craig and calvin who are torching every single bridge that they can in the cryptocurrency space and even outside the cryptocurrency space mm -hmm. so you look at that just from pure business perspective it's like look you, you're not going to have somebody like yourself with a big following who's crushing it in a lot of ways and now he comes on the air and he says fuck bsv because fuck craig and fuck calvin that's a problem. That's obviously a branding problem. What have you guys done to make this dude that angry? I just see that as yet another reason why BCH has the, the edge in terms of big block Bitcoin, because nobody's saying that about Bitcoin Cash. Nobody's had those types of experiences that I'm aware of. Yeah, no, I haven't, you know, but it's one thing to say, you know, you don't like an individual and you still buy their product, right? So like, 
I hate Google, but I still use Google. I hate Apple and their monopoly, but I still love their products, right? So it's, you know, it's, there's nuances to this, but when we think about adoption of a digital currency that's going to control our future of money, and we have to put that trust in the hands of those two guys, oh, hell no, we are so fucked if they win. Yeah, and they're they're making promises like the protocol is locked down for eternity, and it's not, and it's going to change at least two more times. They're liars. They're blatant liars. Like uh, the thing, I don't like to shit too much on BSV. I don't like to shit too much on on any coin. But these, I see these as seriously big problems that just it, let's give the BSV people uh, um, the benefit of the doubt. Let's say they have a better technology. Okay. That's a big questionable proposition, but let's say they have the better technology. Okay. You got the better tech, but, but the only people that are, are trying to reach people in the real world are torching bridges and making enemies left and right. Where like, you've got, you've got somebody that has limited engagement with Craig and Calvin and walks away saying, fuck these guys. It yeah. doesn't even have a better technology it's like if you're a businessman you got a great technology but you can't sell it you can't market it you can't talk to people you don't even speak the same language it doesn't matter how great the tech is there's more involved than that absolutely absolutely and i think it's more or less a judge of character mm -hmm. more than it is about the individual um because it's one thing for me and you to have a bad interaction and having a fallen out you know i've had bad interactions with a lot of people that i still respect you know, um, that I wouldn't say fuck them. I would just say I don't like them or yeah. we had a bad interaction. But you know what? Their product's good, though. You know, I've I've done that with a lot of people, um, you know, like like Gab, you know, for a while. You know, I always said, yo, fuck Andrew Torba. You know, me and him had our odds, you know. But when it came down to the deep platforming of people, I was like, y'all need to support Gab. You know what I mean? I'm able to split those two out because I didn't see a character flaw in Andrew. I saw me and him had personal beef. Yeah. That's different than having a character flaw. Yeah. Calvin and Fake Toshi have character flaws. Yeah. It's and amazing you're saying that. I love that because part of the BSV philosophy is we need like ruthless shitheads in control of everything. That's really what Bitcoin needs. And there's a touch of truth to that in the sense that we need businessmen, right. <laughs> maybe people who are a little bit more connected to reality than like the softy computer devs. Right. But the idea that we're going to rally behind people that are uh, deeply flawed in terms of their character is very questionable to me. And that's another props to Roger is you're not going to ding that guy in terms of his character. If you dive underneath the surface to actually resolve a bunch of the spears that have been thrown his way, the dude is high of character. And it's interesting for me to hear you say that because I think that in my opinion, that's a very, that's a very, uh, not uncontroversial. I don't know quite the word, but to say that you're making a business decision based on character is not something you hear very much. And I, but I think you're spot on. I, I think a lot of people are rallying around um, uh, BSV precisely because there's a lack of character. And I think that's the wrong way to think about things. If you really want to be involved in an industry, that's going to grow. Yeah. Character to me is everything. You know, you could be a complete douche 
You can be a complete asshole. You can be a shrewd businessman. But if your character isn't like respectable, I can't do anything with you. Yeah. yeah. Anything, you know? And it's just weird that a so-called billionaire, like if I was a billionaire, like none of you people would matter to me, right? <laughs> like you'd just be blips on the screen. Like you talk about me and I just wouldn't care, right? But here's this Calvin guy who I've never had an interaction with. He trash talks me and I'm like, dude, I don't even know who you are, right? And he's passing judgment on me. Like, oh, this guy is just, you know, looking for attention or, you know, like, so he's passing judgment. I'm like, we haven't even had interaction yet. Then you block me because you think I'm whatever. And then you continue to trash talk me from yeah. behind the block. Now, when I block people, they don't exist anymore. It's yeah. almost as if I've chopped your head off and you know you're dead, right? You're dead to me, but not with Calvin. So it makes me think, well, is he really a billionaire? Yeah, interesting. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a funny thing too. He's responded to some of my tweets. I, I talked to some of my friends about this. It's at the very least bizarre to think that here's this very powerful billionaire with an interesting history who's like searching through people's tweets and responding to them and criticizing them, taking the time out of his busy day to criticize people on Twitter. It just seems bizarre to me. That is bizarre. Like you, you have uh, a business to run that Maybe. controls money and the future <laughs> of money. And you're on Twitter responding to some dude with 2000 Twitter followers. <laughs> yeah. Like I would, I would, you know, if I was a billionaire, I just buy you out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know what? I don't like what this guy tweets, set up a meeting with him. Let's buy him out. <laughs> you know, like it just be done. Yeah. Like money talks at a certain point. So, you know, that's why I'm going with BCH, um, BTC second. It sounds counterintuitive because I'm a counter uh, 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 equity partner in CoinBizApp.com. Yeah. We only support BTC at this point. I'd love yeah. to uh, extend it out to more coins in the future. Uh -huh. But just I'm just being honest. Yeah. I'm a Roger guy, yo. I, I think I'm a Roger guy. Cool. cool. Hey, you're not alone. That's that's an awesome signal. And so, question for you: when you when you look at the cryptocurrency industry, I don't know how closely you you are tied to it, and you and you've got the character metric. Do you do you see a lot of people who are of high character on our industry at present? In no. any chain? No. I, I so out of the debates we have, I think the highest characters I saw were Kurt and Vin. Yeah. Those yeah, I was very impressed by Kurt as well. I thought he did a good job. Yeah. Um Giacomo had high. Yeah, Giacomo's got an interesting story though. If you if you go into the backstory, you should you should ask Paul about Giacomo. Yeah, uh, yeah, he, he he he's. I don't get the impression that he is in the business of trying to really tell the truth. I know that sounds kind of pre preposterous, but oh no, but, he's um, not. Yeah, yeah, but so there's one thing where it's like when you're talking to a marketer and it's like, okay, you're stretching the truth, all right. When you're somebody who's a public figure and you're trying to educate people about this technology and you start bullshitting when you're talking about this history of BTC versus BCH, it's hard for me to look at that and say that dude's high of character. Because it's like the story I've just told you, maybe that's all wrong, but do your own research and see if you think it's correct. If the story I told you is correct, then people who are telling you the bullshit story about Roger tried to take over Bitcoin Cash, that's nonsense. That they, either they're dumb and they don't know it, or they are intentionally misleading you. And I think um, Giacomo is is in that ca camp. Did Giacomo say that about Roger? 
I don't know if Dr. Mo said anything specific about Ajra. I would, I would probably bet money that he has, though. I don't think he has. Oh, I bet he has. He, he uh, may have. He may have. I, 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 I'm totally open to be being wrong, but um, right. somebody should somebody should search through the the Twitter profile and see where there's the inevitable Roger smear. I would be shocked if it wasn't. Giacomo, uh, I look at when I judge his character, we we got to look at outside character, and then there's like the internal character that we don't see, right? So I think when I was using this uh, idea of character, we're talking about external character, mm. what's being shown, right? And Giacomo's a capitalist. Uh, how do you say his name again? I think it's Giacomo. Giacomo. It's Giacomo. I'm not sure. Yes, it is. It's Giacomo. Giacomo is uh, going to protect his interests. Mm. So I don't find that to be personally a character flaw. I think. Don't you uh, think there's a limit, though? I mean, if you've got the internal character, you think there are circumstances in which, because it benefits you to just totally lie uh, and propagandize and smear. Let's say hypothetically, I don't want to com you know commit to it, but let's say he's shat on Roger as well. You think that's all right if it's in his interest? Let's find out right now. Let's see. <laughs> let's see. If he ha what what he said, we're gonna we're gonna audit him yeah. <laughs> right now. Yeah, so right? so I think that's a good idea. But also, so let's take the hypothetical. Okay. So let's say we're not talking about Jack It's Just somebody is engaged in this kind of propagandizing, and you've got the character assessment on. You're like, well, dude's a capitalist, so I can I can excuse some bullshit. Um. Well, I don't excuse shit. Let's get that out the way. What I'm saying is that me being this intelligent guy that I am, if you come in front of me and you bullshit, I'm going to detect the bullshit, right? I don't consider that a character flaw. I consider that you to be a bullshitter, right? <laughs> now, that's subjective on what we consider to be a character flaw, right? Um, if his family's life is in danger, is that a character flaw to protect his interests? Fair enough. I, I agree. Right. There could, we can come up with those circumstances. And in fact, I wonder. It is. His, life's, his life is in danger if BTC Core goes under. Yeah, I mean, his psychology is in danger. I don't know if his life is in danger. If your psychology is in danger, your life's in danger. Well, I feel like that just justifies a lot of it. Like if somebody's got a really screwed up psychology and their ego is totally out of whack. Yeah, and they're like, man, if I if I lose this game, I'm playing playing a video game. If I lose, I'm gonna hang myself. It's like, well, you got a problem. You got to work on your psychological problem a bit, right? You know, yeah, yeah, totally, totally, absolutely. So let's see what he says about yeah. Roger. Yeah, yeah. He says, plot twist: the real reason Roger used his website to trick many newcomers into buying BCH altcoin, now BABBSV, instead of Bitcoin, and getting completely wrecked as a result was actually benevolent. Now they will be more creative. I guess this okay. includes Jihan as well. So, so he's not really kicking Rogers back in because he says it was benevolent. He thought he was oh, doing he's right insulting him. Come on, you can't take it literally. He's just insulting him. That's and that's that's well, horseshit. He's definitely insulting him, but he gives him the benefit of the doubt because he says no, it was he, he well, look, he frames it by saying Roger was trying to scam people by selling fake Bitcoin on his website. That's a bullshit it's a story. It's a trick. Okay, I I see that and I go bullshit liar. That's not what happened. It's totally misrepresenting the facts. Possibly, <laughs> possibly. But what if what if what if Giacomo's been misinformed and he's speaking from his 
level of yeah. misinformedness. Well, so I'm going to I'm going to up your question and ask you the Gnostic question. Is there any evil or is there just confusion? Uh, right? so maybe everybody's behavior can be explained that they're just confused. I actually don't know right. the answer to that. <laughs> so, then, so then what we're what we're so what we're dealing with now is the range of character. Right. Yeah. So, you know, we start at one, we start at 10, or go to 10, right? Start at one being low character and 10, right? Yeah. So I'd see Giacomo as being higher on this character scheme than, let's say, uh, Calvin, right? Yeah. Calvin's just really low. Like he's yeah. snooping people's tweets and like just doing like yeah. little dumb shit. Giacomo isn't the type of guy to do that. He's going to be the shrewd businessman. He's got a little bit more uh respectability about his bullshitness i mean maybe maybe i think you're being polite i mean i just remember living through a lot of this um, drama back in 2015 2017 and giacomo was one of those names that was coming up a whole lot just crapping on everybody and and the thing is it's misleading like when when people just flip it so you're a businessman right and giacomo comes comes around and tells his audience that you're tricking everybody and selling fake bitcoins on your website yeah, that's bullshit. He's a, he's that's not acceptable. He's harming well, your business. Well, first think? of all, Jesus, I would thank him. <laughs> you know, okay. in my book, you'll understand why. All right. Well, he's he's giving you he's mentioning you right. He's, yeah. He's yeah. And and in, and in my book, I tell you how to use that, and how to turn that back in your advantage. Right. I like that. I've actually been in this circumstance. I got in a, kind of an academic. Uh, uh, thing that happened a few years ago. It's a funny story. I won't, unless you're interested, I, oh, I can go into it. I wrote a book. I had this academic review it, did a terrible job, and then came out and said, hey, oh, he's a liar. He's a plagiarist. He's a thief. And it was like, it was this whole ordeal. But I got to kind of thank him because you know, it was great PR at the time. But that doesn't excuse the whole character thing. Like I think of this academic that was a liar. I think, fuck that guy. He does, he does scores nothing on the character scale, although he did benefit my career to some extent. Uh-oh. You know, I just set you up with a debate against Giacomo, right? <laughs> I, see, I don't know. This is the reason I wanted to talk with Paul. Because I don't, I, I was telling you this on the phone. I'm not super excited about debating BTC maximalists that are these pit bulls. Like there's a handful of them. And, and I, I put Giacomo he's in that camp. composed in how he made his points. He's very he, composed. Yeah. He wasn't a pit bull. I think so that's he, unfair. I think, I think it's two-faced, in my opinion. I think it's two-faced having lived through this, having seen what that dude has put out there online. Right. That was a polite Giacomo that was very, uh, very uh, friendly and engaging. That was not the Giacomo of 2015, 2016, 2017. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's, it's hard. There's a handful of people that would come to mind. Well, I won't bother naming them that I'd be like, honestly, I, I'm not super excited about debating them. I just don't, I don't see the, the good faith. I got, a tweet. I got a tweet right here from Giacomo. He yeah. said, when Roger is right, he is right. Okay. What was Roger saying? Roger said the IRS calling taxpayer customers is like prison calling his prisoners guests. Taxation is theft. Hashtag tax debt. How many? I I would love to. I need to do this myself. Like I feel like yeah, that's going to be a cherry pick. If it's a libertarian thing, Giacomo's great on the political theory. Well, uh, he could have said nothing. He could have completely ignored Roger, right? But he yeah. chose to say, "Yo, when Roger's right, Roger's right." Yeah, but so but I, even so the subtext, evil guy you're talking about. Even in the context of that, that, that what's the subtext? The subtext is, well, Roger's mostly wrong about everything, as we know. But when Roger's right, Roger's right. I'd say the same thing about Craig Wright. 
when Craig is right, is right. <laughs> when Craig Wright is right, he's right. He, he props to him. I just think he's wrong about all, quite a lot of things. Jack said, Greta is Roger Ver with braiding. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right? Come on. I mean, it's funny. <laughs> Yo, it's so much shit in this community. Dude, it's so, that's why I ask you. I ask you, do you see the character? Because I know the freaking answer. Being in this community for a while, there is not very many people who right. for years score very high on the character metric. I would say Roger is one of them. There are, there are a few um, other people who aren't even in the spotlight that I know from a couple of Bitcoin businesses yeah. that are like really good people, stand up. They're not looking for a bunch of attention. They're not just throwing shit because they can. They don't have psychological problems, but you don't hear about them. But that, it's a handful from my What about... um um. Ah, why am I forgetting his name? Why am I drawing a blank on his name? The dude with the big podcast, man, the BTC guy that was on my first uh, Peter McCormick. I can't say I know as much about Peter. I think he, he's more of a of a public entertainer, and I don't consume too much um, of his content. I enjoyed the conversation you you had with him. I thought it was funny. I just I don't think Peter, look, I I don't think Peter is the well. I I don't think I have a strong opinion about Peter. <laughs> well, Peter's an asshole, right? He's just like me. We're assholes, right? And we're not afraid to offend people. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think you're an asshole. I don't get any impression of you being like a bullshitter or an asshole. You might say some things that upset some people, but that's a, that's a good sign. Oh, no, I'm definitely not a bullshitter. I can bullshit. You, yeah. know, like, like, you know, I can bullshit. Don't get me wrong. My initials <laughs> are BS. You know, um, I just find that to be less fun is smacking people upside the face with the truth. Yeah. You know? Um, I, I like. I would say of the of the content I've consumed of yours regarding crypto stuff, I don't get the impression that you're sitting there bullshitting. I get the impression you're stepping on a lot of people's toes by actually talking to everybody in the industry and trying to get a well-rounded picture of what the hell's going on. That's the picture that that's the signal you're sending to me, at least yeah. as a consumer. Yeah. Well, well, that's that's definitely accurate, right? Like, I I want to get to the bottom of this thing, you know, and I don't want to go off a of hearsay i'm talking to everybody so i can kind of draw my own conclusions and and get an idea of what's happening here so i can make my financial move in the future or startup move in the future or you know what i mean and because what i'm good at is uh looking into the future and making projections on what's going to be the next thing what's the yeah. next trend and if we yeah. miss the next trend i miss out on millions of dollars you yeah know? yeah well, especially when we're talking about cryptocurrency, if anybody gets it right, man, the sky's the limit. You know, there's so much money to be made here. It's not even funny. Yeah. So I want to dive in just so I can see, you know, what's going to happen with the future of this thing. And, you know, how how, how better than to talk to all the players, you know, the the, the, the players that are involved. Um, but, yeah, you know, to answer your question, I don't see a lot of character um shinobi's cool i just see personality flaws of shinobi you know what i've seen is when the price went crazy there's the uh let's say the character of the players in the field was revealed yeah. uh, drew in a bunch of new people that are just there because they saw the price rise and they get excited and where they're just shilling their coin okay but there's a lot of people i know personally because a lot of these um connections aren't just through Bitcoin. They're also through libertarianism, libertarian political philosophy. This is like a great opportunity for libertarians to maybe make an impact on the world. Yeah. So I know a lot of these people even kind of before Bitcoin and you think you've got solid people and then there are some 
horrible shit that happened when the price went high and then you had all the factions um, divide. And then I have, I have people who <laughs> I previously had lots of respect with. They're out there publicly calling me a big socialist because I support Bitcoin Cash. This is like an old friend, you know, somebody we've had over at our place and like entertained them and had good deep philosophical conversations just turned into complete shithead because they thought, oh, I better pump my coin because now I can make a lot more money. So I, yeah. I think, I think the, I like the, I guess the, the correct way to put it is the character was revealed that you couldn't necessarily see it because there wasn't quite as many dollar signs uh, in the industry. Yeah, I, I remember getting heavy into Bitcoin. Oh, I can't even say heavy because now I consider myself heavy. But, you know, that when that boom hit and I spoke spoke to somebody and I said, uh, you know, what's your investment strategy in this thing? And they're like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pumping and dumping these ICOs and I'm getting an ICO and then I'm dumping them two days later and they're making all this money. Yeah. And they're like, yo, you need to get on it, get in on this. And I'm like, nah, that don't sound like something I want to be involved with. Like, I'm sure you're making good money doing it. Yeah. But yeah. That's not something I want to be involved with. I'm just uh, I'm dollar cost averaging, you know, like I'm just buying yeah. over time and then, you know, uh, selling at the top. And like I told people before, I was one of the lucky people to I I was lucky because I was trained in stocks by uh, this guy, uh, Nigel, who's in Canada. And uh, he got me into Thomas Soul, and he's really the one that gave me my discipline. He showed me Ray Diallo. He got me into um, Graham. So I, I come from a traditional stock market background. And uh, so when I saw Bitcoin, I had the same style. Then I saw people started branding themselves like, oh, I'm Bitcoin babe and Bitcoin John. And so when I saw that, I'm like, oh, y'all about to get wrecked. <laughs> so this is one of the other things. I get, I'm attracted to by the talk of some of the BSV people. There's actually one guy in particular I'm thinking of, this Ryan Charles individual I have a lot of respect for. He was a, a Bitcoin Cash guy. I think scores high on the character metric. Um, and he says, look, he's been in Bitcoin longer than I have. He's been in like 2011 or something. And he was like, it's very possible that all of the current players in Bitcoin are currently irrelevant. And they're all going to be outcompeted, he thinks, by BSV. Now, I'm not sure about the BSV thing, but the idea that the actual human individuals currently involved in crypto are irrelevant and maybe going to go bankrupt because they fucked everything up, I, I kind of find that compelling. I've been around, I've seen, I've talked to a bunch of people, and it's like, eh, these might not actually be the right people to bring cryptocurrency to the world. It's totally possible. Oh, it's not. These are not the people. Everybody you see today in the future, they're going to be gone. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And, and the problem is, because they're 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 it's a gift and a curse to acting as a cult, you know, to preserve their own financial interests and their own business interests. So I get that. But the problem is uh when you choose sides, you lose all your power. And um, you know, that's irrational thinking too, as we've <laughs> irrational thinking, right, right. So, you know, when I see these people playing all these culture wars with Bitcoin, I'm like, well, it looks like I'm gonna be the guy that's gonna be winning in the end because Y'all, I, I just think when it comes to thinking, my motto is uh, believe nothing, question every question, everything. So when people say, well, do you believe in this? I was like, I don't believe in shit, you know. Exactly. So therefore, my mind can move anywhere at yeah. any given moment, yeah. which makes me agile. And, and the cult leaders hate that. They hate that. They, they hate that. And that's what I'm experiencing this very moment in, B, in BCH, because yeah. I say 
I'm not a maximalist. This project might fail. I see some warning signs. I don't think there are as many competent people in this space as we really need to be competing at the global level. And they go, oh, you must be a BSV shill. You, you are hereby ostracized from the community. I'm like, y'all are making my point when you're yeah. doing this. So do you think that's a, do you think, all right, so in one aspect, I would say that's your character flaw, right? <laughs> that, you, that you voiced that opinion. Do you think it's a character flaw to not tell the truth about what you see wrong with the technology? So I got to have a weird relationship with truth, right? Somebody I'm very deeply interested in philosophy. And I try to go in my book, Square One, The Foundations of Knowledge, for anybody that's interested. I try to answer the question, like, is there truth at all? Can we have certainty about anything? If if so, how could we come to that knowledge? What could it look like? What could it tell us about the world? So that's like exploring those questions. And for me, I, I'm kind of dogmatic and I, I accept being dogmatic that I, I'm just a truth guy. I really, really hate lying. I think it makes the world a worse place. Well, what, what about the omission of truth? Is the omission of truth lying? I think it's contextual. I think it depends on the circumstance. I felt some kind of a weird ethical obligation to make that disclaimer, to tell people, hey, the thing I was talking to you about, you got excited about, I got to tell you, it's BCH. You know, so I felt some kind of obligation. Um, okay. I just, because I, I think I would have felt weird if I had left the space and omitted that. And people read my book and they say BTC and they think, oh, Steve told me about this BTC thing and it's a totally different project. But I don't know. I think it's a case by case circumstance with omission. It, it definitely is case by case because I felt the same way being involved in the Coinbase app uh, project where I told everybody to get on board. Right. And then I find out all these things about the BTC, BCH community. And I'm like, I got to tell everybody what's going on. Right. Yeah, right. I got you into this shit. Yeah. I got to get you out. Right? Exactly. <laughs> so I do agree with that. Um, in many ways, though, um, just over the course of actually, I think this Monday, I finally came to the conclusion that there's a lot I'm not going to say anymore. Mm. I'm going to stop telling people so much truth. I'm going to omit the truth um, in some circumstances. I'm only going to tell the truth once and I'm not going to harp on it, you mm. know. Um, usually before what I did was I would expose something or someone and then hammer down on it. Um, but what I found out was that uh, that actually backfires. Like mm -hmm. the truth ends up looking like a lie. Right. Because mm -hmm. you're it's like uh, imagine going into a Roman Catholic church and saying there's no such thing as Jesus. Right. There's no such thing as Mary. They were like, you heretic. Yeah. Like the truth can't survive in that type of environment yeah so at that point you have to become more strategic and make an yeah. environment conducive to the truth i mean this is a heavy topic man i, I really there's a there's a lot of personal exploration i got to do here because i have been taking uh, here's kind of my general philosophy it's been something like everybody is an idiot I, my life yes. yeah my life motto is Everybody is wrong about everything all the time. Yes. Now there, but the, the truth is that's a bit of an exaggeration, right. but only a little bit. It's like a 1% exaggeration, like 99% right. wrong about everything all the time. Um, and, but my approach has been, okay, well, fuck them. My job is to figure stuff out myself for right. myself and my family. And I do feel some obligation for anybody else that happens to stumble across my work 
you'll appreciate. I'm trying to communicate true information, but I'm not going to worry about the rest of it. I'm going to try to make sure I have food on the table, truth in my mind, and I'll let the the other people be strategic about it. Now, right. That has been my philosophy, but I, I'm not sure that's necessarily the right approach anymore. It might be, yeah, be more strategic, a bit more. It, it's something like this. I didn't realize how, it sounds rude. I didn't realize how stupid people are. I didn't realize how hierarchical mm -hmm. the, the human mind is. That mm -hmm. like, there's almost nobody thinking on planet earth, fundamentally. They're, they're, they're receptacles for other people's ideas. And then they repeat other people's ideas. Like they know what they're talking about, but that there's no independent thinking. There's like 15 people <laughs> that so are independent. For everyone else. So what? There's 15 people doing the thinking for everyone else. Pretty much, pretty right. much. And, and it's not clear to me that those thinking people are, uh, care too much about the truth, or, or I would say the well-being of other individuals insofar as they have access to truth. So for example, this is, I was talking to my wife about, my wife and I talk about philosophy all the time. I'm coming to kind of a model of the world where there are humans that roughly you can put into two categories. There are predators and there are prey. And the predators are people who understand a little bit more about how the world works and how fantastically weak human psychology is. And they take advantage of it. And I'm not condemning them. It's like, I'm not condemning the lion when he chases the gazelle and eats it, just kind of under see it, see it as a natural structure in the world. And I'm seeing humans seem to work that way, that there are a few predators who are thinking people. Mm -hmm. Those thinking people might not care about the well-being of their prey, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, in the hotel community, we got uh, Clarence 13X who started the 5% Nation Movement, and it, it operates off that same philosophy, like, you know, uh, 80% are dumb, deaf, and blind, 15% are taking advantage of them, and the 5% are altruistic, and we're the ones that's going to, you know, save humanity. Um, you know, but when we think about, for example, right, so if I got on my soapbox and, you know, I went out in the middle of Manhattan, I said, end the Fed, end the Fed, yeah. right? what, would exactly. that, what effect would that have on the yeah, world? Right. right. If I went out onto Twitter or YouTube and made that my thing, I'd probably be banned from the network. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'd get deplatformed. So did the truth work for me in that case? No, it didn't. Right. Yeah. And is and, anybody what's yeah, that? There's a sense in which you, you're stating the truth in that way might even harm the message that you're trying yeah. to communicate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then people aren't even smart enough to understand the gravity of your message. Yeah. Right. So now what you're talking about is not necessarily a battle between uh, falsities and truths. It's a battle between which voice am I going to listen to and, 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 and what's the clout that that voice has. Right. So now we're now we're in a battle of clout. Right. So you say you have two thousand followers. Right. So if me and you went at it on Twitter, I'd win just because I got the sure share amount of followers, obviously, depending on the topic, because you probably kicked my ass on the Bitcoin topic. Right. Mm -hmm. But people are going to look at these numbers. Now, Steve had, you know, the largest following and the largest podcast and the largest website in Bitcoin cash. Who do you think people would listen to? They listen to Steve because you got all the clout. Right. So really, what we're talking about here is rising in prominence. Yeah. Get to a point where you're so high that people will now listen to you. Okay. Yes, but here's here's the 
where the rug gets pulled out from underneath you. Okay. I don't think it's the case that almost anybody that has real clout knows what the fuck they're talking about on any subject matter. I say this, this was very a big surprise to me when I started researching academic ideas. You kind of have the assumption that- well, You don't have to. Well, you don't have to. I mean, I, the whole point in right the whole point in rising to prominence is the fact that you're talking to NPCs, so you don't have to. In fact, if you know what you're talking about, it'll probably hurt you from rising. Exactly. They won't just, understand you. Well, exactly. But that, but this is the this is the the puzzle. What do you do when you have that insight that if you want to positively impact the world or just impact the world or you want to increase your your level of influence, you kind of have to play a game that is a very different game than trying to figure out how the world actually works mm -hmm. and maybe um, like acting in the world. Mm -hmm. There's a, like in ac academia is just this wonderful circumstance where there are very prominent academics who have published in all the peer reviewed journals that don't know the fundamentals of their own subject matter. And I'm not exaggerating because when I'm talking fundamentals, I'm not saying, oh, you read the book in undergrad and now you know what you're talking about. I'm talking about actually going down to the fundamental concepts of the discipline. Mathematics is, of course, my pet example. Like, What are numbers? How many mathematicians actually know what numbers are? Right. And how many of them have actually thought about it? Because believe it or not, depending on what you think numbers are, you get different structures of mathematics. If numbers are objects of the mind. You get one particular mathematical construction. I think numbers are out there in the world. You get a different mathematical construction. And damn, I just violated my promise. I'm talking about the philosophy of math. Sorry, how did I It was inevitable. <laughs> the, the point is, the vast majority of mathematicians have not seriously thought about this. They have imported assumptions that have developed in the discipline across time. So you might have the genius level, you know, person that has the the academic equivalent of all the Twitter followers. And they're not going to know, they're truly not going to have even explored the basics of their own subject matter. So what do you do when you have, when you, when you have that belief? Do you think, okay, well, I want to act in the world and play the game. Or do you think, well, screw all of it. I'm going to do my own thing and the kind of limited engagement with the world and not bother myself with it. Like I waffle all the time between you these two. You do both. That's what you, Hotep Jesus did. I dumb, yeah. I literally... Like people don't even understand like how I how I got to the hundred thousand followers and how I got to Joe Rogan, right? Prior to the big rise, I was telling people how the world works, right? I was telling people the truth about how the world works and how this person got to where they got and how this person got to where they got and what you got to do with it, right? And then one day I said, you know what? I'm actually gonna do this shit and show people how it's done. Yeah. So for the entirety of 20, what's this, 2019? The entirety of 2018, I dumbed myself down to the MPC level and rose to prominence by dumbing myself down. You see that? How do, how do you deal with that though? How, how do you not look at the world and go, well, that's disgusting and just and just be like, eh, I'm not gonna do anything with it. Why Why engage? Well, well- Just the fun well, of it? Well, that that's not, that's a that's a matter of discipline. Just because something happens in the world doesn't mean it has to affect you emotionally. Doesn't mean it needs your input. So when you say you dumbed yourself down to the NPC level and then you self-reflect, do you think like, I'm, this is shitty that I had to do this? Or do you think, hey, I'm actually crushing the game right now and this is really satisfying? Both. Mm. 
both. Like, I'm, I, it's, I'm not upset at myself. I'm just like, you either understand the world or you don't. If you understand how the world works, you can operate in such a manner that it works, that is conducive to your success, right? Mm. Now you could fight against what you believe <laughs> the world is like, just because people are dumb doesn't mean we could treat them dumb, right? Yeah. It's altruistic thinking, right? Yeah. And I used to think like that in my 20s and in my 30s. And yeah. as I turn 40 next year, my mind is very much so, man, these motherfuckers are NPCs out here. Yeah. So why am I trying to kill myself to... Okay. I'm going to ask you the hardest question ever. Right. I got a buddy of mine. We talk on Voxer. I don't know if you use that app. It's I like, Voxer. Yeah, so... We talk about some of these philosophical things. I was bothering because I'm asking these horribly hard life questions I can't sort out, but maybe I can get some wisdom from you. Okay. So this is the the problem I can't I can't solve and it drives me nuts. Okay. It would be easy for me to be like, all right, these guys are NPCs. What am I doing wasting my time? Except I think to myself, I bet they can be fixed. Like I bet they can or they can't. Can. But that, that's the thing that kills me because then I think, well, then I got to fix. That's the problem I got to fix. And right. so I get sucked back into it. Right. That, well, that's that's not even a problem. See, the, the solution to every problem lies within the problem. So therefore, there's no problem. The problem is that they're NPCs, right? The truth yeah. is NPCs, all they need is information. But the problem is you're not important enough for people to accept your information, right? So yeah. if you're not important. But that's not quite right, though, because the problem is that their judgment of the information that they think is relevant, they have a bad method. So the Correct. fact that they're judging it based on popularity is right. the problem. But you can't change that. The only thing you can do is change their minds. You can't change their mechanism for judging people. That's you the thing that kills that. me. You I, change that. That's how know. it is in the world now today. What if there is a way? What if there was a way you could talk to people, let's say, about methodology and critical thinking and philosophy and all these things? I mean, if you want to be Tyler Durden, there's a way, right? You know who Tyler Durden is? Yeah, he's a kind of his guy, right? Yeah, no, the Tyler Durden is uh, from Fight Club, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And what he did was he destroyed the financial institutions and all institutions that handle <laughs> communication by blowing up the buildings. So, yes. There is a way to do it that ha it happens to be really fucking extreme. It's going to land you in jail or dead, right? Well, so so I don't want to use bombs, but I do have a goal of destroying the modern academy through discrediting it by revealing just how bad quality ideas have been coming out of it the last century. I do have that goal. You wouldn't be able to do it. You couldn't even touch enough people to do it. But, but how do you know? That might be true, but how do you know? Show me anybody who's done so. Just because nobody's done done it doesn't mean it can't be done. We're talking about a media conglomerate, which is ubiquitous. It exists across the world and has a syndicate that controls the minds of everybody. Nobody wants to listen. There's, how many people are here today right now? It's 36 people here right now. We're having one of the most important conversations that anybody can have. And only 36 people are here. Why? Why, Steve? I don't have enough Twitter followers. You're to sit in front of your TV, right? And yeah. watch basketball or whatever the fuck is yeah. going on right now it's yeah. easier to play Fortnite, right yeah. it's not easy to pick up a book and start reading and studying now these are things that we know these are definites these are constants in our world right yeah they're not variables they're constants you can't change that the only thing you can change is you 
So oh, you let me let me counter that though. Okay. So what if it's the case that there's a small group of people? You're not going to reach the general public in the possible. There's a small group of people. If you push the right buttons, they're going to go, huh? And they're going to catch the critical thinking bug. They're going to start going out seeking with a good methodology, thinking thinking for themselves. But if you didn't push those buttons, they would kind of be stuck to the NPC life. Now, if that's possible, I am so attached. I feel like that's what I need to do. But I don't know if it's possible. And I don't, I don't even know. I don't have an answer. If it was possible, great. If it wasn't possible, great. I just want to know. Well, that's what Hotep does. That's what Hotep Nation does. Like we literally jack into the matrix, red pill people and pull them out. Like that's literally what we specialize in is mad people. I know there's one person who works on Wall Street right now and they thanked me one time. They said, yo, you changed my life because they were following me while they were in high school. And I pulled them out of that mentality of I'm black, I'm oppressed. I need to complain about the white man. And I moved into a space now where they're dominating Wall Street, doing billions of dollars and managing these portfolios. And they're not even thinking about the oppression that exists mm. in the world. Right. So these are people that I'm unlocking. Right. Now, the only way I'm unlocking them is because just like the Matrix, you got to jack in. You got to look cool. You got to look like the people. Look at Neil. When Neil Jackson, he's fly. He don't look like a bum. He got the leather jacket on, the straps on it, the leather pants, the shades. They look fly when they jack in because the NPC ain't even going to talk to you if you look like a bum. You have okay. to understand the, psych the psychosis of the NPC in order to unplug them. You have okay. to first deceive them to pull them out. So, so I'm curious, do you imagine in the future you're ever going to reach a point of, let's say, popularity or success in achieving your goals where you can tell people everything is a joke in the sense that your, your image is a joke and it's all designed to hack your psychology so that I can kick some sense into you? Or do you, do you imagine that you're going to kind of keep an image indefinitely because that's what works? Well, are you saying that uh, judged based upon effectiveness or am I going to do it, period? Because I've already done that. I've already told people like, yo, what you're looking at is a, a fucking TV. Oh, okay. Like okay. I've already said, like, yo, hotel okay. TV show, what you're looking at is not real. <laughs> I like that. OK. Right. Like I don't hide this from my viewers, which is okay. why the people that mess with me, they really love me because I don't yeah. sugarcoat shit. Yeah. But there's a time and place for everything. Right. Like. Yeah. There's certain things I'll say during my show on Thursdays that I won't reveal on Twitter, but it's different because now you've entered my space. And that's why I was saying before, when you want to rap people is what's the space you're going to create. Are you going to go into the church and tell people Jesus isn't real? Or are you mm -hmm. going to create a separate meeting space right. and then tell people in that place that Jesus isn't real? Those right. are two completely different things. So you got to understand that methodology is, is what you're doing going to be uh, effective or not. Okay. So I, I obviously don't have a style. Um, and I've, I've debated stuff like, like branding issues. I've, I've debating it. Am I going to have an image? And even the question makes me cringe. It's like, I, I, I so don't buy that shit at all that the idea you know, to, to imagine myself wearing a costume, like I can't even bring myself to do that. And maybe that's a mistake. I don't know. I don't. You got to make it work for you. But I think what the, I think 
this is where my wife helps me with all this stuff. But I think for me, it's just got to be focused on that small group. Like if you're one of those people that doesn't care if I got 2,000 Twitter followers, but you're listening, you're going, oh, this is an interesting guy. Maybe I'll get that book. This is interesting ideas. Then you start getting into the philosophy of mathematics, got a lot of interesting things to say here. Maybe I just focus on that and content myself with those people that are already disposed that way because it's so damn hard to, I don't know, nav- to, to, to accept the truths that you're, that you're speaking. You ever read 1984? Yeah, George Orwell. Yeah. Well, George Orwell in 1984, he basically says at the end of the book, or, or throughout the book almost, he says um, all the people that are fighting this resistance are going to be meaningless. You're not even going to be effective. You're a blip on the radar of time. Steve, no matter what you do in this world, you're not going to matter. No matter what I do in this world, I'm not going to matter. None of us is going to be able to wave a a magical wand and be able to say we're going to unlock the minds of the NPC. Until you can admit that to yourself, you're always going to be growing extra gray hairs. So I want to believe that. How old are you? I'm uh, just about 30. Yeah, so you're young yet. You'll get out of that. Here's, Here's the thing, though. I want to be there. But I don't, I don't know if that's true. Because what if it's the case? Because you're young. Everybody that's young thinks like that. We <laughs> okay. also, it might be true. I, I can't. The age flaw. Yeah. <laughs> Your age comes wisdom. And once you got that certain wisdom, you start realizing you got to study too. If you study history, you start realizing how insignificant some of this shit is. But not all of it is. Isn't there, do you think there's there was anybody that made a significant impact in the, the council of nicaea uh, uh yeah that'd be a big one Napoleon. i mean there's there's, there's so, so it's got to be possible right but did they affect the world in a good way or a bad way well Who affected the world in a good way jesus was he real though like give me somebody real okay well, I don't know. Historicity of Jesus is an interesting question. And that's what I'm saying. You, there's not a point in history where you could say, yo, this one person has changed the world for the better. Here's why there might be another explanation, which is the people that are actually relevant are behind the scenes. So you're ne- they're never going to make the history book because they're too busy doing shit. Exactly. The people who are relevant are behind the scenes. Those are the controllers. You don't even know their names. Yeah, exactly. How powerful they are. And those are the people you're fighting against. You'll yeah. never beat them as one man. Maybe I don't have to beat them. Maybe I just acknowledge they got a good methodology and I can make some positive impact just by adopting a little bit more of their methodology. I don't have to fight them necessarily. Right. And that's what I'm saying. You got to understand that. So let's let's reverse. You said, should I have an image? Right. And this is something by myself. I think just like you. I hate that you have to have an image. Right. Which is why I said, you know what? The same robe that my shorty bought me for Christmas is now my image. I'm going to wear it on every stream. So when I don't wear it, people go, yo, where's your robe? (laughs) You see how I was able to take something simple that's a part of my everyday life that makes me comfortable and still make it a branding thing. So I'm saying you got to learn how to make some of these rules Uh, within your morals. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. You see what I'm saying? What do I owe you? That's a really good point. You got to overstand the game and and then calibrate your morals to the game. Yeah. So where I say, yo, it's like certain things that I won't say on the internet, like there's certain people I'm just not going to call out no more. Y'all just going to have to be deceived by them because if I call them out, 
it's going to hurt me. Mm. Like I might wake up a few people, but in the end, it's going to cost me a year of work. It could say, uh, Calling out one person could cost me a year of work. I don't got that much time. So let me shut up. If a few people get deceived, it's fine. But I have to get to the point where I'm a multi-billionaire so I can really affect change in the world. Because mm. unless you're a billionaire, you're not really going to affect change in this world. I don't know if that's true. And here's why. Okay. Those billionaires are acting out ideas in their head. And I'll be damned if they put them there. I've, I've, I've brushed shoulders with people who are well-connected in Silicon Valley. And I don't think all of them or most of them are particularly independent or deep thinkers in their own domain. They are, maybe that's how they, they found their niche became billionaires, but deep thinkers, but the, well, that means then the philosophers are the people that actually are affecting them. The philosophers in a sense, no, no, well, how, how they act, where do they come up with their ideas to act. They don't, they see ideas and put money behind them. Where did, why do they see ideas though? Somebody put the ideas out there. Is somebody else's ideas? Who's creating the ideas? Well, well, well if, let's let's look at how a VC operates, right? You'll have junior VCs that'll go out and they'll handle all the meetings and they'll pull these things in, and then you know the the top guy will make a final decision and and, and pull the trigger on it, right? So there's always somebody that's going to be doing the work, right? But at the end of the day, without the money, the vision doesn't come to life, mm. right? Now, if you are a thinker and a billionaire, you're more effective than the other billionaires. For sure. Okay. So that's what I'm saying is the goal is to be a billionaire so you can make the other billionaires obsolete because they're not thinkers. Or or if there was a way to... You can't say if there was a way, you have to say the way, Steve. Okay. Okay. Or by creating, by using the internet to create and explain a new philosophical paradigm you might be able to sufficiently change the ideas in the unthinking billionaire such that your ideas get acted out in the world despite you not personally being a billionaire. Yeah, nobody cares. <laughs> I'm not sure that's true. Everybody's watching football. Show me when you're going to have a higher viewership on something intellectual than the Super Bowl, Steve. Show so, me when. Here, Show here. me one intellectual conversation anywhere that's got right. more viewership right. than somebody digging. Not more viewership. Here's what it is. Powerful people are tend to be socialites. Uh, most people tend to be socialites in the sense that they want to say things that sound fashionable and okay. intelligent and cutting edge. Those people, there, there are a few people who recognize the power in discovering the fashionable new ideas. So if you can set the intellectual trend, and we're talking about physics, and now we're talking about theories of discrete space, which I'm a fan of, just for example, if you can, if, if you have the ability to say, oh, this is the cutting edge, actually, is the theory of discrete space. That can be a meme, not in for the general public, but in those circles of the hoity-toity people who think too highly of themselves. If you, have, if you have the type of presence in which people are like, oh, you got to listen to this person, you actually can affect their beliefs, even if you know, most people are still watching football. I have, reason, I have positive reason to believe that is the case. You need prominence, though. Yes, you need some type of prominence, but it but it's not not doesn't have to be mass prominence. You need I, I can't put my finger on it. It's something. Let me yeah. ask you this: If I wasn't with a hundred thousand Twitter followers and I wasn't on Rogan, do you think I'd have been able to pull off those Bitcoin debates? No. It's true. 
I'm not saying your strategy is wrong. I'm just saying, I think, I think it might be possible to positively affect the world by influencing the ideas of very wealthy people that you yourself don't have to be wealthy, but you can positively, or you can affect the world in the way that you're trying to affect it, whether it's positive or negative. Or something. Yes, I agree that you can, you can do that, right? But I think it's much sexier when I'm the guy with the wallet. <laughs> no, I agree with you. Right? No, no argument there. Like I, I have access to millionaires, right? Yeah. And I have very little desire to ask them for money, right? Yeah. I'd rather ask a billionaire for money than my millionaire friends because I need a whole million. <laughs> and they might not be able to do that. They might just be 20,000. I'm like, I don't need 20,000, you know? So, yeah. you know, the, the thing is, I want to be one of the players. Yeah. I don't want to be uh, an extension of one of the players, right? Yeah. And And now I have to sit here and talk to this millionaire and give him my ideas when yeah. I can just cut the check myself and say, yo, like think about Soros, right? Soros yeah. controls yeah. whole nations. Yeah. Whole nations, Steve. Yeah. How you gonna compete with Soros? I'm not gonna compete with him. When he can send a thousand protesters to your doorstep tonight and have you investigated by the FBI over something you did in high school. Yeah, or didn't do. Or didn't do right. in high school. You exactly. see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you can't compete with that. Thousand protesters to my house, and I then a thousand protesters to his house. Now we got a now we got a good war that's being fought. So here's my guess: is you don't fight Soros. God willing, he doesn't know who the fuck you are, right? <laughs> what you do is you have a platform where the next generation of competent actors in the world, billionaires and millionaires and real decision makers, will have consumed your ideas whether through your own mouth or through the mouths of others because i'm telling you that there are there are circles of individuals who are let's more on the intellectual end they scared though they're not thinkers they think they're, of they, they're scared too though yeah of course they're scared but and i don't need we don't need no people with scared wallets we need, well, we need people with with a mouthpiece that are not afraid to challenge i agree but i think you might reach those people by affecting that that elite culture that that here's what I think is very very lowly of most people in humanity. Like you look within, you look within your own psychology and do. Oh man, I'm screwed up. If I'm screwed up. Everybody's got to be screwed up. If you look this, you know, if you look frankly in the mirror, you you, you got some work to do. You know, yeah. that's the most real circumstance in my opinion is to see things that way. Yeah. So I think human psychology has all kind of flaws in it. And when I when I think back to maybe some previous behavior I'm working on, and I, I my things I've observed in people who have status, I see weakness, I see profound weakness and a lack of thinking. And I also see the fashionability thing where if there is an idea that becomes hip, they're going to repeat it. And it's probably might even affect their business. Oh gosh. Um, for example, a, a good way to make the world better is by buying uh, bed nets for those uh, who are in Africa so that they don't get malaria. That's an idea. Bill Gates is a big fan of this idea. That is an extremely fashionable idea. And okay. because now, it's one more time, you the, you want to yeah, yeah. make the world better and two do what? So yeah. So what I'm so I'm I'm giving an example of the fashionable idea that's has turned into 
making some difference in the world. Right. It's uh, reducing the uh, scourge of malaria by buying cheap bed nets and sending them to Africa. Okay. So that that is a, an idea that is very fashionable in like Silicon Valley circles. Okay. That's a cool thing. People haven't necessarily thought through that. They haven't thought, is that the way, the best way to maximize and you know my impact on the world? Say what? Why hasn't it happened yet? Oh, people are doing it right now. There's there's oh. companies. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a big thing right. where you can try to make the world a better place by banging bed, bed nets. All right. Um, okay. That's a that would be an example of a mosquito problem. Yeah. There's well, yeah. There's a mosquito problem. We got in the world, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> hey, malaria is a problem, though. It kills a lot of people. I disagree, but continue. Okay. Well, that's just an example where that idea has legs and that right. idea has entered the consciousness uh, and the social circles of relatively powerful people, Bill Gates included. And so now that's one of those ideas that's actually being acted on in the world because okay. it's become fashionable. It's not because people have sat down and really thought through the logic of the whole thing. It's just the fashionable thing that the wealthy people do. That would be an example. So if there are other, other examples where an idea becomes- I'll Show you how that idea is selfish. Well, sure, sure. Make the world a better place. No. A selfish desire. Oh. If I'm a millionaire and I'm dealing in bed nets, right? And I want to go into Africa, what does that first require me to do? It first requires me to talk to government officials. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm in bed with the government of another company and I'm offering a service which allows me to ask for leverage. And this is how people get colonized, Steve. This is how Africa has been colonized. Africa has been colonized under the guise of aid. When white people tell me they want aid to continent, to, to Africa, you know what I think? I think of AIDS. Yeah. Because they came with vaccines and the <laughs> vaccines were filled with AIDS, Steve. I don't know uh, uh, the history of it, but I, I think, think that's what happened. I'm telling you. And when you tell me about Bill Gates, I'm thinking about Bill Gates and I'm thinking population control. Maybe. I mean, okay, okay, okay. But so that might be true. And this that, is what I'm going to say on aid, right? Yeah. You got this thing called the World Food Program. And they go in and they say, hey, we're going to drop all food to these people in this impoverished nation. Mm. Right. What you've just done was you've destabilized the economy mm. because the people who had to go and find a way to purchase food, purchase it from a farmer. Now, because they're getting this food for free, they don't need to purchase it from the farmer anymore. The same thing happens to our Super Bowl T-shirts and uniforms. People are walking around with Super Bowl T-shirts and uniforms we send to third world nations and they're not buying it from the local tailor. So now the local tailor needs food and he needs a right. Super Bowl T-shirt. Now these people can't even sustain their economy. When yeah, I, giving, I'm like, nah, that's not the way. Well, I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. And I don't know about the concrete claims uh, about you know the, the motivation of somebody like Bill Gates. Maybe it's the case that at, at the top there's some game like that going on. I just say, I don't think that's exclusively what it is. I think there are definitely corporations and companies and plenty of millionaires who are who are actually funding the project of delivering the bed nets. Um, and it makes more sense to, instead of deliver bed nets, I think you need to create a independent corporation in this African nation run by Africans and let them oh. hire and create the bed nets themselves. I'm not arguing it's a good idea. 
at right. all. I didn't, I didn't mean to imply and that. That's what, and that's, that's my whole point. Like when you say yeah, yeah. Make the world better, yeah. usually that shit don't work. No, no. I, well, I make sense. Look, I come to, I, okay. We're actually in a lot of better subjective, right? We're in a lot of agreement for sure. I think all kinds of interventions into economies turn out to have unintended consequences uh, that turn that, that outweigh the benefits and the, and the problems they were trying to solve. Yeah. I think that's a, that's kind of a general economic principle that turns out to be true for all kinds of intervention, altruistic interventions for sure. Yeah. Uh, however, I do think people still are motivated to a, a, a pretty deep degree to try to have a positive impact on the world. Like the if I have the ability to really make the world a better place in a way that I know it's actually a better place, that's very attractive to me. How would you do it? Oh, the way I'm doing it right now. I, I, I mean, my philosophy let's say, is let's say you, you, you had a magic wand and you can only make one improvement in the world to make the world better. What would you do? <laughs> I would probably, oh gosh, I don't even know. It, it depends. Uh, can I give myself more wishes? I mean, like I could probably break the, break oh, the rules here. It would be something like, honestly, I've, I've actually changed my mind recently. Okay. Uh, after talking with my wife again, because she's doing all this health research. Uh, my wish would be that people had deep physical health. <laughs> I say this, this is a totally different perspective I have had. I've been, I've been coming at it from the intellectual perspective. I want critical thinking. I want ideas. And my wife and I have had some medical issues for the past several years, and it has affected our lives greatly. And I see now that I think bad ideas, really bad ideas, might ultimately come down to bad health. Bad psychology might also come down to bad health. True. So I think, I think if you can just solve the health issue, you might be able to solve a bunch of the psychological and other more complex issues. It's a very physical way of thinking about it. Never heard of that, never thought about it. And I like it. I like that. Yeah. You, you know what my wish would be? Yeah, well, I am very curious. Everybody would know how to love. How, how, do, you do, how do you teach that? I just said it's a magic wish. Oh, it's a wish magic <laughs> Okay. I'll, I'll one-up you then. I'll one-up you then because you're right. If you're just going straight to love, I agree with you. Yeah. I wish everybody had a love experience. Okay. Because that, for me, I would say, so I, So now we're going to get back into like religion and philosophy and stuff, but I, uh, I had this totally life-changing love experience uh, when I realized I was in love with my wife, Julia, who's the woman I keep talking about. She's just wonderful. It totally changed my philosophy. It changed my worldview. I thought, oh, okay, I gotta, I've got to greatly expand my concrete rational philosophy because of this experience. I had no conception of what love was. I used the word. I didn't recognize what it was. And then I, I, I kissed that experience. I saw the face of God, let's say, had that love experience life totally changed. So, so if there was some magic wand, we could give all humans true love experiences. Well, I mean, that pretty much solves everything. Okay. So that is our mission, Steve. Our mission isn't Bitcoin. Our mission isn't nets in Africa. Our mission is to teach people how to love. Our second mission is to teach people how to think. All right. People don't think. They don't Let me try to, I'm going to try to put it in my words and see if you agree with this. Because okay. I, I, this is in, kind of in my, my notes myself. I think because this love experience was so powerful for me, I think it could be powerful for everybody. I and mean, this is kind of what a lot of the religious people were talking about. Love is a pretty big deal. I think the mind is an obstacle in practice 
for people to have a profound love experience. Yes. And I say this as, I don't say this from the mystic perspective to say, well, therefore get rid of your mind or you can have, you know, the mind completely deceives you about everything. I actually take it from the rationalistic perspective. I think it's bad ideas, incorrect ideas, which prevent people from having the love experience. I think if they, if they thought more clearly and were more open-minded, it would actually put them closer to having these love experiences. So I, my, for me, because I can't just like, I, I can't give them the, the kiss of love, right? My thing that I'm doing, I'm, I'm actually creating a lot of this content to, to find those individuals who, like me, had some psychological, philosophical nets that were preventing me from having the love experience. And I'm trying to explain through purely rationalistic means a better philosophy that I'm hoping will allow them to have the love experience. Right. So that's delivered, by the way. I've never shared that with anybody. I love that. That 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 is totally on par with what I'm thinking. So when we talk about making the world better and like which way to do it, right? There is yeah. no one way to do it, right? You know, when we talk about so I'm talking about like playing the game and rising to the top and then affecting the world. Yeah. And you're talking about oh, I can just do it in small groups, right? Yeah. So here's the thing: you am I, I am you both need to happen yeah you know what i mean it's not yeah, like you got to do it this way or hotel you got to do it this way both need to simultaneously have need to happen you need to be affecting those tiny circles of millionaires yeah i'm going to work to become a billionaire to create those millionaires yeah right? like <laughs> but both need to happen you see what i'm saying yeah and it has to do with our strengths and weaknesses based upon our personality yeah you know i I'm like with you, man. Like, like, uh, like you said, some of that stuff made you sick to your stomach, right? Yeah. Whereas with me, I kind of look at shit as it is. Like, it just is what it is. Right. You know what I mean, like, I don't add emotion to it. You know what I mean? Right. And if if I catch myself having an emotion to something, I I remove the emotion. Mm. Like, I, I I try not to let emotion dictate my move. I like to let intuition first, and then logic dictate my move or logic really to dictate how I execute what my intuition told me to do. Yeah. 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 I, it's, it's weird that, um, I wouldn't necessarily say I have, I guess it is kind of an emotion, emotional reaction. It's something like the feeling of disgust is I have a very strong disgust feeling, <laughs> I guess. And when I see like the idea of playing a game, to get people to listen to me, you know, like dancing on stage so that people listen to me. It's like, it's not me. You know, yeah. I, can't, I can't do it. It just, I have that disgust feeling, but I, I completely agree with you. This is, it's maddening to, to have this disgust feeling because I recognize my approach by myself ain't going to work. So you've never been in sales before. <laughs> no, I couldn't do sales. Couldn't I, mean, I, I kind of do sales in the sense that I am my own personality online. I got a Patreon page and all that stuff, but it's not like it, it's not normal sales now. Because if you're in sales, you start realizing that it's certain things. Like when I was selling mortgages, and we know what happened with that mortgage fiasco, it was certain things where I was like, yo, I can't tell the lady that. You know, like, I, yeah. Like, How do you deal with that? You know, like, you want me to tell the lady that? And then it was like at a point you realize, well, somebody gonna tell her that shit. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, if it's not me, I'm going to pass the phone to another loan officer and he's going to say it, right? Mm. He's going to get paid off that loan. Yeah. And I got a family to feed and I got a future to provide for. Yeah. And this lady kind of might really need this loan, you know, to refire her house and get some home improvements done. Mm. 
know, um, and she called me, <laughs> you know, but and also in how we speak in sales, too. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Like um, I remember my dude, Dave Oswald, he hung up on a customer once and the customer called back. Now, you would think in your mind, I'm working at this job. If I hang up on a customer, that's like bad customer service. Yeah. This dude, Dave the Diamond Oswald, he was doing shit in sales I never seen anywhere. And he's the one that taught me sales, but he was just so raw with his that he could get away with shit. You know, it was like, yo, I'm offering you something either you want it or you don't. Right. Yeah. Where me, I was just like, uh, 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 yeah. uh I was more Steve, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then, but then I started realizing like, it's actually nothing wrong with what this guy is doing. You know, he's, he's being very real about some of this stuff, you know? So, and, and based upon rules. So, so do you think there's something wrong with the way I'm thinking about it? Here, here's the way I think about it. I think the world would be a better place if people in the circumstance, like you're describing where you, there's a mortgage, it's like, lady, this is not a good decision. If they, if people in general, said, I'm not going to do that. Somebody else can take the responsibility for having this lady subjected to a mortgage that's going to be a bad decision for her. Like, so I think to myself, okay, if the world would be a better place if people act that way, I'm going to try to act that way. Do you think that's a wrong way of approaching it? No. No. Okay, what am I missing then? Uh, nothing. I don't think you're missing anything, right? But the world ain't built like that. <laughs> so, I, so I think of um, I used to work at Comp USA, right? And um, they wanted us to sell a warranty, right? And the more things you added to the warranty, the higher your commission check, mm -hmm. right? So I used to tell my customers, like, look, just get the warranty on the computer. You don't need the warranty on like uh the power supply, right? <laughs> But at the end of the day, I was the lowest performer there because they right. judged us based upon right. how much insurance did you sell. Right. Right. So it's like, is the person that I'm trying to save going to care about my mortgage payment? <laughs> Are they going to care about the fact that I'm going to be on the unemployment line if I don't perform at the highest level is isn't that how bad things happen though this person is too stupid to understand that they're getting <laughs> scammed yeah right but isn't that how why the world is so grody because people are that situation comes up all the time in every industry and most people are like well this is the way it is i maybe again maybe it's i'm naive but i just think you either get hit or you hit and you hit long enough until you become the commissioner. But you got to hit to become the commissioner. Now, once you're the commissioner, you can come back and absolve yourself of all the sins you've done in the world. Set <laughs> things right, right? It's like Thanos, right? Like Thanos is on this planet that's dying. If he kills off half the population, he saves the entire population. Yeah. Who's going to make that decision? Yeah. Are you gonna let? The, are you gonna sit there and watch this planet die? Or are you gonna snap your fingers and say, "I'll save the population by killing half"? What are you gonna do, Steve? Uh, gosh, I don't know. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. These, this is the decision that we're making every single day. Okay, but but the the thing that kills me with all these thought experiments is I don't know if there's another way. Because because for example, I I have been blessed 
being my weird psychological disposition uh, in an age of the internet. Like I write on super esoteric topics like the philosophy of math all the time. And yet people are voluntarily like, yeah, hey, I'm going to listen to this Steve Patterson guy. They give their money to me despite me not doing that. And it's not, it's not like I'm a great millionaire or anything, but I'm living and I don't, I, I don't feel like I had to sell my soul at any point. Right. And I'm in agreement with you there. Like, I don't lie to my audience. I don't sell my soul for anything. But I play the game to a certain level. Yeah. Once I got to compromise or hurt somebody, I've never sold a predatory loan. I was never the number one top guy. Actually, I was. I, one month I did several million in sales. <laughs> they were all like. I actually dropped that. <laughs> <laughs> The thing was, uh, I worked really hard that month. Like yeah. I stayed till eight. I took all the phone calls. I completed application after application. I just put more time in than everybody else. I was yeah. just more focused than everybody else. It wasn't because I sold a predatory loan. When there were opportunities to sell predatory loans, like you said, I hung up the phone, right? Mm -hmm. I hung up the phone. But it hurt me. It hurt my bottom line because yeah. I watched. I watched, we had a Chinese dude in the office, George. He didn't speak no English. He was the top salesman every single month. He <laughs> always did a million in business, always. And it was just because he didn't give a fuck, right? right. But his wife didn't work. His yeah. kids went to a top school, yeah. right? And that person who I could have sold that loan to, if they saw me in the street, they probably called me a nigga. <laughs> or they probably called me a misogynistic asshole. Or, you know, like, or something else, right? Like nobody's Jesus walking this earth, right? Yeah. People are still going to look out for their self-interest, right? Right. I think it's a matter of looking out for your self-interest until you have enough power to help everyone. I think that I think that's probably correct, but there's there, there's got to be a balance because if you go just hardcore that direction, then it justifies anything. I correct. Mean, it, just, it just justifies being a concentration camp guard. Yes. Like, well, I got to provide for my family. Well, at some point maybe the the bad that you're creating in the world is is so bad that you got to find another way and this is why like for me i just consider myself so damn lucky to live in the era where i do because if i didn't have the internet there is not a chance in hell that i'm going to make a dime doing what i'm doing and and i'll be put in situations where i got to make a lot harder decisions than i've had to make about this stuff yeah i just you know really what i want you to take away is Know when you have to tell the truth and when you when you can omit it. Mm. Don't be the guy. You know, I'm not using this as an, a, an, ex, an exact or concrete example, but don't be the guy saying abolish the Fed, abolish the uh, IRS. Right. You don't pick every battle. No. You know, don't fight every battle. If it's something that, for example, like you said, you wanted to correct the thing on BCH because you told people something good. Yeah. That makes sense. Now, if you see something happen in the BCH community and you feel like the world should know about it, I don't know if that's such a good idea sometimes. Honestly, it's it, that's a really good example because I, if BCH goes the route of BTC, which I'm hopeful that it won't, but if it gets captured by developers, part of me just says I have no obligation to anybody. I tried my best, and if they burn the whole thing down, it's really not my responsibility. Like, I'm out. I mean, I've kind of consciously thought about that. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, there's nothing on your conscience about that. Right. You know, like, look at the story of Malcolm X, right? Malcolm X finds out Elijah Muhammad 
had got some underage girls pregnant and that was it broke Malcolm X's heart. Right now, Malcolm X could have kept that within the nation of Islam, but he chose to spoke out public to the world and it got him killed. Right. So we ask ourselves. What should have Malcolm done? Did it make sense to expose it? Because he exposed it and the nation is still here. It ain't hurt the nation none. The people still signed up to be with the nation of Islam. And now he's dead and we don't have him with us anymore. Secondly, I look at it as you chose to be a part of this gang that we call the nation of Islam and you betrayed the gang. So is it truth or is it loyalty? I mean, I think you're just asking the wrong guy. I mean, I I know that I got some philosophy that's a little bit wonky here because to say truth, I think we can come up with circumstances in which it seems foolish to to make a stand when maybe you don't need to. I think think your resolution is actually probably the best one that maybe you can give up the, the, the deliberate lying, but that doesn't mean you have to uh go out of your way to always tell to, to tell the truth go out and say right. things additionally and put yourself in circumstances that's not going to help i mean that's got to be correct because right. there's all kinds of trivial truths that i'm not going to share that wouldn't be damaging it would just cause damage and cause and nothing good in the world would come of them so i think that's the i think that's the thing is like maybe just refrain from speaking <laughs> rather than lying that's what i'm talking about refrain from speaking and that's something that i've come i've been playing with for a very long time in my mind for several years and it wasn't until this monday or tuesday i said you know what i'm shutting the fuck up fuck (laughs) y'all because i got goals and telling the truth ain't gonna help you get in there nobody cares that's the other thing. point I want you to understand is nobody gives a fuck, bro. That's the if there was a model for America, the model for America would be I don't give a fuck. But that's not right. I, I can tell you, man, it, it's it's unusual. But it, is. but it happens. I know because it's, there are patrons right now who I, I do nothing for them except write articles on whatever topic I want to write and bring on people talking about ridiculous subjects that most people are interested in. And they put up their money and they pay me. Right. Somebody's got to care. I mean, you know what? Actually, what they like when I talk to them is they like this approach of the, of the, the irrever- irreverent truth seeker and speaker. So right. I mean, some people do care. There's not many. Right. There is. But the majority don't. I agree. And who and that's who we're trying to rescue. We're trying to save the majority. Like my old master teacher taught me, he said, we don't got to save everybody. We just got to take a few, put them on our back and take them to the mountaintop. Yeah. You know, we can't. And I think I think also what you said is correct, that we have different audiences. So like I love, I'm just I can't I can't do the general public. Obviously, I don't have a good intuition for it anyway. Yeah. So like I'm maybe maybe the thing is you got to take you're taking more people than I am. Yeah. But I'm going to try to take people, too, in my, in my own way. Well, I still have that optimistic, altruistic view you have at your tender age of 30 where yeah. I want to save the world. I haven't lost that, right? Yeah. I've just come to the conclusion that it's impossible. But just because something is impossible doesn't mean I'm not going to stop trying, right? right. I think that declaring it as impossible forces me to expand my thinking to make mm-hmm. it possible, right? Mm-hmm. But I have to first come to the conclusion that it is impossible. So I don't kill myself 
Yeah. If I fail, right? Yeah. Because that's what we tend to do when we when we're not honest with ourselves, right? It's like saying, Oh, I believe I can fly. I right, jump off your roof then, dog. No matter how much you believe, <laughs> your ass gonna die. Right. Yeah. So at some point, we have to be honest with ourselves of what is possible, what is not. And I believe that saving the saving the planet in our lifetime is not possible, even if me and you work together or 10 of us work together. It's not possible. It's just too much wrong with the world. It's too much, too many world powers been around. We got China, we got Saudi Arabia, we got Israel, and uh, that's pretty much it, right? And <laughs> like those are the three world powers, right? Russia and United States kind of fall in line somewhere between those world powers. You're not going to do nothing really. Like you saw Saudi Arabia today. We're training a, a guy and, and he's shooting our own soldiers, right? Is there any uproar? Nobody gives a shit. Why? Right. Saudi Arabia is pretty fucking powerful, right? They got a royal family. They got oil. They got gold. You're not toppling that world power. If you try to, they're going to neutralize you. Yeah. So you I, have to put these things in perspective. I don't think I don't think the I, the goal of the whole planet. I don't think that's possible. But I think it's also a lie that people like to tell themselves that they can't make any impact whatsoever. I kind of fell into this a little bit myself, where it's like, oh, the world is so crazy, I can't. I'm not even going to try at all, and that's going to be totally ineffective. Everything I do, yeah, just because of the way things are. I don't think that's right. I think the 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 uncomfortable truth is somewhere in the middle. I mean, you're not going to save the world, but you actually can probably make it better in some way, uh, either oh. through business or you know personal developing your personal character, and that always seems to have good positive impacts. This is the thing that that is so hard for me personally to get a hold of. Is I don't know how big the impact is, and I don't if the potential impact is greater than I currently think of it then I don't want to shortchange myself. I don't be like, oh, dude, you could make this big thing, but you settled because you were comfortable. I don't want to fall into that circumstance either. Right. right. I hope I grew out of it, though. Somebody in the chat said four fucking hours. So as we start to close out, <laughs> yeah. you know, my response to that is, fuck you, right? Like, that's my response. Yeah. I, I like doing these long three, four hour conversations because like you said before, only a small amount of people are going to sit here and listen to this whole conversation, right? Yeah. This ain't for everybody. No. If I wanted to make stuff for everybody, I'd make 10 minute clips, right? We sit here, I'd ask you question, 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 10 minutes and we out, right? Yeah. If, if that was the purpose, I don't give a fuck. We having a conversation. I'm having fun. I'm talking to Steve and it's bigger than what the chat wants. This is bigger than what YouTube viewers want. What is two minds building here? For sure. I mean, I'm personally enjoying it. I don't really care how many viewers are there. I see this is like the thing. I feel like I got the I got the story of Bitcoin Cash off my chest. Kind of feel like okay, I did my thing. And now, I mean, the other two hours of our conversation has been philosophy, which is the thing I love to talk about anyways. This has created a bunch of value for me, if if nobody else. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if it's if think about it like this, if it's been four hours. And you sat here for four hours. Is it our fault? Of course it is. Because we're doing something right. Your ass sat there, didn't you? Exactly. <laughs> if you ain't like the four hours, you'd have clocked that a long time ago. I'm looking at the streaming right now. It says average watch time has been 10 minutes. I really don't care. I yeah. really don't care. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think we made a total of uh, $9.09. I don't care about none of that shit. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's a matter of 
when somebody needs to find a conversation and they find this one and it changes their life yep it's just that one mind that needs to be changed damn straight and i think that the type of mind that's going to be changed by a four-hour conversation is the type of mind we want to change because that's somebody who has got the the patience and the deliberance to sit down and go oh damn this is valuable i'm going to keep listening to what these guys have to say exactly and that's why i like the long form content because it finds just those people right just those people because me i look at a video sometimes it, it, depending on what it is i might say i want a four hour video or yeah. i want a five minute video depending on what it is right. and sometimes i look up a topic and I, I can't find a four hour video i'm like ah fuck it man all right right i want a little piece i want the whole smorgasbord yeah. i think this is one of the reasons why joe rogan's show is so popular is because it's long form and that's unique but you get a kind of depth that you don't get in almost any other medium yeah yeah I, I i don't do a lot of interviews because i feel like they just snip it the fuck out of me and i'm like yeah. Yo, i'm a little too deep to be just having like a 30-minute conversation like that's why i like the, the the conversation i had with joe he really pulled out something out of me that i didn't expect you know yeah but yeah man great fucking conversation i appreciate it oh matthew everton thanks bro he said this has been one of the best conversations i've listened to Y'all got to give us more. Thanks, Matt. Shout out to Matt. I had dinner with Matt out in LA. Appreciate nice. it, bro. He was out there when um I shot with Jason Stapleton. He works with Jason Stapleton, and um, oh. I worked with. Uh, he was out there when I was uh, interviewing with Rogan. So he's a cool, dude. Come right on. Yeah, man. Great fucking conversation, Steve. I'm glad we did this. I'm glad we got over our beef in the beginning. Yeah, huh? <laughs> that's all right, man. So I got to ask you: Do you walk away from this conversation and think oh, Steve is a BSV shill? Uh, yes. Get out of here. <laughs> get out of here. I shouldn't have asked. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> I don't look at you as a BSV shill, but I don't look at you as a BCH ally either. You don't think I'm a, a Bitcoin Cash ally? No. All right. I, I, all right. So let me clarify. I think you are a BCH ally. I just wouldn't consider you a BCH. Like, if I was BCH, I'd be like, yo, fuck Steve, yo. <laughs> really? Yeah. Even after that, the whole story. You're too You're too nice. Oh, uh, okay. You're too nice to BSV. If I was BCH, and yeah. I, you said, like, yo, this two dude is, is he's too. Okay, well, no. Okay, so I got to I gotta clarify my my uh, my question then. Because okay. you're, you're totally right, but you're, you're answering the question I didn't ask. Okay. Because you're saying, what are other people going to think? What are the other NPCs going to think? I'm asking you, Hotep, do yeah. you walk away from this conversation thinking that right now Steve is most bullish on BCH and is obviously not a BSV show? You're definitely a uh, bullish BCH. You're not a BSV show. Thank you. You're not. Thank you for all the 36 people still watching. Right. And it just, it's just so damn obvious. So I will say, who, if for anybody that is listening, Somebody is feeding you bad quality information. Yeah. And when, when you're making those judgment calls, who are you going to listen to? Well, at least we have a data point that whoever was making those silly claims, it's a little bit of bullshit going on. Yeah, <laughs> Steve's not a BSV show. I, he's not. I can see why people say it because they want you to be down with the gang. Yeah. A little too nice to be down with the gang. But you're just calling shit down the middle. Yep. Calling it like it is, right? And that goes back to what I was telling you before. Stop that shit. <laughs> well, no, because I, there are a handful of people who are listening. There are a handful of people, even in this crazy industry. You got to pull them 
to Steve World and 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 call it down the middle. Don't call it down the middle for everybody. Yeah. For example, right? Let me show. You, let me. So, thirty-six people here. You're about to witness. Uh, I'm about to tell you my strategy for 2020. Okay. So, 20, 2018, I I played dumb, maga boy. 2019, I revealed my true colors and called shit down the middle, and I was calling out the left and the right. That's way too agnostic for people. In 2020, I'm going back in the shadows. Mm -hmm. I'm going back to not calling shit out. I'm going back to uh, playing the game, right? I just, I just, I, I, I do these things to create balance in my life, right? Mm -hmm. But playing that middle ground ain't gonna get you no growth. What you do is you pull people into your Patreon where they're paying for the information, and that's when you're telling the truth. But as far as Twitter's concerned, you got to make them pay for that information, dog. You, you got they got to pay for that. The game is to be sold, not told. So that's my game is not on Twitter. I mean, that's my conclusion. Is whatever I'm doing seems to be working to some extent, but it's not Twitter. B show, and that's where they pulled your tweets to to make it look like a BSV show. Yeah, but I mean, look, look how well this worked out. I would take a four hour and twenty minute conversation over the a debate with Paul, right? Right. This has worked out better, and that. But you know why it's worked out? Because I called you, we talked on the phone, and you were like, "Oh, this dude's actually stand up." Because I'm calling it down the middle. So see, it's worked out in my opinion. But you got lucky because I'm a dude that calls shit down the middle. And but I'll tell you what, I didn't get lucky because I would did not volunteer myself to debate on somebody else's show. Like I told you on the phone, I wasn't bullshitting you. I actually, you are signaling that you're actually somebody trying to get deep to the bottom of things, which is why I thought, okay, this is my opportunity because this is somebody I can actually uh, connect with. True indeed. You're going to learn with age, Steve. When you get my age, 10 more years, you'll be like, oh, fuck, I'm turning in a hotel. Jesus, I'm serious <laughs> talking about. Ain't <laughs> your younger self. Maybe. I'm not ruling it out for sure. I hope you stay the same though because I miss that side of me that wouldn't you know that would just call shit down the middle and just yeah. but seeing how much success comes from shutting the fuck up yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of hard to go back man i hear you but yeah right. appreciate well, you yeah man i've enjoyed this has been great i appreciate the invitation and it's a great conversation uh sadie rochelle ten dollars thank you guys needed tonight shout out to sadie appreciate you brody mcfarland he said this was great all five four hours was worth it Again, Sadie, thank you. $10 says, thank you. I need this guy. I guess she hit the button twice by accident. My bad. Um, but yeah, Steve, great fucking convo, dog. Um, next time, we're going to do this conversation again, but we're going to talk all philosophy. Oh, dude, I would love to. I, I'm going to be talking about the philosophy of math. I, I know it sounds funny, but you want to hear an amazing story? It comes from an unlikely place which is the history and the philosophy of fucking mathematics of all things, the scandals, the arrogance, the stupidity. It's like, it's, it's worth a novel that nobody has written on yet. All right. So what I need you to do is send me a couple of reading materials. Okay. In my DM and then right. we'll schedule a philosophy of mathematics. <laughs> Let's do it. Oh, I can't wait, man. I can't wait. We're going to do that. I got a dude I got to talk to next week about Islam and another one has happened. Something's happening in Africa. And then um, I might we might be able to do philosophy and mathematics next Friday. But uh, that would make my day. I mean, I would just, yeah, let's do it, dude. I'm gonna hang up. Uh, I've got a few more things to say to you, and I'm gonna send you some literature because I think you're gonna be pretty excited about this topic. All right, say no more. Let's do it. All right, cool. All right, bro. Peace out, y'all.